my name's Sylvester McCoy. I played Doctor Who. <laughs> Number seven. Yes, a long time ago. Anyway, you're listening to Neil. No, you're not. Listen to me. Anyway, you might be soon listening to Neil podding. Whatever that is. Neil Before Blog presents... Neil Before Pod. Hello and welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that so far hasn't split off into multiple versions of itself. I'm your host Craig and we're here to discuss the 60th anniversary specials of Doctor Who, plus the Christmas special. It's not technically the 60th anniversary special, but it's there. Joining me for this is regular contributor Doctor Who nerd for Neil Before Pod, Isaac. Hello. Hello. Hi everyone. Happy New Year everyone, by the way, also. First regular podcast of the new year that isn't a news one. Exactly. And joining us for the first time is super nerd extraordinaire, is Darren Mooney. Hello. Hello. I love that. I'm going to put that on my cards. Feels like the perfect title. So thank you very much. Glad to be here. Mental note, get some cards. That's it. Item number one, get some cards. Item number two, <laughs> emboss them with super nerd extraordinaire. I see I've been outranked immediately. <laughs> Isaac, nerd for the podcast, but super nerd extraordinaire. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Hired up, I guess. <laughs> that step three is just slam the card down on the table and slide it over towards Craig. That's step three. Yeah, I have the card here. <laughs> so since you've never been here before on this podcast, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, what you do, what qualifies you to be here as a Doctor Who discussion person. I'd like to justify your existence on the podcast <laughs> question. Obviously, as you mentioned, my name is Darren Mooney. I am a super nerd extraordinaire. In practical terms, what that actually means is I have strong opinions about nerd culture and I publish them online. I've been very, very fortunate over the past couple of years. I've written for a number of sites, including the Irish newspaper, the Irish Independent. I do weekly radio reviews on Q102 in Ireland. Internationally, I've worked with the American website The Escapist for several years. I was their critic at large, which is another thing that I want to get in bossed on a card of some description. It just literally meant that I covered everything that wasn't video games because everybody else covered video <laughs> games. It was the best job in the world. I got paid to have opinions about pop culture and I could write about film, I could write about television, I could write about books, I could write about comics. And it was just an incredibly liberating job. I do not do that anymore for reasons we do not have time to go into. I now work with Second Wind Group, which is a spin-off from The Escapist, not in a technical or legally binding sense, but in the sense that it was created by a large number of former employees of The Escapist as a place for independent journalism. I am also there. I am their film guy, their prose guy, their columns guy, all that sort of stuff. It's a fantastic thing. Specifically in terms of Doctor Who, I have also written a series of books on pop culture. I've written about the X-Files, written about Christopher Nolan. For the purposes of this podcast, I have written a book about Doctor Who for the Black Archives, which I'm going to assume listeners listening to a Doctor Who podcast may be familiar with or can glean the concept from the title. It's a collection of books published by Obverse Books. Obverse Books, apologies, where the writer tackles a single story. And the single story that I covered was Kill the Moon, which was not at all a controversial choice. <laughs> so yeah, that would be my kind of bona fides there. I've also reviewed a bunch of Doctor Who for my website, the movie blog, my own personal website. For the 50th anniversary, I covered as much of the show as I could in the time that I had. So I've reviewed, I think, about 
two-thirds of the entire run of the show on there. I do try to cover a lot of the episodes as they go live as well. I have not covered the Church on Ruby Road yet. But yeah, so that is my very long rambling justification for being here. I, I hope it's somewhat convincing. Yeah, we'll get some links in the show notes for your various outlets. Just send them to me when we're done and then I'll, I'll make sure I cover everything. What I meant by your Doctor Who credentials is more when you started watching it. Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry. For me, it was from the 2005 era. Isaac, you were from the 80s or the 80s. Oh, airing Doctor Who. You weren't watching them in the 80s. From 1999 when they okay. did Doctor <laughs> Who Evening and then went back and watched VHSs of mostly like 4th and 5th Doctors. I was going to say, Isaac's skin regime must be incredible. <laughs> 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 I was like, oh yeah, I was going up in the 80s. He's regenerated. Yeah, regenerated a couple of times. No, yeah, I watched them in the... I just missed the movie and then the BBC did a Doctor Who night for 1999, I guess because it wasn't any news because it's not a specific date or anything. It's just they did a night and they did some repeats on BBC Two, I think. So I started watching from then. And for me, it was just the revival era pretty much. And I saw, I think, the odd Tom Baker episode on UK Gold when I was young maybe. And I've seen Genesis of the Daleks. I actually went out and found that and looked at it because I was interested enough. So my Doctor Who knowledge is, in terms of how long I've been watching it, is far less than the other two of you. And I'm hosting. So there we go. Sorry, I realized that just made me sound incredibly pretentious. I was like, my qualifications are I've written a book. (laughs) No, it's all good. I've Fell in love with the show when it came back. I would have started watching live during the first Tenet season, which is season two of The Revival. I began feeling kind of curious. Again, one of the benefits, benefits inverted commas, of the relatively short British television season is that it means Doctor Who isn't on a lot of the time. So that provided me with an impetus to go back and to buy the wonderful DVD range. And I will shout out the way in which the BBC have preserved the history of Doctor Who is fantastic. So I went back in and I delved into the classic, you know, the grey clamshell DVDs that they used to release. And I kind of explored the show's history in that way. That's kind of how I came to it. But their preservation of the show wasn't great before they started doing that. Yeah, yeah. There's maybe a reason why the people who preserve Doctor Who are so conscious of preserving it well now. But yes. (laughs) This will never be popular. Let's just tape over it. That seems like a good idea. Videotape is a a finite resource, Craig. You only have so many cassettes. So many warehouses. Yeah. There's a whole history of television being destroyed. What was the name of the company in New York where when they got purchased, rather than store the existing programs, they arranged to have them dumped in the middle of the Hudson because it was cheaper. It's an entire tele. It begins with D. I'm very sorry. I should have known this off the top of my head. But I remember reading about how, as part of the acquisition process, they were like, yeah, but the library is too expensive to preserve and maintain. So they literally hired a bunch of Teamsters to show up at 6 a.m. with gigantic dump trucks, load the library into it, load the lorries onto a barge, drive the barge into the middle of the bay, and just dump it over the side. That is how respected television is as a medium. And now the modern version is Disney just deleting a season of Willow and nobody's allowed to watch it anymore. Yeah. Warner Brothers just decided not to release it. Somewhere in the Hudson, there's a load of fish that are really into 60s TV. (laughs) (laughs) Just found all these tapes. Oh, that show's amazing. Yeah, when the fish take over, that's why they want more of that show. When the sea devils turn up next, like, more of this. (laughs) What happened? We can't find episode six. Have you got it? It's almost an episode. Well, Futurama basically did it, didn't they? They did the TV signal beams out into space, and then the last episode never gets aired, and they come and invade because they want to know the end. Oh, I thought you were about the lost city of Atlanta. No, no. Why can't you be the other kind of mermaid, the one with the fish part on top? (laughs) Anyway, we digress. Sorry, apologies. I think I started it. It's all good. Okay, let's just do a quick rundown of what we thought of the 60th plus Christmas without spoiling. We'll get into spoilers shortly. Isaac, why don't you start? What'd you think? Are we doing all three? Are we doing just the 60th? 60th plus Christmas. 
plus Christmas. I'm just being technically accurate because this Christmas special wasn't part of the 60th anniversary. It did air during the 60th anniversary. Year. It was very close. Oh. But close yeah. So in terms of the 14th Doctor section, there was one very good one, one really bad one, and one that was pretty fun. Not in that order. And then the Christmas one was more exciting because it was more of seeing what's sort of coming ahead. Obviously, anniversaries don't really show the potential for what's happening next. We don't meet any new people. It's just sort of a love letter to what's come before, whereas what I enjoyed more about the, the Church on Ruby Road was this is the vibe going ahead. So that was quite exciting to see, especially so quick. This is the fastest sort of turnaround we've had. You know, usually you get you get like Matt Smith or Peter Capaldi turn up and you're like, I've got to wait a year to see what this guy's like. What are they going to wear? What kind of person they are? And then Shuti Gatwa comes up and then next week you're like, oh, it's just it's here. <laughs> you have no wait time between doctors. It's just like, yep, yeah, 40 doctors gone. New ones in. All the waiting was front loaded, wasn't it? It was about a year gap between Power of the Doctor and then this. It's been a bit. It's like binging the old ones, kind of. We're just like, oh, yeah, new one. Great. Next. <laughs> but yeah, no, I thought it was really fun. Nice sort of Christmas special. Nothing too grand or serious. Just sort of a goofy, fun, magical adventure. I really enjoyed it. Cool. And we'll get into more detail shortly. Darren, what were your thoughts? Without spoiling, remember. I really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was a really great year. I'm going to put my cards on the table. I love Doctor Who. I love its long history. I've had a very tumultuous relationship with the recent five years of the show, the Chibnall era. And I think that what was immediately reassuring about these episodes was the fact that, as Isaac said, I would maybe disagree with that. I don't think there was a really bad one. I think there were two fairly decent ones and two really good ones of the set of four that we're talking about here. But I think that even with the fairly decent ones, it was just nice to be sitting in the hands of Russell T. Davies, where you could have conversations between characters that obviously served clear narrative functions in terms of moving the plot forward, but were just fun to watch and to listen to. It was kind of engaging and exciting exciting in a way that, to me personally, the show hadn't been for a while. And I think that's what I kind of loved about these four episodes taken as a group, is that it did feel interesting and exciting and fun again. I think Isaac's entirely right. Anniversary specials are inherently backwards looking. They mark anniversaries, how far you've come. I do think there was something interesting, and we'll talk about it with spoilers, in terms of what Davies determined to be the things that he wanted to celebrate about the history of the show, the parts of the past that he brought into the present. I think that's very informative. I was very interested in it. I found it much more engaging than what he could have done without getting into spoilers, and I'm sure we'll talk about those as we get on later. I found that really fresh. And also to Isaac's point, I will also acknowledge I was sceptical going into these. Not because I don't like the leads of these. I'm not entirely sure what counts as a spoiler. Is saying that the two actors who are credited leads in the 60th anniversary special, does that count as a spoiler? No, it's more the content of the episode. Okay. Anything that was well publicised up front is, is fine. It's up for grabs. Okay, so the fact that David Tennant and uh, Catherine Tate were coming back. I love those two actors. I think the fourth season is a highlight of the show. I think it's beloved for a reason. But I was also a little bit sceptical about the inherent nostalgia of, well, look, your favourites are back. Here's a reminder of when the show was the most watched thing on British television. The first time that Doctor Who ever topped the weekly ratings in the UK, I believe, was for the broadcast of Journey's End at the end of the fourth season, which feels like it was a statement of intent for Davies, taking this show that had been cancelled due to dwindling ratings in the late 80s and turning it into the biggest thing on television. And part of me was inherently sceptical when he announced that he was coming back for the 60th, along with Tennant and Tate, that this was just going to turn into an empty celebration, a reminder of these things that you used to like. You will be 12 years old again, this show promises. And I think 
to Davy's credit and to the credit of the show, as Isaac said, while there was certainly a lot of nostalgia there, there was also a sense of forward momentum. I think what I really loved about these was, as Isaac said, the boom, 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 three weeks with Tenet and Tate, and then two-week gap. And all of a sudden, the next era has begun. That this was an incredibly concentrated dose. It wasn't spread out over the course of a year. We didn't spend a year wallowing in nostalgia for the fourth season of the revival. Instead, it was like, this is a runway that will get us to the new era. The eye is always ahead. We are always aware that we are just prepping for what is coming. This is a way to garner a bit of attention, celebrate what has been, hopefully attract a bunch of viewers who maybe drifted away from the revival in the past five or so years, to win them back and to bring them back on board so that we can just jump into what is coming. So yeah, I think that is kind of my my overall encapsulated thoughts on these specials and the revival, which is, I really like them. I think that even the ones that weren't great of the four of them were still incredibly entertaining, exciting television that made me more excited for what lies ahead than what was behind. And I think that is the best feeling that you could have coming out of an anniversary for me. Cool. It was actually a bit of a truncated Davy season with the specials. Yes. The beginning is, it's fine, it's setting things up, what are we looking forward to next? Then in the middle, there was something really great. And then the finale was a total mess in a lot of ways, which we'll get into. And then the Christmas special, I love the characters, the new Doctor and new companion, but I thought the episode itself was a bit average and lacked a decent villain and was just kind of there. Was a Davies era Christmas special to your yeah. point about this being a truncated Davies season. That was very much a Davies Christmas special. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, Russell T Davies is back and hasn't changed a great <laughs> deal in some ways. In some ways, yes. In other ways he has, but in some ways he's a lot of the same of what he was before. Yeah. Big blockbuster doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. That's Davy's MO, or it became his MO. Just go with it. Don't try to understand it, just feel it. Yeah. I have mixed feelings about that, but we'll get into <laughs> it. But that's my truncated thoughts on it. Very brief. Most of what I'll say will be in spoilers, which we can go into now. And people aren't watching, but I do have a prop that I can use for the spoiler <laughs> section. I have a toy sonic screwdriver that should hopefully batteries in it. So I can hopefully make a noise live that everybody will hear. So let's see if this works. Did that work? Ooh, you've unlocked the spoiler zone. It wasn't deadlock sealed. You turned off my recording. I don't think that's a toy. Where did you buy it from? <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly I made Isaac's recording work for once. You just wiped my PC. <laughs> it's a Moffat-era browser history joke to be made there, but I think I'm a bigger man. The kettle turned on in the kitchen and all that stuff. All sorts of weird stuff happened in the flat during that brief moment of sonic screwdriving. If this was a Moffat-era one, he would have also made a joke about you being the bigger man. <laughs> 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 oh dear but it's not a Muffet episode so don't worry about it. <laughs> anyway 60th anniversary the long awaited perhaps for some return of Russell T Davies that in itself was a bit of a bizarre turnout for the books I don't think anybody would have saw that coming usually when people leave a show they just don't come back that's it they pass on and then they give it to someone else and then that's them and now he's back it was clear the show was in trouble it almost got cancelled at the end of the Jodie Whittaker era. They were making Power of the Doctor pretty much because it was a centenary of the BBC and Doctor Who should be there representing. And after that, there was no plans until Davies and his production company decided to come into it. So let's just talk a bit about that. Do you think there's a bit of belief on the BBC's part that they want Doctor Who to be 
up there with the big sci-fi franchises, your Star Wars, your Star Treks, all that, and reclaim the glory that it had during the Tenant era. Darren, what do you think? I think the BBC's relationship with Doctor Who is rather complicated, in large part due to the fact that it is a public broadcaster, also in large part because it is tied to the politics of Britain at the moment, which are rather complicated and which I'm sure that we will inevitably get into when we talk about what Davies does immediately on taking control of Doctor Who. I think it is also a show that is remarkably hard to to produce. It is a show where succession has always been an issue. The Writer's Tale, if you have not read it, which is Davies' account of running Doctor Who in emails to Benjamin Cook, which is a fascinating read. It is incredibly candid. It is impossible to imagine any showrunner ever being as candid as Davies is when he writes in The Writer's Tale. But you get a sense reading that of how exhausting it is to do this, how draining it is to do this, how much of yourself that you put into doing it. The point where it feels like when you get to the end, he is running on nothing but caffeine and cigarettes. And obviously, Davies is lucky. He has Moffat, who is there to step in and take over. But when Moffat takes over, by Moffat's own account, he was planning to stay for, what, four or five years at max? And he ends up staying for seven, eight, depending on how you choose to count the gap between the two. Moffat ends up staying on because, I think in his own words, he didn't want to leave the show in the lurch. He also spends a lot of time looking for a successor, trying to convince somebody to sign on. By all accounts, Chibnall is quite reluctant to take over because it's an incredibly difficult job. You never have enough funding, you never have enough time, you never have enough support, and you inevitably become a subject of ban ire and public scrutiny by taking on this task. It is a thankless role. Obviously, Moffat ends up saying he ends up doing the 10th season of the show to buy Chibnall time to finish up Broadchurch before coming on to take over. And he does the Christmas special at the end of the 10th season when Chibnall's like, no, I can't launch with a Christmas special. And Moffat's like, fine, fine, fine. I've written the end of the season with a regeneration. I'll just cram an entire other Christmas special in here to do it. While the Chibnall era was ongoing, Chibnall has been quite candid. Himself and Whitaker apparently agreed at the outset they would do three seasons together, about five years, and they were always going to be out at that point. And there are these stories about how difficult it is to find somebody to run this show. Because not only do they need to be a good writer, not only do they need to be willing to do it, to have the enthusiasm and excitement for it, and Doctor Who is a bit of an esoteric taste, they also need to have the actual skill to have done it. You need to have already run a television show. It doesn't necessarily need to be of exactly the same scale, but you need to be able to demonstrate to the BBC that you can be handed the keys to this car and not crash it into a wall immediately. And there is a sense during the Chibnall era that there is no obvious successor. And there are a number of reasons for that. I think there's rumours that they tried to go to Sally Wainwright, who did Happy Valley, and she turned them down. Accounts of other contenders as well. One of the big issues, I think, is that Chibnall very consciously made a choice to courage and hire a new talent, which is very good. That's one of the better aspects of the Chibnall era's commitment to diversity, both in front of and behind the camera. But it does mean that he was working with writers who didn't necessarily have a lot of TV experience, and therefore there was no obvious apparent showrunner to emerge from the writing staff during his time on the show. There's also the unfortunate tragedy of the pandemic happening shortly after the broadcast of the 12th season before Flux, which means that Flux, first of all, has to be truncated, but second of all, is 
almost entirely written by Chibnall, with the exception of a couple of and credits on episodes. But Chibnall is credited on every episode of Flux, which also means that there's less chance to develop a successor, less chance to find somebody to take over. And I think you point to the moment of crisis, which is the power of the Doctor. The thing that strikes me about the power of the Doctor is that by all accounts, and again, nobody will ever know NDAs, privacy, all that sort of stuff, but by most accounts, as you said, Matt Strevens, the producer who worked with Chibnall on the show, was like, we wrote that not knowing that there would be a second half. We wrote that regeneration in such a way, and you can watch it when you watch the episode, the camera pulls back from Whitaker on that cliff, regenerating, covered in energy. And you could cut to black there, and that would just be the end of Doctor Who. Yeah, we discussed that, didn't we, Isaac? Yeah, you can read, because he put the scripts on BBC scripts, and in the script it just says, the Doctor regenerates hopeful for an unknown future, and that's how the script yeah. ends. And you can tell when they match the footage with 10, it doesn't match perfectly. He's very much on a green screen, and it's very clumsy. I suspect part of the costuming is part of that as well. I think Davies has said the costuming is also down to stuff around trans rights and stuff like that. The idea of putting a, a man in, in woman's clothing, particularly a woman who is much shorter than he is, the idea of being wary of putting that image on British television in the current climate, no how that would be perceived in the press and all that sort of stuff. Even though he did that in the same episode. Well, Chibnall did it in the same episode. (laughs) Yeah, it is interesting that you get to the point where it does seem like the BBC aren't willing to give the show the resources, budget and time that is necessary to run it properly, but also clearly see it as something that is obviously massively financially lucrative for them. So you end up with a situation where it really does seem like there are only maybe two or three people in the entire United Kingdom who can showrun Doctor Who. And Davies comes back and he basically outsources it to Bad Wolf, the production company that he works with, where they take over the day-to-day production of it, but also then manages to strike a distribution deal internationally with Disney Plus as well, which by my understanding of it, seems to have been Davies pushing for that more than the BBC pushing for that. And it does seem to be like that is Davies' attempt to ensure the security and safety of the show in the long run, which is moving a lot of the cost and effort of its production away from the BBC directly, kind of insulating it from the BBC. So I don't know if I would say the BBC don't value it. I would more say the BBC don't value it to the extent that it gets the resources that it needs. And that makes a great deal of sense, because if you are the BBC, you are spending taxpayers' money, you're particularly susceptible to press, you're particularly susceptible to politics. If you are the BBC and you go into a meeting and you're like, yeah, we spent God knows how much on this really expensive children's TV show that's competing with Star Wars, that's a lot harder to justify to the general public than, yeah, but we did it with a profit motive and we're earning enough off the back end to justify it. It's a very different calculation for a public broadcaster. Also, our budgets are way lower and ours looks way better than Star Wars for some reason. (laughs) Okay, that's a separate debate. We do not have time for that. That would be kind of my read on it. I think the BBC like the idea of it, but I think politically it is hard to justify giving it the support structure that it needs. And I also think it's an impossible show to run with those constraints. Yeah, so I think when you have Disney involved and Russell T Davies' production company and all that stuff, it starts to become about, well, how do we get this in at the same tier as things like Star Wars and Star Trek because it was a much lonelier atmosphere back when it was airing when it was at its most popular because Star Trek wasn't on, there was no Star Wars on, there was no other sci-fi stuff really to compete with or fantasy stuff or whatever genre you want to put it in but now there's tons and it's how does this scrappy little cheap show from the BBC or from the UK stand up against all these things and well the Disney recognition will be oh look it's on Disney I'll give this a go that kind of thing. It's an interesting time for it because from it going from we're almost going to bin this to we want this to be one of the biggest things in the world is quite a jarring shift, I think. 
I remember just being shocked when I saw that Davies was coming back. It was one of those, is this a fake article that someone's written just for a laugh? This discussing <laughs> film on Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> is this one giant freaking robot or one of those websites that just makes stuff up? Comicbook.com, a very reputable source. Thank you very much. Is this on The Onion? All these outlets that you read and you think, yeah, that's not happening. Is this on An Onion in the supermarket? <laughs> It's just mold. It just says RTD returning. It's like, that's just a coincidence. They just sculpted his face into it. It's very nice. He just gives you a wink from the self-checkout, like, don't tell anyone. People are seeing Jesus and tortillas and Russell T. Davies and onions. But in terms of bringing it back or beefing it up, I guess, it's quite transparent what Davies was trying to do. We'll bring back Tenant and Tate because they're super popular. Job number one is get our audience back. People want to see these actors interact they want to see these versions of the characters, or at least we think they do. Like I say, that was job one, get our audience back. We lost most of it. We need people to be watching this again, and then we'll take it into a brave new world. Plus, doing a 60th anniversary with a new doctor, that's quite scary for the new guy. A risky proposition. It is also worth knowing that this stuff comes together incredibly quickly as well. It hits the ground running. The story is, I believe, that Davies is confirmed while they're shooting The Power of the Doctor. I think it's in the final two weeks of shooting The Power of the Doctor. It's like, yep, the show is not being cancelled, which is an incredibly tight down-to-the-wire deadline. But they were produced before The Power of the Doctor aired, where there is a slight spoiler that a character who appears in the third of the 60th anniversary specials played by an actor returning from the 1980s 80s, films a scene with David Tennant and he's like, wow, it's great having you back after all these decades. And she's like, actually, I was in Power of the Doctor. And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I read that on the magazine. He's like, has it been like 30 years? She's like, I was filming last week, actually. He's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, oh, all right. That's the story is that it was during COVID. Obviously, they did all those specials. And again, remarkable work by the Doctor Who team. This is going to sound like I'm being unfair. I'm dismissing the Chibnall era. That's not what I'm doing here. That special, that COVID era broadcast in which Whitaker in her costume films in her closet that sequence telling children that everything's going to be okay. That is, for my money, the best piece of Chibnall era Doctor Who and one of the best pieces of Doctor Who ever made. The way in which the production team reacted to the pandemic and found ways to use the show to make it more comfortable and more manageable for fans of all ages, particularly children who are going through something dramatic, was incredible. But it was during the watch-alongs. Davies had scripted some stuff and he'd recorded some stuff with Tate and with Tennant. There is an animated short with Tennant that was produced as a companion piece to one of the watch-alongs. And basically, they were emailing back and forth during these Twitter watch-alongs, and he was like, we should just do this. We should just make new Doctor Who and this is over. And apparently the reason he got in touch with the BBC was, so would you guys be interested in us doing something? It could be a special of some kind. We could do like a tie into the 60th anniversary. Myself, Tate and Tennant are just hanging out. And the BBC was like, how would you like to run the show again? <laughs> that is apparently how it came about. So it does seem like the Tate and Tennant stuff really came together very quickly, which is incredible. And arguably, if the pandemic hadn't happened, they would maybe have never come back because David Tennant seemed to get the taste for it again, didn't he? Yeah. By rewatching what he'd done and thinking, yeah, I wouldn't mind having another go at this. Why not? I also think if the pandemic hadn't happened, we'd be in a very different situation with flux and stuff like that. I think viewership would be very different. I love that we're like, if the pandemic didn't happen, Doctor Who would be very different. The rest of the world would be exactly <laughs> the same, but the history of Doctor Who would be very, it's kind of incredible. I think it's impossible to imagine what things would be if that hadn't happened. My most wanted Doctor Who thing is, and I, I hope Chris Chibnall does it, if he writes a novelization of the original Flux plan, because it was originally 
was it the 10 series and then Jody Whitaker would end on that one either a special or however I think after he left or before while they were doing their specials there was an interview with him and it's just the amount of backup plans upon backup plans and the characters that were introduced just in case another character got sick or like the way they separated them and you had to chop it down and I'd love to read if you made it in a big novelization okay here's what flux was just to be able to compare this is the original plan would you want it to be the original plan with captain jack in it or <laughs> or not keep vinda yeah <laughs> what i would say though to the chibnall thing we're talking about the davies era we're talking about davies too here but to chibnall's credit for all my skepticism of the era he is a remarkable manager of logistics he is a remarkable line producer for the show in terms of just dealing with that imagine you're producing a show and you're told oh by the way there's a deadly disease on no two actors can be in the same room at the same time you have to worry about all this sort of stuff the regulations mean that it's going to cost twice as much you're going to have to use a lot of green screen it's worth noting that chibnall's era is the only era of the show where the lead actor did not either a quit in frustration at the health and safety violations taking place on the set b require i think specific knee and back surgery if i'm not mistaken i believe Tennant required back surgery towards the end of his run while he was doing hamlet and i believe that both Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi required the same type of knee surgery due to the amount of physical activity. Now, to be fair, we know the story with Smith wanted to be a footballer before having a knee injury, so it's possible his knees were already. And obviously, Peter Capaldi is an older gentleman anyway. But still, it's remarkable that Chibnall managed to weather the pandemic while still seemingly maintaining a healthier dynamic for his lead actors on set. So just to single out, if I say anything mean about the Chibnall era later on, want to acknowledge, deserves a great deal of respect in terms of just logistics and line production on the show. The only physical thing that Jodie Whittaker had to deal with was pregnancy. Pregnancy. But also the fact the show was able to work around that, which is, again, another testament to the line production, the skill involved in that, to Isaac's point. Was Matt Smith's knee injury where he got all that vampire blood? So... <laughs> The documentary movies. <laughs> <laughs> I remember with David Tennant, he's getting wheeled around in the end of time part two, and that's because of the surgery thing. He was recovering and couldn't run. We inflict the back injury on the person who has to wheel you. <laughs> that just gets the sense in which this is an insane thing. As somebody who covers film and television, nobody should make film and television. <laughs> nobody should make Doctor Who. It seems impossible. So fair play to all those who do. Yeah. So let's get on to the Star Beast then, which is the first of our three... 60th anniversary specials that was the one that aired the weekend of the 60th anniversary although not on the 60th anniversary itself the 50th just happened to be a saturday but the 60th didn't so it's just the way it is we've already talked about the return of david Tennant and Catherine tate and no time is wasted in terms of forcing them back together it's literally two minutes and then there they are they're back together and stuff is happening i was actually quite pleased with how quickly that happened. The Doctor comes out of the TARDIS, seems happy for a little bit, and then stumbles onto Donna. It's very much the, oh, the universe keeps forcing us together type explanation, but it was good. I'm not going to talk about the character video game creation recap thing that was just awful. For each episode, before we get hard into it, Starbeast, yay or nay? Starbeast, I thought was okay. There's some really great stuff in it, and some stuff that feels like a lot of hand-waving going on. <laughs> but... I liked it, generally. What about you, Isaac? That's the one I really disliked. That's the one you really disliked? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh no. <laughs> this episode is like, I was like, oh no, oh. Okay. <laughs> oh, this is... <laughs> 
Oh, interesting. I had the giggle down on my predictions there when Isaac was like, one of them was fine, two of them were pretty good, one of them was awful. I was like, okay, that's the giggle. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm going to readjust my predictions here. I am a yay on the star piece. I think this is the weakest of the four we're going to be discussing. So I don't know how strong a yay I am, but when this hit the ground running, I was like, we're back. We are so back. I have not felt this way about an episode of Doctor Who since Twice Upon a Time. I was just on board immediately. And if this is what the average quality of Doctor Who is from here on out, that's fine with me. One of the things I liked about it is we have a lot of nostalgia going on in franchise media at the moment. It seems to be so much of it is just, here's that thing you liked, but here's it again and not as good. Whereas this, it's, here's that thing you liked, but here's how also these things have moved on. So the Doctor acknowledges the lives that he's had since he was last David Tennant. Donna's moved on, has a daughter. And let's not think about the timeline where Yasmin Finney's supposed to be like 14 years old or something like that, which doesn't really work. <laughs> There's a very confusing flashback in this. There's a bit in the middle where it flashes back to the wedding, and then it has another scene where Yasmin Finney's wearing a summery dress. Just like, here's a shot of her daughter. I was like, are they saying that she was at the wedding? That was like 15 years ago. Anyway, it was a very confusing scene. Wibbly wobbly timey wimey. <laughs> yeah, I think it was just a shot of the flashback, here's the wedding, and then here's the daughter. And I think I just assumed it was the same scene, and they were like, oh, here she is at the <laughs> wedding. I was like, that can't be right. That was ages ago. She has Isaac's skincare regime. <laughs> yeah, she has my skincare regime. It's all that time lordiness that she has, perhaps. I don't know. But it felt like the episode was focusing more on how these people were different rather than how they're the same. And that's something that I thought put it ahead of a lot of nostalgia-driven franchise stuff. I think it was good just to acknowledge that. Here we are back together, but we're not the same people we were back then. And then they have the reminiscing. And well, the fact that Donna is meeting the Doctor for the first time for much of the episode is a really good vehicle for exploring how everybody has changed. Because everybody has to ask questions again. It's not that, oh yeah, it's you again. And We'll just pick up where we left. You remember that time we did that thing with the thing with the other thing? It's just like that. Remember when I almost killed you? Right from the off, I thought, this is kind of messy. I'll do the way around. <laughs> he turns up, he's in Camden. Donna's like, oh, thanks for helping me with these boxes. My daughter works in the shop over there and she likes making toys. And is that a spaceship? And we have to get in this car. I know a road that <laughs> no one else knows. And it's just a normal road. He's like, I know roads taxi drivers don't. And then the next scene is just driving down a back street. I was like, this is just vomiting out speed, speed, speed and stuff. <laughs> It maybe doesn't help that you saw the recap scene as well, because all of that gives you the same information. So if you skip oh, the yeah, recap scene, that. then you're fine, I think. That's well, the Disney money went in. That <laughs> Isaac, to your point, though, like it's funny you should say that, because that is actually what got me on board with this episode incredibly quickly. And this is where I balance the nice things I said about the Chibnall era by being very mean in a quick drive-by way. What I remember watching The Woman Who Fell to Earth, which is the first Chibnall era episode, and I remember the deep feeling in the pit of my stomach of the, oh no, we're in for a long one with this one, is when that opens, and it opens by cross-cutting dramatically between a whole bunch of stuff that is happening in a number of very dramatically different locations, most of which have no bearing whatsoever on the actual plot of the episode, just so the episode can keep plotting. So you have the weird thing with the guy in the warehouse with the giant bowl. You have Salad Man, who's in there for some reason, and all this sort of nonsense. But it's all just so the episode can keep cutting across characters so that you don't have to spend any time with any of them, so there don't have to be any dialogue exchanges with them. And what I really like 
not to put too fine a point on it, but Davies and Moffat are both writers who are phenomenal with dialogue and exposition. They're very good at getting what you need in front of you incredibly quickly in a way that is fun. Chibnall's strengths do not lie in that direction. He is a much more procedural writer. Broadchurch, Law and Order UK, all that sort of stuff. And I think what I really loved about this is that this opens, gets you immediately into the scene of the action, but it gets you there with scenes that are surprisingly long. Each of those scenes lasts about one or two minutes and they are continuous and they involve the characters bouncing off one another and talking to one another. That scene in the taxi cab is one that I absolutely loved because not only does it get you the necessary plot logistics of the doctor gets to the crash site, it also gets you the doctor gets to meet Sean, the doctor gets to catch up with what is happening with Donna, you get to find out what happened to the money, you get the implication that Donna, even though she can't remember what has happened, has carried over some of the doctor's personality, but you also just get Davies writing human beings in human being situations, riding in a taxi and talking like actual people talk. That little quick exchange about Neris. I heard it from Neris. Oh, how's she doing? Oh, she's good. Even after the crash. Oh, well, not so good. Well, it was her fault. Oh, she's, she's been okay. Even that quick exchange is funny, insightful, and playful in a way that Doctor Who, for me, hadn't been for the previous five years. And I, I'm willing to forgive a lot of that. Even though I'm immediately like, okay, Davies is clumsily setting up. I need to know that Rose is sending stuff to a woman in Abu Dhabi because that's going to be some big reveal next year. I probably need to be aware that the man who sold her the googly eyes has a goatee and looks like a drain pipe. That feels like we're setting up some sort of master cameo at some point in the future. And the episode really hammers the fact that her daughter's name is Rose and the doctor's like, wait, wait, what? Two people can't have the same name. In London, as well, in one of the most populous cities in the world. I was kind of like, I trust this. It's done in a way where it is hammering me, but it is aware that it is hammering me and it is trying to make the hammering as pleasant as possible. That is kind of my experience of those opening minutes, I think. Another one of those, she's a toy maker. That doesn't come up later. <laughs> That's got no link to what happens like two weeks down the line. I was like, surely this has to be, no, just by chance. It's just a thing. So some of the stuff where they do mention like, mysterious men with goatees is like, well, that could be a thing, but yeah. I can't tell how much stuff is just sort of saying the bits I did like of this are when people are having family chats and stuff. And I think the main issue I have this one is... So I was looking up the Star Beast, the original, adapted from a comic. Yes, the comic book, the Mills and Wagner and yeah. They credited the writers of the comic, which was nice, because yes. sometimes they wouldn't in adaptations that are trying to be loose. A Bill Finger situation. <laughs> yeah, I think that Will Cooling has made the very astute observation that Davies covered a lot of this ground back with Smith and Jones, <laughs> right down to the seemingly cute, innocent monster. There is something very cool. I do like that Davies has acknowledged this, and I do think that ties into the 60th anniversary stuff, right? Because you mentioned the difference between this and nostalgia, and this and a lot of the modern franchise nostalgia stuff. And I think what I don't like about so much of the modern franchise nostalgia stuff is that it is, hey, it's this thing that you remember that was massively popular presented to you in a way that reminds you of how much you loved it when it was massively popular. So we're going to get the entire cast of The Next Generation together for the third season of Star Trek Picard, and they're going to play poker like they did in that scene that you like. <laughs> Before we move off the nostalgia thing and the 60th anniversary thing, what I like about these is that Davies seems to be celebrating the entire diverse history of Doctor where he is celebrating a comic that was published in the early 80s in Doctor Who magazine. 
scene by bringing it into continuity, by referencing it, by dragging a character from the comics into live action. That, to me, is much more interesting than, oh, by the way, we got Colin Baker back and he's wearing a bad wig. It's much more interesting to go, the history of Doctor Who includes comics. It includes, it's probably not too much of a spoiler to say that the third of these specials revolves around a character who does not exist in video footage anymore, whose episodes were deleted from the BBC archives. And I like that Davies' view of this is an anniversary celebration, we're celebrating the history of Doctor Who, is so encompassing that, to Craig's point, it includes going, yeah, the history of Doctor Who includes Pat Mills, it includes Wagner. This is what we're celebrating. This is what's important to us. I was looking up the issue, it was eight issues along eight weeks of Doctor Who, I think it's the comic or the annual is it like one page a week or something like yeah. that? For, yeah. Well, I think there's way too much of it. <laughs> this episode, as I know we discussed when we discussed Power of the Doctor, we had the same problem. There's too much distractions. There's too much stuff. Because you have to do the whole comic, all these elements of the comic, which are originally just a cohesive story. And then you also have the Donna stuff and you also have the new Doctor stuff. So there's so much elements going on in it that I think that one of the reasons I don't like this one is the stuff I do like is drowned out under so much extra things going on. I mean, we'll get into spoilers, but sort of think about the general story. You could streamline a lot. There's a whole race you could cut from this. You don't actually have to have that. You know, it's integral in the book you're adapting but in terms of you've got an hour and there's a lot going on as well as this the stuff you can kind of trim i think just including all of it made it for me i remember feeling all the way through on my initial watch i was like this is hard to continue and then when watching it again to properly take it in as itself i'm like no this is really sort of bothering me just how much constant sort of frantic <laughs> thing it can't just stop great scenes like in the taxi or when they're making tea and we meet in Donna's family and how they've gone. It's snippets in between garbage. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel, Isaac. <laughs> Darren, do you have a counter to that or an agreement with that or anything? I mean, obviously, taste is, is entirely personal, so I'm not going to disagree with Isaac that he doesn't <laughs> like the show. I quite like that myself, I think, just because I like the forward momentum of it. I like the excitement of it. I actually thought the plot itself was relatively straightforward. Craig made the point this is a Davies era premiere. It absolutely is a Davies era premiere. We joke that it's Smith and Jones. It is very transparently Smith and Jones. But I thought that it was very straightforward. The idea of there's a cute alien, but the cute alien turns out, I assume you're listening to this, you've seen the episode or you've read the comic we're in spoilers anyway. we're in spoilers anyway so it's a cute alien that turns out to be a galactic despot and the punchline is that the seemingly monstrous aliens are actually good guys underneath it all that's devil in the dark stuff that's basic sci-fi stuff it's easy enough to follow along and a lot of the episode is just running from a to b to z with character interactions along the way I actually quite liked how plot light this episode was. I thought this episode was quite light in terms of plot, where the only scenes you really need are the Meep shows up, the Meep ends up meeting Rose, the Worth show up, the Doctor flees the Worth, they end up back at the ship and the Meep turns out to be evil. Those are really just five basic beats and then you get to the climax. And along the way, you have Davies-type interactions with people, where you have things that he is setting up for later use. Obviously, like Shirley Bingham, for example. She is a character who feels like she's being set up for stuff down the line, and she does obviously come back in the giggle as well. I thought it was very light on its feet. I thought it was very nimble. My criticism, if anything, was that it could probably have had a bit more plot. But given how plot heavy a lot of the Chibnall era ended up being, I was quite refreshed just to have a very, this is a meat and potatoes episode of Doctor Who, and our focus is going to be character. Our focus is going to be character interactions. It's 
the small things I actually loved in the episode, and it's stuff that I'm sure you could point out, you could cut from this and you would lose nothing in terms of plot. The little kid with the glasses who meets Rose in the alleyway and is there with the meat, but he's watching the Worth running down the street a firefight with Unit. Plot-wise, that kid doesn't need to be there. He serves absolutely no fun. A lovely bit of trivia about that kid. Go for it. I can't remember the surname of that family. They're the family that are getting deported in Turn Left. Ah! It's the same name, so they've brought back, obviously in the dystopian future, they're getting shipped off to... Oh, the most Italian dude ever. Yeah, that's that family. Didn't they live in Leeds? (laughs) Because everyone's obviously been evacuated from London in that story, so they just sort of hold up wherever. But in the Mm. correct history, they are still neighbours. And their kids are still friends and stuff, which I thought, that's a lovely little detail. What that gets at for me is the shot of a kid looking out his window onto a normal suburban street and seeing these weird insect men running down the street, firing their blasters at cool soldiers. And I'm like, yeah, that's Doctor Who. That image, more than the story beat, the mechanics you have to get there, a kid looking out their window in wonder and seeing aliens, that is the magic of Doctor Who right there. A more efficient script would just cut that out. That character would not exist in the edit. But, and I'm sure we'll talk about it when we talk about Wild Blue Yonder when we talk about the giggle that image for me is kind of like oh I see what Davies is doing here where there's this emphasis throughout the serials on characters looking and watching and observing it's little touches like that which I I really liked I actually just found it nice to sit with these characters I agree it's not an incredibly tightly constructed piece of television it's not a ruthless engine of storytelling it is to my money the weakest of the episodes that we'll be discussing here but I really just found it very charming and reassuring that if this is the baseline, if this is the floor for Doctor Who now for the next couple of years, I'm good with that. The whole meep thing is something that the marketing ruined to some extent because this is based on a comic that was out, whatever. And then if you look up the story <laughs> of that comic, it's, the meep seems like a good guy, but is actually evil. So if you're watching the episode with that in mind, you're just sort of waiting for the Doctor and Donna to catch up with you because you already know. I feel like it was a pretty obvious anyway because we're 10 minutes in and nothing's happened. If I was sort of trimming this down, trimming some of the adapted stuff down, I think you could get rid of the Wrath Warriors and just have this very cute meep character that Donna and everyone knows. And then the Doctor arrives and is like, oh, it's that guy. I think you could have the Doctor come in and be like, that's where the evil bit could be. And once the Doctor <laughs> shows up, he's like, oh yeah, we've met. We met as Tom Baker like a couple of days ago. But then you wouldn't have the big expensive firefight in a London street. The meep could still take over the unit soldiers. And I think also there was a lot where the meeps weren't evil, but they became evil because their son was psycho. The psychedelic son. The psychedelic son. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> We're not going to meet any of these meeps. Just have him be awful or the meat not him <laughs> it could just be an awful little thing just be mm. a little weird mean little rat he doesn't have to have a psychedelic son it could just be a bit like i can just take over these guys and they can shoot london up and stuff can the doctor go and fix that son now that he knows about it counterpoint though the phrase psychedelic son is just great and <laughs> if you have an opportunity to include the word psychedelic son in your script and don't you are failing as a writer <laughs> but to isaac's point this is the thing where i think Not that I'm disagreeing, because you're entirely right. You could cut the worth from the story and would lose very little. I think that you take a step back, though, and you look at what Davies is doing. And this is why I think when Craig sent around notes, he was like, do you have anything that you think we need to include in this already very long episode? I was like, yeah, I think Destination Scarrow is something that we will talk about in various ways. I think 
including the worth in the episode is important because they look like silly Doctor Who monsters. Unapologetically, they look like goofy men in silly costumes. They look just a little bit ridiculous and silly and absurd in ways that I associate with Doctor Who and that I love about Doctor Who. And again, sorry to do a bit of kicking of the previous era. One of the defining issues for me of the Chibnall era was the attempt to kind of make Doctor Who serious, to make it more prestige which you could see in things like, say, the minimalist scoring, where we got away from Murray Gold and we got towards a more ambient wallpaper-type soundtrack for the show, and the push towards anamorphic lenses, the aspect ratio shift, all of which made the show look a bit more like a Netflix show looks, for example, like a streaming show looks. And I think that if you look at things like Flux, or even go back to stuff like Essential the Cybermen, where you watch the Chibnall era and you get this sense of Chibnall and incredibly talented, competent line producer, guy who knows how to make television in a mechanical sense, going, the only reason that Earthshock isn't a classic piece of television is because it looks a bit silly. If we could make Earthshock look like Star Wars, it would be a masterpiece of television. Where, like, the goal of Doctor Who is to present you with CGI armies of Daleks and Cybermen and Santarans marching across your screen in a photorealistic sort of way. And I think what I liked about Destination Scarrow, which is a comic relief special, but is continuity, about how great the Dalek plunger is. It is an origin story for the fact that the Daleks, the iconic enemies of Doctor Who, have a plunger as one of their arms along with the whisk gun. And if you go back to the Chibnall era, you will note that during the Chibnall era, with the exception of the power of the Doctor, every single Dalek does not have a plunger. They're given a claw. Every Dalek, including the retrofitted gold Daleks in Revolution of the Daleks, they have their plungers removed and they are replaced with claws because Doctor Who is serious business. And I'm like, no, I love Doctor Who very much, but Doctor Who is not serious business. And then you get to Destination Scarrow, where it's revealed that the plunger is back, baby. And the Warth, they are aliens that I do not believe would have appeared on screen during the Chibnall era. I don't think the Chibnall era would have done anything that looked as goofy and as silly and as much men in green rubber suits as the Worth. So I think their inclusion here, for me, felt like a kind of a statement of intent where Davies is like, yeah, we're back. We're back to the stage where I'm going to do things like put silly claw insect men on screen as part of Doctor Who. And our firefights aren't going to be gritty firefights between alien-possessed unit soldiers and other unit soldiers. They're going to be between reptile men with silly claws. That would be my counter-argument, as it were. I think it's just because this episode didn't really... You know, when you're sort of like sitting in a thing and you can't get into it and you sort of think of this, just how it sort of set out. Obviously, they show the Wrath Warriors in like a menacing way for like the bulk of the episode. But even then, they look kind of... Sit- like the scene where the little kid encounters two of them in an alley, I thought that was more cute than menacing. But they're still sort of, this is the invaders. Yeah, shooting yeah. up the streets and stuff. And you're kind of sort of like, essentially the, the sort of Jadoon from Smith & Jones. They're just space police. That was the least of the episode for me. The whole Meep story and all the elements that feed into the Meep story. And I think I would have actually liked it better if the Meep had been embraced by the noble family. And then the doctor storms in and is like, what are you doing? That's a murderous creature. <laughs> but I'm just imagining the Wrath doing standard police stuff door to door, just knocking <laughs> on it. It's like an eight foot <laughs> centipede. It's like, we've got this little... Have you seen this? Just to draw like a a wanted photo. (laughs) Excuse me, sir, miss, have you seen this? We have a a fugitive, we're just trying to find him. If you see anyone, call this number. We're parked in this big spaceship. (laughs) The war sketch artist with the crayon in his giant claw. Which I no, like. He's got like a retrofitted, it's just a massive crayon. It's just like a big shot. Okay, it just draws like a fluffy ball with two dots and a smiley. 
It's kind of hard. It's like, yeah, we're looking for this. Uh, We've got posters up in your local news agents. And <laughs> So your version of the story would almost be as a sequel to the comic strip, as in the Doctor's already encountered the Meep or Meep kind, and then wanders in and goes, these people are evil. Don't let them in your living room. What are you playing at? I was thinking, yeah, if you were trimming some of that, I mean, there's always space for nonsense, but there was a lot going on. This episode does suffer under there's a lot going on. Yeah, and then we had the sonic screwdriver drawing force fields, which I'm thinking... <laughs> That's too much. It's already an overpowered device. Yeah. Which we, we were saying, caught with Craig in the pub, we were saying like they draw the force fields and then run upstairs above the force field to get away from them. <laughs> Obviously, there's loads of space for nonsense and that's wonderful and stuff. But also, it just kind of felt, for me, a lot's going on and it was just all... The raw warriors are there because he had to look scary in the meep. It's his cute thingy. So obviously, we're discussing the real version and not what I do. Not my, how it should have ended Star Beast. It could have just sort of turned very south in the Donner household when the Doctor shows up. Yeah, well, I mean, part of analysis is trying to explore how it might have been done differently, and that's that's valid. I would have liked that, actually. I would have liked the, the Doctor to be the one saying, this thing's evil. The nobles are like, no, it isn't. Look at it. It's so cute. <laughs> yeah. So then... we've tracked this. The Meep's responsible for this many crimes across you know, the Shadow Proclamation have been looking for this thing for years or whatever sort of thing. While we're talking about the Meep, I like that Davies is almost immediate. Again, this is back to the Davies is still Davies fundamentally aspect of the episode, but I like that he is immediately like, oh, by the way, the Doctor does war crimes now, where for all the Meep is a transparent, very simple two-dimensional villain, the Meep is also the Doctor in that it is a creature with two hearts whose preferred pronoun is the, but also the fact that it presents itself as something cute, goofy, and lovable and invites itself into your life while also being capable of genocide at the slightest provocation. There's a wonderful moment when they do the, and again, very Doctor Who-y stuff where they do the trial in the parking garage where the Doctor is like, under the Shadow Proclamation, another Davies reference, we will stop this right now and there will be no further violence until I see fit, which is very much the difference between Davies' version of the character, Moffat's kind of fairy tale version of the character, Chibnall's space cop version of the character, where Davies' version of the character is, this character will kill you and everyone that you care about and feel very bad as he walks away in slow motion with a grimace on his face, but he will do it if you push him to it, where the doctor's like, look, not going to be any violence here until I decide who gets violence inflicted upon them. I like that Davies is immediately like, yeah, just so you know, I still write the Doctor the way that I write the Doctor, which is as a war criminal who is also inexplicably a hero of children's television. It's great. I kind of love that it's immediately like, no, my stamp is back on the show. It's interesting to see how the Doctor is differently characterised across the eras and how Davies parses that in, in a way you have that conversation he has with Shelley so he's like I don't know who I am anymore and all this has happened to me and I've regenerated a few times and now I'm back it's this person he doesn't know and he's just dumping on her it's the idea of the 10th doctor was very reluctant to share his feelings but the 14th he'll talk to anybody that happens to be in, in earshot he'll dump on anybody that happens to be nearby I find that quite an interesting little quirk and because you only have so much time with the 14th doctor it means that you can get all of that out there very quickly because he's willing to express it. You don't have to fight it out of him. You don't have to force him to talk about these things that are bothering him. He's just out with it. It's good, efficient stuff. I want to ask a question to yourself and Isaac here, actually. This is something I want to throw to the group. Do you see the 10th and 14th Doctors as fundamentally different characters in the same way that, say, the 11th and 12th are different or the 10th and 11th are different? Or do you see the 10th and 14th as being the same character? I see them as different because, like I said, I wouldn't expect the 10th Doctor to be as emotionally expressive as that but also he's similar because he's played by the same actor and the mannerisms are all there 
The way he runs, when he runs yeah. in the star base, I'm like, that's the 10th Doctor run. David Tennant's going to play the Doctor the way he plays the Doctor, isn't he? I mean, that's just the way it is. But there's subtleties in the way that he's written and the way that he expresses himself that make him different. It's almost like it's the 10th Doctor, but a bit more grown up yeah. after a number of years of experience, I guess. What about you, Isaac? How do you see them? It felt like they well, would have been a fun thing. Obviously, there's no space in the episodes to be shown. But to see the 10th Doctor and the 14th Doctor Pete, it's the same actor and the mannerisms and the David Tennantness of the Doctor is there, but there's so much more vulnerability and openness and consideration in 14. Self-reflecting compared to 10, and you still had a bit of the 9th Doctor aloofness, but with a bit more of a boyish joy and giddiness at saving the universe again. David Tennant's worked with Big Finish, so they'll probably pick that up <laughs> at some point. They'll do it. 10 and 14 team. <laughs> they, they can do the three doctors with the 10th doctor, the Metacrisis doctor, and the 14th doctor. You can do the three doctors just starring David Tennant as a one man show. It's incredible. Like when they did yeah. that with Jodie Whittaker playing three doctors that were all doctors. Very fair. <laughs> Although they were all the same doctor, really, whereas these were the same slightly doctor, yeah. different doctors. I think this 14th one, it's not 10.2. It's not in this body again. It is a whole new incarnation that just is repeating a face and a bit of a personality, but there's definitely more. It's one thing I really liked about our 14th version. Obviously, there's more of the 10th Doctor, but I think I preferred this more open and honest and reflective Doctor. There's one thing that a contributor who you don't know, Darren, Aaron always talks about in the context of marvel movies particularly you get writers that come on and think i don't care about what the person before me did i don't even need to in the case of say sam raimi i don't need to watch any doctor strange or wandavision to do my doctor strange movie i know better that's aaron's words not necessarily mine but that's the way he says it whereas davies has come on having clearly watched the eras in between his two eras and he respects them he's going to draw on things that the previous two showrunners played with and make them part of his run. So his 14th Doctor, played by David Tennant, is dealing with all the stuff that happened during the two eras that were between the two Doctors. And that changes his character, because it has to, because it's stuff that he ex didn't experience before and now has. We'll talk about it a bit more when we get to Wild Blue Yonder, but Flux is in his past, the Timeless Child is in his past, all that stuff. So there's all sorts of extra baggage that he has to carry around that the 10th Doctor didn't have, and that is going to change you. And the, the fact that Davies acknowledged that Again, it's part of the, how much have these characters changed since we last saw them? That's a big part of his return, I think. Yeah, and I think there is also a metatextual argument or reading to be made. The way that I see the 14th Doctor is, it's like Davies looking at what Moffat did, looking at what Chibnall did, and going, okay, I get a second shot at this, where the 14th Doctor, to me, reads a lot like Davies getting to do what Moffat did with the 11th Doctor on Trenzalore, with the 12th Doctor on Delirium, and going, actually, I can take this version of a character who was very broken, and fundamental to Davies' characterization of the Doctor is the Time War, the trauma of the Time War, the idea that he carries the scars around with him. Even in the 50th anniversary, Moffat characterizes the 10th Doctor as the one who regrets, as opposed to the 11th Doctor as the one who forgets. But this idea that Davies looks at what Moffat did in particular and also what Chibnall did and goes okay but then and not to get too spoilery but it is a major recurring motif of these three episodes established in this one the idea that maybe the 10th Doctor gets a respite maybe the 10th Doctor gets a happy ending maybe the 10th Doctor gets a world where he can slow down stop and be with his friends for me that's what the 14th Doctor really seemed like it seemed like Davies going but what if I get to revisit the end of the story that I wrote 15 years ago and I get to take 
the lessons that I and the show have learned in the intervening years and apply them and go, maybe my doctor doesn't need to be the lone wandering god who is a walking weapon of mass destruction who traumatizes everything in his path. What if he gets to basically go to therapy? What if he gets to settle down? What if he gets a happy ending? What if he gets a chance to fix the mistakes that he's made? Which is a nice segue into talking about perhaps the most controversial aspect of the Star Beast, which is the reversal of Donna's fate at the end of Journey's End. That was always going to happen, wasn't it? Yeah. The second you hear Catherine Tate's coming back, it's, we're not going to leave her with our memories gone and <laughs> stuff like that. We're going to yeah. undo that in some way. And there'll be a letter writing campaign to the BBC with a hundred people or something wrote a letter. That was less about reversing yeah, Journey's yeah. End and more but about connect- transphobia. Yeah. Yeah. The idea is Donna's back. She has a daughter now. This daughter is trans, so was once male and is now female. And well, it's a big deal and it's not, which I found interesting. Some of the stuff I really liked was, for example, Sylvia walking on eggshells around, just yeah. saying, you look gorgeous. Or should I have said that? I don't know. And I think all of us have experienced that in some way or another, where it's you meet someone who's non-binary and you accidentally use the wrong pronoun or something like that. Then you're corrected and then you move on. That's the way that rational people deal with it. But it's, it's the idea of this is new territory for everybody. We have to figure out the new language of interacting with this person because that's how they want to be seen. And we have to respect that. But at the same time, it's not going to be an immediate light switch. He to she is not going to be the easiest transition in the world because you're battling societal indoctrination for decades and things like that. You've seen things one way and seeing it another way. So the fact that Sylvia is struggling with it is something I immediately bought into because she would. Everybody would struggle with it, at least for a while. And it seems like it's a relatively recent development on that side. The friends from school are still dead naming her, yeah. Yeah. So I thought that part was really good. I really liked how that was brought in. That's what Davies is really good at, bringing in these relatable situations. Again, to contrast with Chibnall, where he did some social commentary about the internet going down. It's like, what are we going to do? We could talk to each other, which is actually quite a funny joke, but it's very surface level social commentary, isn't it? Whereas this is very real and deep social commentary, but done very quickly and simply, really. Not to jump too much into this, because this is something I have ear pegged for the giggle whenever we get around to talking about <laughs> that. But I do think there is a sense of Davies coming to Doctor Who and realizing the importance of the platform that is Doctor Who, where you are placed in charge of a show that is an institution of British television that is broadcast on prime time on a Saturday or sometimes Sunday evening that is part of the cultural conversation that has a long history and a global reach, and Davies treating that as something that deserves consideration and respect and thought. You mentioned the idea, we joked a lot about how this is still Davies, and the way that Davies scripts is always going to be the way that Davies scripts, and this is always going to be a Davies era opener, but when you hear him talk about the show, and even when you listen to him talk outside the show, and just about the state of Britain in general, I say, as an Irishman, and therefore potentially a loaded topic on a podcast. But you have this idea of Davies going, there is a responsibility that comes to me writing a show that is this popular, this successful, and in particular aimed at children. And I am very conscious of that. And again, this is the Destination Scarrow thing with the controversy over Davros, where he talks about the decision to present Davros outside of the life support unit or what is functionally a wheelchair, because he's aware of the cliches of the evil cripple. And you have tied to that the introduction of Shirley. And here, Shirley is introduced with the TARDIS is now wheelchair accessible. Slight spoiler for the giggle, we're going to talk about that later. But even the redesign at the end of 
of this where you have ramps instead of stairs is designed to make it more accessible. That is something I think Davies has talked about being down to meeting Tharys, the YouTuber who talks about Doctor Who, and Tharys just offhandedly mentioning that he could never get into the TARDIS because of the lip on it. And Davies actually thinking about that and going, that is something that we should fix. We should make it more inclusive. There's an absurd moment here where Shirley's wheelchair is revealed to have machine guns and rocket launchers <laughs> in it. It's goofy and it's silly, but you watch that and it's like, that is very clearly so that if there is a child in a wheelchair in a playground, they can play at being Doctor Who. You can't exclude them. It's the same logic behind the Sonic sunglasses or Peter Capaldi's refusal to have a costume, which is Capaldi wanted any kid with any dingy pair of sunglasses who couldn't afford to buy an official merchandise piece of Sonic screwdriver to be able to put on a pair of natty sunglasses and go, I'm the Doctor. To have a hoodie and go, I'm the Doctor. Then how much did the BBC charge for the uh, Sonic screwdriver toy for these specials? Yeah, that's it exactly. I find the way that Davies, and even if you watch the supplemental material, where Davies is talking about this stuff, what's the name? It's not confidential. What's the new Doctor Who show? Unleashed, where like he's sitting down with younger podcasters and asking them about things like, say, using Rose's dead name in the episode and whether or not that is the right way to approach it and saying, I don't know. I'm an older man now. This is past my generation, but I'm trying my best. There is something I really like about Davies doing this where he is foregrounding that stuff. And as clumsy as the resolution of this episode is, with the, again, very Davies era logic of, ah, yeah, I guess more, therefore, happy ending. As nonsense as that is in terms of plot, you still have a resolution on a piece of Doctor Who broadcasting in prime time on Saturday night throughout the UK in which a trans character is foregrounded and centred and made important and heroic and celebrated, which in the context of what is happening in British politics around trans issues, the way in which these people are normally portrayed and discussed, the ways in which politicians and public figures talk about transgender issues, is is hugely important and feels like it is Davies being cognizant of, at the risk of sounding very pretentious and self-important about a show in which, as I mentioned, the chief villains have one arm as a plunger, is actually important and actually has social value and actually has social utility. I think that's important. I think that's something that I absolutely loved about this episode, is that Davies was like, this is actually important for a show that is aimed at kids. I'm not going to put any subtext around this. I'm not going to hide it in the background. One of my big issues with the Chibnall era was that that was criticised by a lot of people, including Jeremy Clarkson, for example, for being being quote-unquote woke, which is one of those words where you're like, what does that even mean? Especially when Jeremy Clarkson says it. Yeah, but it's one of those things where it feels like having women and people of colour in it in general is enough to make it woke. Because if you watch the Chibnall era, that is one of the most quote-unquote apolitical eras of Doctor Who ever made. The Capaldi era ends with the Doctor decrying capitalism, refusing to bow before the monarch, calling the royal family a blight upon the back of the working man. And yet somehow that is quote-unquote less woke than the Doctor going, huh, space Amazon's pretty great. The systems aren't really the problem. Hey, King James, he was pretty cool, isn't that right? Graham, sit in the back of the bus there so Rosa Parks has to stand. All that sorts of stuff. It felt watching the Chibnall era that just having those people in that, having women in prominent roles, having people of colour, involving queer creators, queer actors, that was going to generate a backlash and a controversy. And it feels like Davies understands that and is just like, well, if that's the case, then we may as well just be open about it. We may as well just foreground it. Because for all that the Chibnall era was argued to be progressive, it 
really wasn't. It was surprisingly non-confrontational. It was surprisingly non-engaged. As you said, the height of political commentary during the Chibnall era was, well, the Wi-Fi's out, I guess we have to talk to each other. Whereas I like that Davies is like, no, actually, yeah, it isn't just I cast a transgender performer. It isn't just the character is transgender. The actual episode is going to acknowledge and weave it into the fabric of the text, the importance of this character being transgender. I thought that was important. I thought that was interesting. I think one of the things. It was a massive part of the episode and stuff, but there's still odd little things because obviously, say, Rusty Davis himself is a cis man. I'm a cis man as well, to be clear, yeah. He's wrote all three specials, so you can sort of write from one thing, but there's still bits of this that feel a little uncomfortable. For example, like in The Giggle, which we'll get to a bit later, but I'll bring it up now, the Doctor reveals, oh, this new TARDIS has an access ramp, and then doesn't it invite her in? <laughs> like, you can come in! You don't. You could. And then just leaves, and it's like, okay, well, now you can, but in theory, you can come in. In theory, you could. You'd be more than welcome, but you're not. You're getting the full companion experience. You could come in, but I'm going to ditch you in the end. <laughs> I'll be back in five minutes after I've had a bunch of adventures, and then I'll be yeah. in. And I think also with the, again, we're getting to the messy resolution of the Star Beast. There was some very unfortunate potential implications about Rose and her connection with the Doctor that aren't meant to be read in a certain way, but have been left open to be read in a very essentially dangerous way. Obviously, Rose is the daughter of Donna, and Donna previously was Dr. Donna. And the resolution of this is, oh, that's passed down through Donna into her daughter, so that's why. Her shed is a little TARDIS and stuff, and as much as I'm assuming it isn't what Rusty Davis implied when they're talking about how the Doctor can be anyone. Male, female, non-binary anyone. There is an awkward potential thing that Rose is influenced by the Doctor. She knows all these characters from the Doctor's past and stuff, and obviously that's not the meaning that her trans identity is around the more non-binary Time Lord thing. Because it's like, oh, it's all taken in from the Doctor. I think it's her line to about the, the Doctor could be sort of anyone, male, female, or neither, or both. I definitely know some people on Twitter reacting. They don't want to say this is down to an alien influence. No, it's just natural. Like, people are just trans people. So as much as making trans people a big part of the storyline, they don't want to make any sense of this is an unnatural thing. This is a sci-fi concept. And I think that was certainly online causing a lot of fuss. And I think myself, when it's part of your resolution, it's a little bit iffy to leave in any suggestion that Rose being Rose is anything but just because that's who she is. And it's weaved into the science fiction of the resolution as opposed to just being a human element. Well, Rose does directly state that before all this, I had no idea who I was. I was really uncertain about myself. And now I'm not. I'm fixed. I'm fully certain in who I am. But I think what Davies seems more focused about was drawing a connection between Rose and the Doctor in that they have identity uncertainty currently and they're working through that at a similar pace but yeah i do think that it does run the risk of rose is only trans because the doctor messed with donna when they were traveling together and now this is the end result of it it shouldn't have happened sort of thing and i mean that climax is clunky in itself it's the idea of you know you could have just let that power go and i was just thinking well was that an option last time couldn't donna have just done it then and she was a woman then so she would have known by her own logic there's also the gender essentialism of oh well men could never let power go but women could and i feel like this is at odds with how you russell t davies have written about margaret thatcher it's foreshadowed with the money as well. A man would never give away the money. Her husband is like, why would you yeah. do that? But she's like, no, I'm giving it away. And the really horrendous attempt at a joke in the giggle as well, which we'll get to, which was just <laughs> straight up racist. How did you let this in? 
we will maybe talk about that when we get to the giggle. I do think ignoring the clunkiness and the clumsiness of that, which is is very fair. It's a risk when you do stuff like that, and it's entirely valid to be criticized for it. And that's how you get better at it. You learn. You learn as you go, and you improve, and you pay attention. And I hope Davies is learning and going and paying attention. But I do think there is something interesting that this serial kind of just pins as a motif for what is going to be simmering through these three specials, which is the idea of power, letting go of power, and in particular, individualism, where throughout these specials, there's this idea of games. Obviously, the third one is the toy maker, but you have this idea of the win condition and the idea that power is something an individual holds. I like that even as early as the Starbeast, Davies is seeding this idea that actually, no, you don't hold on to power, you share power. And by sharing power, you kind of diffuse it. And I think, to Craig's point about Donna and what happened to Donna, I quite like that this is a post-Hellbent Doctor Who, transparently, where you can read Hellbent. You can read much of season nine as a response to much of season four, right down to the fact that season nine is bookended. It has the return of Davros at the start, and it has the return of Gallifrey and Scaro at either end of it in much the same way that the fourth season is built around Davros stealing these planets and trying to bring the Dalek Empire back. But you have this idea that Hellbent is built around the question of why the Doctor gets to make that choice for Donna at the end of Journey's End. Why he gets to choose and she doesn't. Why when she says she would rather die than go back to having her memory wiped, he gets to overrule her and make the decision and making it more democratic and accepting that the companion doesn't have to be subordinate to the Doctor. Because frankly, that's what the ending of all of Davy's seasons are. All of Davy's seasons end with this situation where the companion has to step into the role of the Doctor narratively. Where Rose has to open the TARDIS and stare into the vortex and take it into herself, where Rose decides that she's not going to be marginalised or sidelined and she's going to go back to London and stay with the Doctor forever. Or when Martha has to go and spread the word of the Doctor, or when Donna becomes the Doctor Donna. All of these Davies era finales come to the resolution that, no, the show is called Doctor Who. Get back in your lane. Learn your lesson. When you step into the role of the Doctor, there are consequences. So, when Rose stares into the vortex, the Doctor has to take that power into himself and regenerate, effectively dying and atoning for her sins. In the second season, when Rose presumes that she will travel with the Doctor forever, they end up separated across two different dimensions, because she can't be in the same space. Happens again in the fourth season. He sends her right back to the same dimension <laughs> and puts her back in her place. You're not supposed to be here. Here, you have a clone of me, if, if that's what you want. Yeah, take a photocopy of me. And then with Donna, you have that situation where Donna becomes the Doctor Donna just as skilled and capable as the Doctor ever was. And the Doctor goes, no, 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 no. You don't get to have that. You get to go back and you stay in your lane. Although at least Martha makes a decision for herself to yes. leave. She's the exception there. She gets to take control of her own agency and leave of her own accord. She does indeed. And I think that what's nice is that the Clara arc in Moffat's tenure, and it's something that Davies has written about at length, loving. Davies has written about how much he loves the character of Clara and what Moffat did with Clara, is that basically she is an equal to the Doctor and she is not punished for stepping into the narrative role. It looks like the story is going to punish her with her death wish 
face the raven, her death, all that sort of stuff. But in the end, the two of them accept that neither has the right to wipe the other's memory, and they go 50-50 on it, because they do it like they've done everything together. And I like that this ends with the idea of the problem with Journey's End was that nobody thought that they could share power. The ending of the Star Beast thematically, forget about all the techno-babble nonsense, the ending of it is that all that Metacrisis energy, the problem was that people assumed that one person had to hold it and channel it, and it was only fit for a single individual. And the moment that we accept that we can share power, it is distributed and it becomes less toxic, less corrosive, and less destructive. Just putting a pin in that is something that Davies is clearly working through in the remaining two specials as well. But I think that's a nice thematic resolution. Yeah, and the simple answer of letting it go, it just seems like, well, the answer is staring you in the face, but it's diluted slightly by the fact that, well, it should have occurred to Donna at the yeah. time then, because chronologically, she's only had an extra few seconds to think about it. <laughs> Because she comes back and it's, what, 50 seconds of life she has left or something like that. Yeah. And then she finds out, oh, no. And then the doctor's like, oh, it must have been passed down. Okay, that <laughs> makes sense. And then apparently you can just expel it without doing anything. Davies is still Davies. It's one of those things, accept the things you cannot change. I cannot <laughs> change the way that Davies structures his scripts. He will always be like, well, it's a good idea in theory, so I guess magical space doctor. What if we all get together, click our heels and wish really hard? Can we make the doctor fly like space Jesus? <laughs> and we, we didn't really need the line about, oh, a male presenting Time Lord would never think of this. I think the point was well made without that. The gender essentialism. Yeah. yeah. That is very much the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe School of well-intentioned but incredibly clumsy gender <laughs> essentialism. Man, women are great. Women are great. And you know what's great about women? How precisely they are women in ways that I dictate that they are women. <laughs> Me as a male writer. That's a conversation we had, Isaac, offline once. It was about Davies should let people that have that life experience write these things. Yeah, it's like the Chimney It wasn't so much of an on-screen progression, but all of that was in the writers and directors' rooms and stuff. So that's why you did get episodes that were like Demons of the Punjab and stuff, where people were sort of like, here's a, another view that people want to write about. Yeah, we did have that conversation. Yeah, and one thing that really annoys me about the climax is when the five-mile radius or whatever it is is devastated by the ship, and then <laughs> the Doctor turns it off, and the damage is reversed. The streets knit back together. Again, Prime Davies. It's, it's like the year that never was, where everything rolls back to just after the assassination of the US president, but there are no consequences whatsoever. <laughs> Except Obama becomes the next president somehow. Somehow. This is all prime Davies era stuff. Again, in some ways he has changed, in some ways he has not changed. We'll get to that with the giggle. The giggle is full of this stuff. I saw a thing brought up in another podcast about like the size of London and its square mileage. How big in square miles do you think London actually is? Ooh. I have no idea. It's bigger than five is a clue. Yeah, it's certainly more than 12 because zone four is an hour from the city centre, right? It's 607 square miles. So five, it's a bit... Well, it was only those five <laughs> miles that were at risk. Just in five this... miles, yeah. 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 They said London town, so that's still thousands yeah, of people. Yeah, it's London town. <laughs> it's two stops... Oh, they're going to have to cancel those two stops on the central line because it's been meeped. <laughs> it's been meeped. <laughs> but the damage is reversed, even though time wasn't reversed somehow. The damage, fortunately, just followed the road network as well. <laughs> All the volcanoes are built coincidentally where the road network is, so when it seals up, no one's houses fall down or anything. <laughs> and the sonic screwdriver can now resonate concrete as well. Or mortar. Mortar. Yeah, mortar. All those identical attic sets <laughs> that they were running through. 
I will say I forgive a lot for that shot of the guy passed out in the couch with the doctor, the meep, and the nobles <laughs> creeping by him. Okay, you get away with that. You've missed the firefight that's happening three <laughs> doors down. Or yeah. Pretty sure that would wake me up. I'm a heavy sleeper sometimes, and I'm pretty sure that I would notice that. That maybe he's like Donna, misses everything. Unrelated real life tangent, but that situation happened to me when I was young in 2004. Oh. David Tennant was filming on my street for a TV show called Blackpool, but I was too busy watching Doctor Who to go out to get an autograph. I'll go in a bit, I'm switching an episode. Oh, they've sort of moved on now, they were doing autographs. I was like, oh, I don't know who he is. This was the musical with Neil Morrissey, right? Yeah, it was, I think it was 2003 or 2004. It yeah. was before his Doctor Nurse, but they were filming literally out of my wow. front garden. <laughs> and it was like, let's pause, there's some people getting autographs or whatever. I was like, I don't know who he is. I'll just let him go by. <laughs> That's like me turning out an interview with Jodie Whittaker when she was at Edinburgh Film Festival for adult life skills. I was offered the junket. I think I was in another screening and I was like, I haven't seen this film yet. I don't know who she is, so I'll just say no. It was one of those, they obviously didn't have enough people at the junket because I got like six emails about it. <laughs> please, please come along. <laughs> yeah, eventually I was like, I should reply and say, sorry, I'm... <laughs> unavailable please don't email me about this anymore and then a few years later she's a doctor and i was just thinking i could have milked that five minutes where we don't talk about doctor who at all i really brought up her opinion on saint trillions too (laughs) (laughs) if you want to hear her talk about adult life skills very quickly then this is the interview for you but she's also the doctor now there we go another real life tangent so have we exhausted the star beast as much as we need to i think so there's probably something big we've missed but we find whatever it was I do love the shot of the reversal. I love the bit where she's like, oh, sod it, and then just vaporizes the worth. <laughs> that is a wonderful moment. And it was good having the Doctor and Donna restored, and the Doctor gets his friend back, and Donna gets all her character development back. She's not reset. That's nice. Oh, I remember what it was. A brief, very quick final point. The new TARDIS is beautiful. I love it. It is. Uh, see, I'm not a huge fan of it. It's just too big and empty for me that's that disney money craig yeah i was quite worried about just a big white room my favorite tardis is capaldi's bootcase tardis yes i'm not a fan of the capaldi one i like it to have a bit of clutter a bit of i live here sort of vibe can i throw something out though craig i think you may be onto something there because it's already obvious that gat was tardis which is the same set is much more popular and has things like the jukebox in it for example it has just the jukebox at the moment well so far (laughs) But it does really feel like, again, we're playing with the kids' toys. This isn't 14's TARDIS. This isn't 10's TARDIS. This is just the TARDIS set that we happen to have while we're making these specials. 15 is like, you need to get a chair in here. There's nothing there. I think it's blankness is intentional because it's very much like a lot of these specials. It's reminding you that you're watching a transient doctor, like a liminal doctor, a doctor who is not going to be here long enough to make the set his own. So I'm hoping that it may become more personalized over the course of the next year or two, maybe. I really want to see a properly cluttered and lived in, say, Peter Capaldi's TARDIS did have bookcases, but nobody read a book or anything. He was seen reading books sometimes. He played a guitar wandering through it. He had busts. He'd sit in armchairs. Back in the VHS days, companions had rooms and the Doctor would be at a chair and it wasn't <laughs> always just everyone stood around watching the Doctor play with the controls or whatever. I want to see a TARDIS properly lived in with been on adventures, here's a shelf full of anachronistic stuff. Oh, they just went to see, I know, Cleopatra in episode three. Well, episode four, there should be a little, like, Brum. <laughs> you know how Brum would get a thing? I want to see the TARDIS grow with the adventures and hmm. gain stuff. I kind of hope that all you were saying about Shooty Gat was Doctor, he's got a jukebox in and he has a big hammer. That just manifests itself, <laughs> apparently. 
Yeah, like just fill it up with stuff. He's going to meet the Beatles soon. He can get assigned whatever the Beatles guitar is. He's got a stack of records or... He has the gold record on the wall. He has the real Paul McCartney in here. <laughs> just tied up. Got you, Paul McCartney. <laughs> we did have mention of rooms before. The bedrooms, the bunk beds, the swimming pool. Yeah. Amy and Rory had a bedroom and they wanted an actual bed, not bunk beds. It's a bed with a ladder. Yeah, it's like the Lego movie, the two-story couch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everybody wants that. Yeah, Doctor and Donna, they're mates again. They go off to see Wilf. Donna spills a coffee on the TARDIS console where the Doctor should have said, have it over there, please. We know what you're like. That was a very cringy scene. Again, going for a rewrite, they should have mentioned the coffee. So when Sylvia and Donna like got fired from that job, you could have mentioned the coffee thing there instead of... Oh, my last job, I spilled coffee. Oh no, I spilled coffee. <laughs> Guess what has literally just happened? Well, I think it's a performance issue rather than an actual writing issue or whatever. She really chucks it. Ah, oh. it, it looks like she does it by choice. I get that it must be difficult to perform accidentally spilling coffee. Yeah. Or you could drink it like, oh, it's hot or something like, ooh, or... Particularly accidentally spilling coffee on a really expensive looking set. <laughs> yeah. Although it's interesting you say about the transient doctor stuff, but the design sensibilities, some of it was down to David Tennant. They put buttons ah. on the console because he likes buttons. <laughs> so there's something to watch with Gatwa. Does Gatwa change it out then? It's always been a buttony thing. Yeah, They've tactile. all had levers and flips and stuff. Although they had the telepathic circuits that people just pressed Stuck on. Stuck their stuff. hands into, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it has glum the fingers in yeah so i think even though he prefers a sort of tactile play thing it wouldn't have been like flat screens or holograms all the time one it's cheaper just to have buttons a nonsense but- board <laughs> you just like flick switch spin <laughs> like a big six-sided super bop it that the director can just <laughs> play with just while they're talking to it set coordinates or something we're not going to green screen it in we're not doing that kind of show Looks well, like you were saying, again, offline, Isaac, the idea that David Tennant is so good at playing the fact that he's doing the job of six people when flying the thing. <laughs> no one flies a TARDIS like David Tennant. He's got like 12 hours. <laughs> so when you see him do it, it's so impressively... Like, he knows what he's doing because he's had several thousand years of flying the TARDIS, but it's such a visible struggle. But it's just like, yeah, he's, he's chatting away and doing this, and while his hands are doing like a billion things, and he's kicking controls with his shoe when they can't reach it and stuff. <laughs> I really missed that. There was a bit of that with Matt Smith, but not so, especially not when Peter Capaldi and Jodie Whittaker called like calm pilots. But just going back to David Tennant, absolutely flipping around this place like a, a little cat, <laughs> just like <laughs> kicking and flying and running and really leaning into the console. He doesn't set it off normally, he leans <laughs> and really like drives it forward as he's going. It's really fun to watch. I think he is the best at that. Yeah, he's very good at it. He's a tremendous physical performer. He has a run as the Doctor, which is incredible. <laughs> One of these things these specials did was it made me get to the point where it's like, oh, I don't want this guy to go away again. <laughs> Whereas before I saw them, I was like, I'd be okay skipping this and getting straight to shoot Gatwa. But then he sort of convinced me as we were doing the specials, like, oh no, I want to see more of them. And to be fair, we probably will. <laughs> Depends on how much money Disney back up to the house. But yeah, it does <laughs> feel like this is a prime spin-off special waiting to happen. Yeah. And we'll definitely hear more of him when they yes. finish to get their hands on him. So let's move on to Wild Blue Yonder then. This is the episode that lots of people got really disappointed by because their expectation allowed them to be disappointed. This is the one that, oh yeah, all the doctors turn up and they do a multi-doctor adventure episode. The shot in a closed set, minimal amount of publicity for it. The synopsis was kept deliberately vague. Davies himself acknowledged that this was a risk he was taking, but it was like all the other stuff involved location shooting and celebrity guest stars. So it was heavily publicized. But this one, nobody knew anything. So as you're right, it's like, this is the one that's going to have all the cameos. Yeah, and it had none. 
Well, it had one. One cameo. I mean, it was a multi-doctor story, technically speaking. Kind of. Hi, Bar. This was really good. I also feel like we're going to probably breeze through this conversation. Oh, you say that, Isaac. Because the reason it was kept so quiet is because there's not much to it, really. It's a very good Doctor Who episode that's very solid and fun. But breaking into it, there's bits we can break down, but there's only two characters. We can talk about Donna and the Doctor and the villains. But in terms of its effect on the world as a whole or everything else going on, I feel like this is... Well, we get Because the giggle could take ages. <laughs> it's a narratively simple episode. It's a narratively one, yeah. simple. Like The reason it was kept so out of press like well really it's just it's a good surprise it's an excellent twist but it's not in the trailers much because it's mostly just two people having a chat it's almost the mid-season budget saving episode except it costs a lot of money it's really weird because you could see this done on far less of a budget yeah they should have called the ship the bottle or something (laughs) (laughs) just to really hammer home that this is the middle one because it could have just been a pretty small set with a couple of rooms. Which were just the same, just lit in different ways yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. one had an orange computer, one had a blue computer. The two principal actors, the two stunt doubles, and that's you. That's all you really need. But they did the big bad green screen hallway. I like the green screen hallway. It looks bad though. Can we shout out the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who finds the character running down the longest corridor <laughs> in the universe? So much so he needs a vehicle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This was the Metal Gear Solid 3's ladder of Doctor Who corridors. (laughs) I love this episode because it was so simple. It was very character driven and it's very confident that Davies would choose to do a 60th anniversary special. It's just an episode of the show. Here's what you get when you watch Doctor Who. This is bread and butter Doctor Who practically. And we're not putting on any extra bells and whistles because it's an anniversary. That's in the other two episodes. This is just an episode of the show. This is proof of concept. This is what you get when you watch this show. What do you love about Doctor Who? It's just weird. (laughs) Just a weird show about some friends having an adventure. As good as the day of the Doctor is, it's not what you get every week. Yeah. What I remember about this is I was visiting, as my parents get older, I'm spending a bit more time visiting them, and I remember being home when this was broadcast, sitting at the kitchen table, watching it with my dad, and my dad would be a fan of the Tom Baker era. That is not to age my dad. And he was watching it in college. My mom is a fan of the Pertwee era because she was watching it at the age that she was meant to be watching it. But my dad was very much of the generation who, when they went to college, were like, yeah, we watch this kid's TV show. Three in the morning, after in from a night out, stick on Doctor Who. That is exactly... If there was podcast in the 70s, he would have been doing this with, with his college buddies. <laughs> Not to cast any aspersions on my dad, but yes. But sitting down, watching this with him, and him just going, yeah, this is Doctor Who. That's what this is. No other concept is needed for sequences in which the actors are chased by duplicates of themselves with gigantic rubber prosthetic hands. My dad is like, no, I'm on board. This is what Doctor Who is. This is what Doctor Who has always been. You can cast a line between something like the arc in space through to something like Midnight, through to something like Utopia, through to this. And it is just pure Doctor Who at its essence, at its core. And how do you celebrate the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who? You do it by making an episode of Doctor Who. Before we get into the actual episode itself, we'll talk about the elephant in the room for some people, the Isaac Newton cameo, where he's been race-swapped and the word gravity is now mavity in a joke that I'm already (laughs) sick of, but it's going to linger forever. I enjoy mavity. But a lot of people kicked off about the race-swapping of Isaac Newton because he was a real guy. It's not that you're recasting a character from an earlier version of something. He was a real guy. People know what he looked like, etc, etc, and have race-swapped him. I can't say that I really had a problem with it, although I thought the scene was bad. So I sort of dismissed it and went on with my life and then Mavity kept coming up and I'm like, oh great, can't wait for this to completely wear its welcome. It's a fun cameo of one of those two Davis's friends. So I was like, okay, to see a 
a celebrity. It's Nathaniel Hall, I think was in It's a Sin, and I think he was in Years and Years as well. So just like, oh yeah, it's one of Russell Davis's. It's J.J. Abrams in it. He just brings <laughs> one of his former mates in. Greg Gronworld, yeah. Yeah, just to join in, and it's just a fun little scene. It did remind me a little bit of, you know, the meme of people are going to get angry about this once they finish reading about it sort of thing. <laughs> I'm sure some people were like, I'm going to quickly Google Isaac Newton and see if he was... <laughs> see what race he was like oh that's different (laughs) (laughs) i didn't know this until now and now i know it and i hate it now i care passionately about it i only discovered it five (laughs) minutes ago but i care about it passionately yeah it'll come back in the church of ruby road where it's like once we figure out which of ruby's friends is trans we're gonna be furious To Craig's point and to Isaac's point, first of all, I think the race-bending stuff is deliberately provocative and playful in the sense of Mavity, in that the Mavity joke is part of that because we can accept that in the universe of Doctor Who, gravity is now called Mavity because there was a weird time travel incident which Doctor and Donna changed the word that was used. And we we are perfectly fine with that. The idea that a blue box fell out of the sky and rocked apples onto Isaac Newton's head and changed the word for gravity in this fictional universe. But we get weirdly upset at the idea that the character has a slightly different skin tone than he might have had in real life. That is the issue that we want to get and have a big fight about. Although the companion has never been been impacted by the changes in history before. Usually they're insulated from that by the TARDIS. By virtue of being in the TARDIS, yeah. Yeah. But it happens twice in these four episodes, actually, where the companion is impacted when they kind of shouldn't be. And then you have the inverse in Ruby Road, because when he's on the ladder and he calls it Mavity, Ruby calls it Gravity which is interesting as well. There is something very loosey-goosey about how Davies is playing with the idea of time travel here, where it seems like the neighbour in Ruby Road is not aware of what the TARDIS is, and then the timeline is reset and suddenly knows what the TARDIS is, and you're like, I don't know what the logic of this even is. Yeah, we'll discuss that later, but there's what they call string and pins going on (laughs) that we'll talk about later on. I know, I've got a a vibe of what that is. The second thing with the Isaac Newton thing I just want to reference is, it's something Craig said at the start, which is this feels like a hyper-compressed Davies season. And obviously this is like the late season high concept episode like Midnight or Turn Left or a Stephen Moffat two-parter or whatever. But the Isaac Newton scene really feels like an attempt to cram in a celebrity historical. It was Davies more than Moffat because Moffat then ridiculed the celebrity historical by having Churchill meet the Daleks. Robin Hood pops up at one point. Father Christmas is a celebrity historical character to Moffat. Moffat really plays with the idea of the celebrity historical by running it into the ground. But Davies was like, no, 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 very earnestly, we're going to do Charles Dickens. Let's remember he did the Hitler one as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anti-celebrity historical. Oh, it's the bad one. It's the worst one. <laughs> the Richard Nixon one as well. That's his response when he was writing The Impossible Astronaut. I just opened up the history book and was like, crap, I got the crap one. <laughs> <laughs> Although he did it earnestly with Van Gogh, didn't he? He did, and that was a Curtis script. And I think people really love that episode, to be fair, as well. And it's notable that's in the fifth season, which is the season that is most heavily Davies-esque in terms of its structure. But I also think Davies is very much the celebrity historical guy. Arguably even more than the classic series, there are points where the celebrity historical comes in and out of the classic series. Very popular during the first Doctor's era, kind of dies out during the second Doctor's era. The sixth Doctor kind of comes back in, which is very weird. Oh yeah, he meets H.G. Wells. H.G. <laughs> Wells, and then there's also the Weird Inventors Conference that he's at as well. The Sixth Doctor is big on this for the two seasons that he's around, and then obviously less so. But Davies was like, no, all in. We're doing Dickens, we're doing Queen Victoria, we're doing Shakespeare, we're doing Agatha Christie. And I love that even in this truncated season, this season that comprises of three specials, he's like, yeah, gotta cram a historical celebrity in here somewhere, to the point where Donna jokes, do you have the controls 
set to famous. Well, he does too, because he does John Logie Baird as well. That's very brief. He does. As an aside, the Dickens thing, I feel like Davies wasted the opportunity to have ghosts with Charles Dickens at Christmas as a Christmas special. That feels like a proto-Christmas special, yeah. to be fair. When I'm doing my Christmas special marathon, I would watch The Unquiet Dead for all of its issues in that context. It would be better if it was a Christmas special, probably. It'd be more punched up, <laughs> but... That's what it is. Well, it would have been written by Davies and not Mark Gattis. Sorry, with all due respect to Mark Gattis. <laughs> yeah, so we have Newton and the Mavity thing and who gets to remember its gravity and not shifts as it goes. It's a bit jarring for me that the companion is affected by the change in history because that never happens. And if you imagine some of the earlier adventures where they go and change something in the past and then they come into the present day, if the companion didn't remember what they did in the past, that would be a problem. A big deal. Yeah. Yeah, so... I don't know, continuity, it's fluid. I think that might be more of a, a future thing we'll talk about. <laughs> I think this is a purposeful... Okay. If I'm assuming what's happening is what's happening. Ooh. This is a very specific out of the ordinary. I think Davies is setting up the idea that something will or already has changed that people don't notice. And yeah. It's going to come into play in some big way in the next couple of seasons. Because this is the only chance a showrunner has ever had to plan two, three years ahead. Yeah. of where they're at now. They've never been able to do that before. That's why you have the meep say, well, you're not going to like it when you meet my boss. And the boss doesn't immediately show up. When the boss hears about this. Everyone assumed the toy maker. Nope, it's not revealed yeah. yet. And when the toy maker's like, he who remains or he who is at the end or he who persists or whatever it is, to that point that you made there about the companion being affected by it. It is worth noting that even in Destination Scarrow, which I'm sorry I keep coming back to, I'm making it sound much more important than it is, the Doctor talks about branching timelines in that. And I know that is a comedy relief sketch, and it's presented as an origin story of the Daleks, but it, it is the show messing with its own history. It is the show playing around. And look, whether or not that is just a younger version of Davros who isn't in the chair yet, or a version of Davros who will never be in the chair for reasons that we've already talked about, it does feel like Davies is playing with the idea of continuity. Even in The Giggle, you have the Toymaker talk about making a jigsaw of the Doctor's history. And you have this idea of what is canon, what is continuity. I like that Davies feels like he's getting very elastic on it, getting very playful, where maybe it is, maybe it isn't, who knows what counts and what doesn't. You might as well just jump in and enjoy the ride. With the jigsaw reference, I thought that was a nice thing to how Doctor Who episodes were in parts. <laughs> <laughs> That's very clever. Now the idea is, it's in a jigsaw, this is four parts, and this is six parts. He's literally split them up. <laughs> the canon's already a mess as well, because if you look at Moffat's era, none of his companions remember anything that happened during yep. Davy's era. And even during Davy's era, people just got on with it after alien invasions. It actually stands out because we've come back to the Dr. Donna era 15 years on, and it's, remember when the Earth moved? <laughs> Does anyone remember that the Earth moved? Because... <laughs> That should be something that people remember right now, especially when you get to the events of the Giggle. It's, oh God, it's another one of these. What's going on? Well, they do remember the Archangel Network, Craig. The clearly yeah. the most important piece of continuity from the Davies era. The units do, anyway. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else does, but it's things like that. You don't hear Clara talking about the skies being full of Daleks, or no. Bill talk about any of that stuff. Bill is completely... <laughs> baffled by the concept of the Doctor and the TARDIS, and it's, this shouldn't be a massive leap for you. Do when the Prime Minister used a big grey basketball to shoot the American President? <laughs> <laughs> but that was the Prime Minister who was elected after the one who shot aliens out of the sky, Isaac. <laughs> was there a big US-UK war or international relations? Like, nah, just don't no. Worry about it. no one liked him. It was, it was very unpopular. And then 
Obama's after generic American president somehow. Yeah. He was due for re-election, so <laughs> yeah. still doesn't add an issue. He also introduced himself as president-elect. Which yes, makes no sense in terms of chronology. I do love the idea of Trump presumably being like, Biden, you deal with this one. <laughs> I'm a bit busy. My place is a bit occupied. You won the election. You go deal with this. Well, Trump also exists in Doctor Who continuity somehow. Oh, yeah. And Tony Blair was stuffed in a closet because the Slitheen couldn't fit inside him. In that two-parter, actually, there's a joke that's aged really well, where the doctor asks Rose, who's prime minister? And she says, I've been gone for a year. How should I know? (laughs) That's something that's even funnier in modern context. (laughs) I agree. The Wild Blue Hunter is, for me, the best of these four, by a considerable distance. It's the one of the four that I think is a classic. It's the one that I see myself most eager to revisit. I think there is a bunch of interesting stuff happening here. Obviously, it is just an excuse for a performance piece. It's Davies kind of flexing the muscles and going, I can write something as good as Midnight. As Craig said, the Star Beast is a premiere and the giggle is a finale. This is just Davies cracking his knuckles and going, yeah, I can write a regular episode of Doctor Who and it will rock. And it will also serve as a showcase for... Tenet and Tate, in that we are bringing these actors back, so we may as well give us something that shows us what they can do. And I think Tenet and Tate are both phenomenal here. I think they're very good in all three, but I think they are phenomenal here. And I I do think there is a kind of a there-there. I think that broadly, if we're trying to draw an arc across these three serials, we mentioned the idea of individualism and the idea of cooperation versus competition, which is a big recurring motif that happens, obviously building into the giggle with the toy maker. Here, you have this recurring motif of war and the idea that war travels and the idea that signal kind of spreads. The title of the episode is Wild Blue Yonder, which is interesting because it's not really central to the plot. You look at the title of the Star Beast and you get, well, the Star Beast is the meep. You look at the title of the Giggle and it's, oh, well, the Giggle is what the toy maker uses to infect humanity. Wild Blue Yonder is a song that the TARDIS plays while it is breaking down. It is a line of dialogue and exposition that has really nothing to do with the plot of the episode. And it doesn't have the jukebox yet, so how is it doing it? Except thematically, it works because you have this conversation between Donna and the Doctor, where Donna explains that in school, whether it was her or whether it was Rose, but the teacher, Mrs. Bean, was teaching the kids to sing Wild Blue Yonder, and Wilf objected to it because it's a war song. It's a song about going to war. And Mrs. Bean replies, no, it's a jaunty, jolly tune. It's happy and it's uplifting and we should sing it and it's contagious. And nobody ever really thinks about how this is a song about war. And in this episode, you have the not-things. These entities which are explicitly nothing. They are from the void. They have no essence of themselves. They literally exist by copying, by replicating, by duplicating. And you have the idea that the Doctor and Donna have gone so far into the void that light cannot reach them. The Doctor points and says, look, the universe is that far this way. You cannot see it because light has not penetrated this far. But... Somehow, the idea of conflict and war and violence has communicated through that void, to the point where the not-things have absorbed it. They say, we can't wait to go to your universe and play all your games and fight all your wars. This episode could be resolved so easily if the not-things just said, hey, we're stuck in the void. We have no essence of self. We are completely alone. It is torturous and it is torment. How about you just give us a lift in the TARDIS to a place where people are? Because... We want to be near people. 
and I'll keep your form and therefore create another David Tennant doctor that's out there somewhere. Wait, that's it. We could do a four doctors with David Tennant. The resolution to that episode would be very simple, where the doctor would go, yeah, that makes sense, actually. Hop in the TARDIS and we'll give you a lift home. But the nothings are predicated on the assumption that reality and life is a war and it is a contest and there has to be a victor. And so it isn't enough that they get to the universe. The Doctor and Donna have to not get to the universe. They have to replace them. They have to supplant them. And I think there is something kind of interesting in that idea, which is a very Davies idea. You look at Davies' work on Doctor Who, and philosophically, Davies is one of the most incredibly cynical writers on the human condition. Looking at his work outside Doctor Who, you look at things like It's a Sin and Years and Years. There's a real cynicism about human nature and the idea of how human beings in particular treat one another and how they perceive existence as a state of perpetual war. It's a very Hobbesian view of society. All those rants the Doctor does about, look at how stupid you humans are doing this stupid stuff. He does that in The Giggle, he's done that many a time. But even in Turn Left, which is an episode which is predicated on the assumption that the UK is only one doctor away from fascism at any given moment, I think there is something incredibly cynical and incredibly pointed and incredibly deliberate in Wild Blue Yonder, which is this idea that human beings just radiate this idea of conflict so much that these shapeless, reflective essences in the void just passively absorb the idea that there has to be a winner. That life is a contest and you win it by defeating, murdering, and riding the corpse of your defeated opponents back into the wider universe. I think there is something very interesting there that fits thematically with the Star Beast, where the resolution to that is you share power, and the giggle where the entire problem in that episode is everybody wins. Everybody has has to be a winner, and that just causes the breakdown of the fabric of society. To Isaac's point, I do think there is a connective tissue you can forge between Wild Blue Yonder and the other two specials either side. And it continues the notion that's concluded in the giggle of, the Doctor's running on fumes. Yeah. He's gone from crisis to crisis to crisis without any chance to reflect or stop or think about anything from the point of view of separated by quite a number of years of stuff. But what Jodie Whittaker's doctor finally dealt with versus what David Tennant stumbles into, it's just thing after thing after thing after thing. And after nothing. Yeah. And it was just, well, we're going to go and have a pleasant tea and a biscuit with Wilf and now we're here fighting another thing. And funnily enough, the whole plot would have resolved itself if the Doctor and Donna had never arrived. Because the ship would have blown up and taken the entities with it. Yeah, the solution's already started. <laughs> we do nothing and we solve this problem, actually. Yeah. I think that was my favourite thing about this episode. As a big fan of the Flux storyline and the Timeless Child and all that, it's still here. That reacted badly with people and I was worried. That's a big thing that you shouldn't just gloss over. It shouldn't be like a forgotten. That series was over. It shouldn't be a hybrid situation where it's like, don't worry about it. In a couple of lines of dialogue, Davies managed to find an emotional yeah. core to the Flux and Timeless Child. Half the universe is still gone, by the way. Just not all the important planets, apparently. They're all still there, but the universe is still a lot smaller than it used to be. We never actually resolved that. Also, I don't know where I'm from, and I don't know what to do with that. I threw away that watch that would tell me, but let's not talk about that. But this is heavily traumatic for me, and I'm now just finally expressing it to someone that I can talk to. We never saw Chibnall's doctor do that at all. We never yeah. saw any reflection on what she was told. And Davies does it in a couple of lines of dialogue. And I think that highlights the differences in writer 
talent that they exist between the two. The thing I did look, the flux being brung up, and also I was a little worried on the flux situation. I hope they're not just pass that on to the 14th Doctor, but it's still carrying on in the Christmas special with Ruby being a foundling. So it's like, oh good, they're not immediately bringing it up just to get rid of it again. It's not going away, which I really liked. It's a thematic cornerstone. Chibnall said in interviews that The Timeless Child was his take on an adoption story, but that never came into the story at all. That's something that you find out by reading supplemental material, but Davies either read that or found that in there and thought, here's our connective point between the Doctor and his new companion. They're both abandoned children. That is the thing. For all that we have, and probably will when we get to the giggle, criticise Davies for being rather loose in terms of structuring his plots and very neat resolutions which rely heavily on techno babble that make no real sense if you stop to think about them. Davies is very good at honing in on the theme of a story. He understands what the story is about in capital letters and what it means and what the human connection is there. I agree with you, Craig. I did not care for The Timeless Child when I saw it on there. I, I was not a big fan of it. I thought it was a lot of lore for the sake of lore and I thought the episode was not well written. That's all it is. Yeah, But when I saw that interview with Chibnall where he talked about he was adopted himself and this was his way of folding that into the Doctor Who story, into the mythos, so a way of dealing it, I was like, that is great. That is beautiful. That's exactly what a writer should do. You should take a personal experience and you should fold it into something and you should share it with the world through that. And I'm like, this is deeply moving. I really wish that I had been able to get that without you telling me. I feel like I should have been able to connect with that emotionally, to have that feeling of, oh, this is a universal experience filtered through the lens of metaphor, where Chibnall's stuff often to me personally just feels like plot. It feels like plot. It feels like lore. It feels like trivia. It feels like a Wikipedia article. Dot, 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 dot. This is what you need to know. This is what you need to know going into it. Whereas for me, Davies is much more, this is what it actually is. And I think it's interesting that you see him using the flux in a way that I think is incredibly clever, where my dad, who has not watched any of or much of the Whitaker era, doesn't know what the word flux means. He can intuitively understand what the Doctor is talking about when he talks to the not-Donna about his experiences, because he's using it functionally the same way that he used the Time War when he was writing for nine and writing for ten. This is something horrible that happened in the past. That's it, exactly. There is this trauma, this thing that happened to the Doctor that he cannot talk about and cannot articulate, but it defines him and it shapes him and he is responding and reacting to it. And I think that's an incredibly clever way of doing it, where it manages to keep it accessible. If, as Craig said, one of the points of these specials for better or for worse, is to make Doctor Who popular again, to make it accessible, to bring it back into the mainstream after a rough couple of years. The assumption is that viewers watching this have not watched Flux, have not watched a lot of the Whitaker era, do not necessarily know the ins and outs of the Timeless Child. Davies is very good at using the Timeless Child in a way where you don't need to know the ins and outs of it. What's the important information? Yeah, you don't need to know what the Morbius Doctors are in order to understand that conversation, which I think is just beautiful. I think it's really good writing. Tennant's performance in that scene is excellent. You get the the emotion radiating from him and the sense that, yeah, he's barely holding it together. And then they don't explicitly say why the face is back, but the theory is it's a cry for help. Yeah. That's what this face means. It's your body telling you to slow down in the same way that we might collapse or have a nervous breakdown or something like that. It's the Time Lord equivalent of a nervous breakdown. That's what this regeneration is. And he needs to listen to those signals, otherwise he's going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. And this situation is slow enough that it gives him the time to reflect on these things. Plus, it's the fact that Donna is the companion that can challenge him in ways that no other companion can. She 
ask some of these questions and he will answer them because that's just the way it is. He's not trying to impress her. He's not trying to lie to her in any way. He sees her as an equal. He sees her as the best friend rather than my assistant. And it's great how that specific relationship is what gets that information out there. I couldn't really see any other companion doing that. And crucially, you mentioned it there thematically, the idea of going slow. Going slow is key to resolving the plot here, but going slow is ultimately what it turns out that 14's arc is largely about. He needs to literally slow down. Yeah, it's all great stuff. And plot-wise, it's very simple. Yeah. These entities, they're replicating you. The way you stop it is by just letting the ship blow itself up like it's already about to do. Don't stop doing that. And again, very Davies era where it's Event Horizon meets Alien meets the Ark in Space meets Midnight, which is great. It's a very high concepty thing. My big swing, if Isaac's like, are we going to talk that much about this episode? Is like, I think that, is this about AI? It may be about AI. (laughs) (laughs) It really does feel like it's about AI art, where it's like, we have these perfect copies of the Doctor, except we can't get the hands right. The hands are what's broken here. And you end up with these weirdly distorted faces and they're taking these experiences from these real people and trying to create convincing facsimiles. It really does feel like Davies is an artist (laughs) writing about, it really sucks that AI art is now a thing. And I mean, if you want to get more broad or more universal, if you want to factor it in the context of a 60th anniversary, you could argue that this is Davies maybe a little bit passive-aggressively referencing the fact that his version of Doctor Who inspired an entire generation of British television, including shows like, say, Merlin, is perhaps the most famous example. But this idea where you had him do this thing, which was radical in 2005, and then just kept getting copied and photocopied and mimicked and replicated by ITV, by BBC, in order to flood the airways with these inferior copies of what he did that were non-convincing and didn't actually replicate what made it successful in the first place. That's my big swing. What is Wild Blue Yonder about? I never considered that, but immediately, yes, that's 100% what it is. (laughs) (laughs) snapped him ahead. I was like, oh yeah, obviously it's it's about AI. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Um, Perfect. You only get out what you put in, and unless you temper that in some way, it's going to be a distorted copy of what you put in, and you need to teach it properly, otherwise it won't work, and all those things. And it will accidentally be racist. It will accidentally be genocidal if you don't regulate the content. I love some of the touches in the episode. The first example you get of the entity showing up is when David Tennant walks in and talks to Donna. And you can see it as, he found that room and he pressed that button, now he's back. But then... You just see him acting a little bit off kilter and the suspicions start to rise. And And then you cut into the room where Donna's in and you're like, wait, are we cutting back and forth in time? Is that what happened? It's really good. It's really, really good. I love the little bit when it's the real Doctor talking to the non-Donna. And you can sort of see how the Doctor occasionally just isn't listening to what the companion's saying because they're so used (laughs) to them saying, it's like, oh, my obviously log is like, yeah, it's a bit complicated, isn't it? (laughs) He's never actually really listening (laughs) He's so used to basic questions from humans that he's just like, but yeah, no, just keep going, I, it's fine. <laughs> I believe in you, you can do it. <laughs> I love it how the mask melts off when the Doctor's with Donna as well. You've got that, well, the Doctor would know that. He's like, no, I wouldn't. I just pretend I know everything. You couldn't see him saying that to Martha, for example. Yeah. It's a great little bit of honesty where he's like, yeah, I'm always behaving like this. I'd never actually know anything. I'm just pretending. And then eventually I figure it out. Or Donna thinks she's stupid. No, Donna thinks she's stupid, but Donna also thinks she's very clever. She's useless, or thinks she's useless, but very confident as well. (laughs) That paradox, and you can't understand the paradox. Again, an AI wouldn't understand if you fed in those two data points without you feeding in more information to clarify what that means. And how, yeah, we really should be going slow. It's a technology that's going way too fast for us humans to comprehend. It's like, no, let's just wait. Let's not let the AI make its own AI. 
But Isaac, we're thinking so fast. That's it. We're thinking faster than ever before. It's just going too fast. Again, so many small moments which are wonderful. Like, I love the not doctor revealing himself with the tie. Where he's like, oh yeah, objects stay. How many knees do they have? Two. Two on each leg? (laughs) I love the bit where they're standing. And again, that image you have of the partition coming down, which recurs, it's in the Star Beast, where it divides the Doctor and Donna. And it's here where it comes down and divides the not things and the Doctor Donna. Part of me is a little disappointed pointed that the giggle didn't have another glass partition that would divide the toy maker shot that big glass window that kind of divided the doctor from unit yeah which i guess is vaguely similar (laughs) but i love that during that sequence where they just rile the doctor up by asking him questions and again it's very midnight it's very davy's version of writing the 10th doctor in midnight which is a man who is so brilliant he cannot help but sabotage himself (laughs) where they're just like so many questions why did the airlock open where's the pilot what's that body outside doing what's the countdown I'm trying not to think. Leave me alone. Yeah, yeah. We mentioned how great the actors are. Tenet doing the 10th Doctor or 14th Doctor trying not to think is an incredible performance. <laughs> where he's just got no, no. And then he just goes right into it. He just gives yeah. up on not <laughs> thinking. And he, he's yeah. like, I'm going to solve this puzzle because I like solving puzzles. And then, oh, no. Oh, oops. And I love this. Even though it's like, oh, no, Donna's the idiot one or whatever. It's the 14th Doctor that fails twice to register, which is the real Donna. Yes. He only fails the first time because one of them melts. And the <laughs> second time, he just literally picks the wrong one up. Donna always figures it out. She always notices the tie or she notices a little something, whereas the Doctor has a 100% fail record of picking... <laughs> The difference, which I thought was a nice little thing. Very in character. I also like that both Donnas don't understand why Mrs. Bean is funny. Neither <laughs> of them got the right answer. Because it's like Mr. Bean. <laughs> Her husband's Mr. Bean, that's why it's funny, but she sees it as funny in another way. <laughs> I do love that the one that he picks is the one who says it just is, whereas the one that is the right Donna does try to over-intellectualize it because it's the name of vegetable for a person. That's the Donna thinks she's dumb, but Donna thinks she's smart thing, which is so brilliant. Just the writing, the characterization, it is great. I love it so much. Yeah, and there's other good little touches like when Donna's panicking and the doctor's like, I will get you back to your family. Little bits of reassurance like that, just little touches. Which feel more, as you said, to to the point, feel more emotionally aware. That feels very much like something the 11th Doctor would tell Amy or the 12th Doctor would tell Clara. I will get you back. I will fix this problem. I have a duty of care. Which is not always how the 10th Doctor thought of his companions, particularly Martha. I'll just live in this British boarding school in the First World War. It'll be fine. And you'll be okay, even though it's a very racist time, but <laughs> yeah. we'll not worry about that. It's very Jodie Whittakery as well. She was always promising. Her step one in the ghost money was like, look, I'll get you home. <laughs> That's like, step before anything else. And again, when they got separated during the Flux event, she's like, no, here's a hologram. Everything's fine. It felt very much like she had quite a good bedside manner with her companions in some ways. But her doctor wasn't great when it came to dealing with... Graham's recurring cancer is the one that I think of. Yeah. yeah, she'd avoid the big conversations, but when it came to her basic, okay, make sure my friends are alive first, I'll get you home, it'll be fine. I felt like they're bringing that still in with the 14th Doctor as well, where it's, look, before anything, before we get into the danger, just heads up, you'll be safe. I'll keep you as safe as I can, which I really liked as well. And I love that they don't have the argument. I love the bit where you can see them on the verge of having the argument whose fault it is that the TARDIS is gone. They run back and the TARDIS is gone and she's like, it was your idea to wander off. Yeah, but you spilled the coffee. And you can see both of them consciously make the choice not to have the fight, which is, again, just a lovely little mature moment. Two adults having a conversation. I think 14 actually says we're not doing this. And then they basically go adventuring. Which again shows you how these characters have evolved over the time they've been apart rather than right back playing the hits. They're right back to where 
where they were when you first last left them. No, they're different. And Donna has all the improvements, I suppose, all the development she gained by traveling with the doctor recently back, but she's still a different person based on her life experience in that interim time as well. I suppose Donna is a whole new person actually in this episode than she was in the previous episode in a lot of ways. But it doesn't overpower it. It's just she's experienced as a companion and has a family that she cares about. It's not about, I want to be out here with you doing this. I want to get home. I really need to be home with my family. Well, this is literally a one trip. That's the really interesting thing is that I know, and to Davy's credit, he does go out of his way. I think he gave the first, the post-regeneration story for the 14th Doctor was a comic strip in Doctor Who Monthly. It was the something, the liberation of the Daleks, I think is what it was. That is something that he planned to do with the ninth Doctor. He wanted Doctor Who Monthly to have a comic strip that would show the regeneration from McGann into Eccleston. This feels like him basically getting to do that, which is pretty cool. But I do like that this is very contained. There is no space here for a range of 14th Doctor and Donna audios from Big Finish. You'd have a lot of difficulty fitting an entire comic book run in between, which is not how Davies structured his previous seasons. There are lots of gaps in his earlier seasons where you can imagine Rose and Jack and the Ninth Doctor having lots of adventures between the Doctor Dances in Boomtown and Bad Wolf. They refer to them as well. They, they talk about, we're off doing this. and Never underestimate how Big Finish will crowbar gap. Fair. <laughs> They've had like 20 Christopher Eccleston adventures. <laughs> I always imagined that in the five seconds between him disappearing and reappearing in Rose, he went off to have a bunch of solo adventures, thought, I don't like that, I'm going to go and pick up this person that I met. <laughs> she made quite an impression on me. Yeah. That's it, I suppose they'll just randomly bump into other... They'll find a way. <laughs> a lot of stuff happened between the Mavity scene and them arriving on the ship. They just bounced around and had a bunch of adventures. Yeah could happen yeah it's good that literally just one trip and it was an accidental trip and in terms of the plot i think we've said as much as we can about the story that actually went on but the character stuff which is great i just loved seeing them taking the time to let the doctor and donna be the doctor and donna in a lower stakes situation where they just had time to be around each other and reaffirm that friendship it was nice if the not things did win because the tardis disappears because of the hostile action even if they did win the situation wouldn't really ask the only stake really is the doctor and donna would have been killed But universally, the TARDIS would never return and the spaceship would still explode. So it's very personal stakes. What does the Doctor make the point that the TARDIS might return if the hostile action resolves itself, presumably by them dying and they could ride the TARDIS back? Isn't that the implication? I don't know. Maybe. Because I suppose if the TARDIS kind of knows they have an unspoken bond between TARDIS and the thingy, I think it'd probably be like... Doesn't smell right. Doesn't pass the smell (laughs) test. You have three knee joints. It flips the Donna straight out. It's like, nah. <laughs> if the David Tennant and the camera tape are like, no, I'm just locking down. Or <laughs> just enclose them in. It'd become like that little Peter Capaldi, the cube. It'd be like, nah. <laughs> I did love Tennant's speech about the TARDIS when it goes missing. I imagine what happens when it goes missing. Oh, yeah. And it's like this centre of that little city. Yeah. That was very lovely. I like that idea. And it's almost an exploration of the impact the Doctor has on the people that they encounter as well. The idea of, I barge into these lives and then ruin them. And he's talking about an entire civilization that rises and falls based on their reaction to the TARDIS. I wonder if that's part of his reflection as well, the way he sees himself as this destructive object going in and ruining everything. And then he's still there when the dust settles, but the damage he's done is irreparable. I thought of that speech a bit when I thought about the Parting of the Ways. There's the moment in the Parting of the Ways at the end of the first season of the revival where the Doctor talks about the TARDIS continuing on without him. And he's talking to Rose as a hologram and he says, just leave it. Eventually, it'll be a small box in the middle of nowhere gathering dust. Nobody will notice it. Nobody will pay it a second look. It'll just die. It'll be a curiosity that just fades away and was once this great and important thing and is now just 
there. And it's kind of interesting that the 14th Doctor's speech is very much the opposite of that, which is, even if the TARDIS is without me and it lands somewhere and it kind of gets stuck there, it becomes the centre of the universe and entire civilizations, as you said, rise and fall and are built around it. And it does feel like, is Davies maybe meditating on how Doctor Who itself has changed in the nearly 20 years since he brought it back? Obviously, the Time War is a metaphor for the trauma of cancellation, the show going away and coming back. But Davies, at the end of that first season, being like, well, look, if there is no second season of Doctor Who and with the Christopher Eccleston stuff that was happening there maybe was a significant chance that there wouldn't be would this just end up being a curiosity Doctor Who had this chance to come back and it lost it would it just fade away and be completely forgotten like you were saying about Merlin and Primeval and all those shows well actually now I know that it did build a civilization around it it geek chicked out for like 10 (laughs) years yeah that's it but also Doctor Who's fundamentally unkillable even if the Whitaker era even if the power of the Doctor was the last Doctor Who episode it'd be back in about five years. There's no way that the show would be left as long as it was between Survival and Rose, allowing for the TV movie. I do think there is this sense of Davies feeling more optimistic about what Doctor Who is and where Doctor Who is in the culture, reflected in that speech, just comparing those two speeches, I think. Well, you see it in Blink, where the TARDIS is left for decades without anyone to interact with it. It's a mysterious thing that the police have picked up. We can't get into this. We don't know what the hell it is. And then in turn left as well, you had the doctor's dead, but the TARDIS is still here and it's kind of dying maybe. We don't know. It's trying to help in some way though. And in Blink, it's kept alive by DVDs. Feels very much like a commentary. (laughs) Doctor Who will survive as long as the DVD range. There's all these different things, but I definitely read it as more of the Doctor seeing himself in the TARDIS. It's this thing he's connected to in ways that he's connected to nothing else. And it's, I imagine the TARDIS goes and does this because that's what I do. (laughs) And then it comes back to me. It's like this pet that leaves the house in the morning. You don't know what it gets up to and it's not there. And (laughs) then it comes home with a mouse's head in its mouth. And it's like, what have you been up to? That's Davies pitching one of the dozen other Doctor Who spinoffs as part of the Hooniverse. The Adventures of the TARDIS. (laughs) Well, Supernatural did an episode from the perspective of the car, so anything's possible. (laughs) Tardy party. Yeah, could happen. There's a Captain Marvel comic set entirely from the viewpoint and narration of her cat. (laughs) And it's just like, in the background, she's fighting something. It's like, it's got play with this it's just in the ship just batting and in the background there's like explosions and she's getting thrown through the window and she's like, yeah, I'm going to have a snooze. I love all format stuff like that. The Zeppo is one of my favourite episodes of Buffy. I love it when shows play with that. Pizza dog and Hawkeye, yeah. Yeah, I think you could actually do that as a normal episode of the show. The TARDIS drifts off and here's what happens when it's not there. <laughs> it's like Love and Monsters, basically, but except the TARDIS. So the Doctor is doing some sort of crazy thing in the background, but you don't see what it is. Or in the Zeppo, where there's a season finale happening in the background. And <laughs> it's all Xander's episode. You don't see what the familiar beats of that are. The actual crisis is, yeah. Yeah, I think that would work. But yeah, I love that speech. And it's very telling that the Doctor was, again, opening up to someone. That was the second time he did it across those two special... Well, at the time, too special. He's not opening up to the real Donna, but he thinks he is. And she's close enough. She's able to empathise with him in some way. Yeah. So yeah, great episode. Yeah. yeah. I would revisit it. I think it is let down slightly by the dodgy screen screen. <laughs> I don't mind. It's fine. Compared to how Doctor Who has looked in the past, I don't think that corridor is the worst offender. No. And again, the universe's longest corridor. What better way to mark the 60th? <laughs> and it, they do end up running down it. That's the climax of the episode. Yeah. Well, the weird duplicates have turned into gazelles. Yeah, like gorillas? Or is that, like, <laughs> is that what the tenant thing is doing, where he's running on his knuckles? Like Split. 
Oh, that's very good. He's just splitting across. We should use split as a verb like that. You're right, actually. <laughs> did you see the behind the scenes where David Tennant actually did the backwards bend? I did not. It is a Lexorcist thing. Amazing. What astounded me is that so much of it's practical. Obviously not the giant blocking the corridor size, but the hands that he's dragging on the ground are practical, which is incredible. I love that stuff so much. Let Doctor Who be goofy and silly. Yeah, and the thing is, you could have still used those entities and had Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi in as well, yeah. because you could have had the Doctor entity be confused and then turn into Matt Smith for a while or Peter Capaldi for a while. That could have worked. But I'm glad that they didn't. I was happy with just, this is what our anniversary specials are about. That's the thing with the power of the Doctor. The power of the Doctor was just last year, and it is literally only two full-length episodes ago, and that had enough cameos and continuity for me. Bring back previous Doctors, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You can't go from having nine Doctors to then having another nine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's way too much. Plus, Peter Capaldi said recently that He's done with it. He did the job and then he doesn't want to go back. That's him. And Chris Truxton is very done with it. Unless they fire Unless Russell they T. Fire Davies, everyone. fire Julia Garden. And I love that they're like, and Billy, what about yourself? I do it in a heartbeat. Yeah. <laughs> well, she sits there with her head in her hands as Eccleston is yeah, ranting yeah. about it. I don't think she's got her head. I think she's smiling like, what did you expect the answer to this question was going to be? <laughs> Benignly, like, I know Chris well enough. I filmed a TV season with him. I remember how this went. We all know. What answer are you expecting? So awful that I did another year. <laughs> I think before we jump to the giggle, this is the good spot to bring in Destination Scarrow. Oh, okay. And I think I'd also like to very briefly touch upon my favourite 60th anniversary special, which was Tales from the TARDIS. Ah. Any of you watching the Tales from the TARDIS? I didn't watch any of those, no, because I don't have the grounding to appreciate them. No. But with that grounding, every one of them made me cry. (laughs) (laughs) They're very lovely. Are they DVD extras, effectively, where the two actors get together and talk, or are they in character? They are in character. They've picked certain stories. I mentioned Earthshock earlier. Well. Earthshock is the fifth Doctor. I think Genesis of the Daleks. No, not just because Tomica doesn't do one. Sylvester McCoy does one. That's a Dalek one. And then each one essentially is, within the TARDIS itself, there's a memory bank which allows each Doctor's face and their companions to kind of not continue. It gets a bit clunky with the giggle. The bi-generation is implied to be a factor here as well, I think, as Davies has suggested. Essentially, it's a techno-bubble way of saying the actors are reprising their roles to watch over in a bittersweet way. A little like, oh, remember when we'd do adventures like this? And it'd be like, episode one had start and stuff. And then they fade into view and the Doctor Who theme plays. They were so very lovely and I think sometimes in terms of anniversary stuff just again it's just like all the old episodes are all free and when I play with you've got license fee and whatever but here's just a really lovely and I always watch them and be like Aww, little Colin Baker and he's back and he's just happy and little Peter Davison talking about Adric and stuff. So they are in character conversations then? Yes. They're still playing their characters, yeah, of whichever Doctor or companion they are. And they're just having a little retrospective. The big one is the first one, which you mentioned, which is Earthshock, which is the fifth Doctor and Tegan, which is obviously Peter Davison and Janet Fielding. And that's written by Davies. And they talk about... It's really weird because in the show themselves, they never talk about the death of Adric and Earthshock. Spoiler for Earthshock, an episode that aired 40 years ago now. But in the show... They never unpack the death of a companion. So to Isaac's point, there's something really sweet in watching Peter Davison in character as the Fifth Doctor, watching Janet Fielding in character as Tegan, sitting down and going, we never talked about this. We never actually got to have this conversation. Yeah, it's all hit. And I was like, well, yeah, they didn't. Like they mentioned at the end of the giggle. No, they just continued from this. All right, what's next? Our friend's dead or whatever. (laughs) That was classic Doctor Who all over, wasn't it? exactly. They never explored the emotional impact of stuff. It was just on to the next thing. Or at least as I understand it. 
Yeah, that's just how television was written back in the day. Yeah, it just carried on. We don't have enough time on this podcast, which is already very long. Only halfway through, and it's like three hours. I love that Isaac's like, let me just throw another bunch of chum into the conversation. (laughs) I wholeheartedly support this, Isaac. I am all here for this. But in the 80s, you had this push with the Fifth Doctor and with the Sixth Doctor to make the show more like a soap opera, because obviously Coronation Street was massively popular on ITV, EastEnders was about to launch, and they gave this big ensemble around the Fifth Doctor where he travelled with Adric, he travelled with Tegan, he travelled with Nyssa simultaneously, which is one of the largest teams dating back to the First Doctor. But the issue was that none of the writers on staff knew how to write a soap opera. So they couldn't do the stuff that they were trying to do. Adric's death was meant to be an earth shock, if you will, but it was meant to be this big traumatic event that the characters would theoretically process, but the writing staff didn't have the freedom or perhaps even the ability to write it that way. Things like, say, The Sixth Doctor and Perry, where The Sixth Doctor was meant to be introduced as this sort of abrasive character. In his first episode, he literally throttles the companion Perry, but the idea was that The Sixth Doctor would have an arc that would carry across his first season, but the writers and the way that the show was produced maybe didn't make that possible. And that's one of the reasons why Colin Baker, who is, I have a huge soft spot for Colin Baker, and I'm delighted that he has been rehabilitated in the way that he has through Big Finish and things like that. I think that the character was kind of hindered by that from the outset. He was kind of hobbled by that because they didn't know how to do the stuff that Davies does. Davies, when he took over the show, Davies' first season is so reverential to Colin Baker's troubled era on the show. The idea of an army of Daleks out of the dead, that's a plot point lifted from the Colin Baker Dalek story, Revelation of the Daleks. The idea of the reality television space station that is being operated by a fascistic power, that's vengeance on Varos. That's another beloved Sixth Doctor. We mentioned the return of the celebrity historical. That is something that was popular in the Sixth Doctor era as well. To Isaac's point, it's nice to see Davies going back and kind of acknowledging this stuff and getting to weave that stuff into the show retroactively through these, which is nice. Yeah, and Davies quite clearly modelled Doctor Who on shows like Buffy and things. Yeah. Where the saying is, stories aren't what they're about, it's why they're about it. Yeah. Certainly his focus is very much on, I need to understand how the characters feel about this, how they feed into this story, what they think about it, how it changes them. Well, that, that's the direction TV was heading in anyway, yeah. when people like Joss Whedon and stuff were going into prominence. And it just made sense for Doctor Who to be in that mould. And the fact that he watched Buffy and thought, I'll take that and I'll do more spin on it. And you see he wears his influences on his sleeve as well when you talk about in Last of the Time Lords. It was, yes, the jump ahead a year. That was because I watched Battlestar Galactica and thought, I'll take that. (laughs) Things like that. So I have no objection to showrunners acknowledging the fact that they're influenced by TV that they're watching because of course they are. And people can accuse them of stealing all they like, but everybody's stealing from everybody else. And that, Craig, is a great segue into talking about the giggle. We'll put a pin in that and come back to it. The power of television to influence people. Well, we did have the Bernard Cribbins cameo at the end of Wild Blue Yonder, which I thought was delightful. And you had the weird, he's here, but we're not going to show him at the start of the giggle. Here's the wheelchair. And he's off screen shooting gophers. I hate The gophers have force fields, which is a very weird choice to make. The guy that does not use a gun. Hates war, but he'll shoot an animal. So scarred by war that he refused to let his granddaughter or great-granddaughter sing The Wild Blue Yonder. He's like, no, no, but those gophers. Those gophers. I think it was moles, but yeah. Moles, apologies. Maybe that's just, that's what he put on because he knew the doctor was around, but now the doctor's around <laughs> all the time. So he just has to be like, shall love it. I'm on Call of Duty, but you're not. He's like, oh yeah, no, war's bad actually. Yeah, I agree with you. And now he has to like, actually like, I'm just going to be my true self. It was a great little cameo. It was just nice to see him. 
and sweet. It broke my heart. Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi will have an infinite number of opportunities to come back to Doctor Who if they choose to over the course of the next couple of decades. Getting to see Bernard Cribbins this last time made my eyes water. It was lovely. You mentioned the idea of going into Wild Blue Yonder and expecting a cameo fest. It's kind of delightful that the Wilf cameo at the end was all that I needed to sustain me. <laughs> I think everybody expected him to be in the giggle. So it was an actual surprise at the end of yeah. Wild Blue Yonder when he shows up. And then obviously there were scenes in the giggle, but he was not well enough, unfortunately, to film them. Yeah, they wrote them, but never filmed them. But you had a wheelchair stunt double in the giggle. Don't worry, get him home. It'll be fine. You're in the middle of this gigantic crisis. You guys just take care of him. <laughs> so the giggle then, which is our Russell T. Davies nonsensical finale of the specials. <laughs> I kind of loved it. I think this is pretty great. My main gripe with the giggle is that it's clearly, it wasn't a Toymaker story at first, but the Toymaker's been put in, and I think it could have been a bit more integrated well. Who was it supposed to be initially then? No, it feels like they started initially with, it's essentially a story of, it's Twitter. It's everyone has to be right all the time. So Russell T. Davies watched The Impossible Astronaut and Dave the Moon and thought, I can do that. But make it bad. <laughs> it feels like it was that sort of thing first. That was his sort of typical finale. Craig laying his cards on the table here. I like that we just breeze by that. By make it bad, I mean he made the outcome of the message oh, okay, bad okay, rather sorry. than okay. the episode is bad. Although I don't like this episode that much. <laughs> Second viewing, I enjoyed it way more. I really into it. it. Tends to happen with the regeneration ones because obviously the first time you watch it, you're just waiting for the moment, no, yeah. that split second. But then when you watch them again, you're like, oh, I can actually enjoy the story. Oh, there's a whole episode before that happens. I actually really like that they did the regeneration mid-episode, and I believe it was spoiled online or whatever. I wasn't paying attention, so I was very pleasantly surprised. Every major twist was leaked way ahead of time. Yeah. It was when the Metacrisis passed down in the Star Beast. I was thinking, oh great, it's all true then. Okay. I love that you sound like you have just as much enthusiasm as Harrison Ford delivering that line in The Force Awakens. It's true. All of it. <laughs> Bit of tidbit, what they did, they're like, Harrison, is it true that you really hate Star Wars? It's true. All of it. Like, oh, good, good. Wrap that. <laughs> it's like Homer Simpson. J.J. Abrams has got that big cowboy hat with a lens in it. <laughs> Again, this is one of those warts and all things where I have accepted that there are some things about Russell T. Davies that will not change no matter what. And this was always going to be a Davies-era finale. And it feels like a grab bag of Davies-era tropes. It does. Unit is very much like Torchwood in the season two finale, for example. The come with me, we could be celestial, we could travel through the cosmos together, is very much like the master during the third season. They explicitly call out the Archangel Network when referencing the satellite network. There's more stuff why I think it wasn't originally. It's not a toy maker. The rules of toy maker is that they just love playing games and they're bound by rules of play. That's set up right in the middle as this is the toy maker's big deal. But then the other stuff around the story, like making everyone able to win all the time. That's removing the fun element of games. And also the Spice Girls scene starts off like it could have been, is emerging from this different doors it's showing around, kind of like a whack-a-mole situation. But then no one can win that. It's not a game. It's just a toy maker just relentlessly killing and dancing. <laughs> if you find the right door, I'll stop. <laughs> like if Circle of Doors had emerged around or something. Okay, is there a pattern? Is there something I can see? It's a challenge. It's another challenge that becomes a game. But instead, it's just mindless murder and doing a big scene. 
and throwing Kate Stewart into a wall. It is. It's very much Davies doing what the master did in the third season finale. They have the Scissor Sisters. I can't decide. It's a similar kind of sequence. Or like Rasputin Master as well. They're doing a yeah. big dance. This feels very mastery, but they're also like, just did the master. Who else can we use? And apparently, Stooky Bill idea came first. Yes. Oh, TV. So this is all about TV. And then TV went to Puppet. And I was like, oh, Puppet, who have we got? Oh, this could be a toy maker thing. So it does feel a bit like this was a master sort of story that they then swapped out for someone else. I mean, the toy makers are fantastic in this. It's really good. Neil Patrick Harris is so fun and addictive to watch. But he's not stretching himself, is he? He's being Neil Patrick Harris. He's doing a celebrity guest turn. But also the amount of stuff he can just do. He can juggle and do sleight of hand <laughs> and dance and sing and do accents. It's just like, tick, 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 tick. Yeah, 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 fine, 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 fine. Just tick all your boxes, NPH. Off you go. Can you do a backflip? Is like, no, well, we can cut the backflip out of the script. <laughs> <laughs> I guess nine out of ten amazing skills for one person to have is good for this episode. <laughs> I didn't mention it earlier, but Craig mentioned Tenet doing the back thing himself in Wild Blue Yonder, and I'm like, he had massive back surgery the last <laughs> time he played the role. That seems kind of reckless. It's obviously really good surgery then. Yeah, obviously it's like a little slinky. Basically, I can go downstairs like this. Plus, he's over 50 now. He's quite nimble for... Yeah, he's climbing up the meep ship. <laughs> and he does full speed lap around the TARDIS and stuff. He did say that it seemed like a good idea for me to run around the TARDIS like a gleeful child until I was on my like ninth take of it. (laughs) (laughs) Just like exhausted. It's worth mentioning here, you mentioned the idea of television coming first, because that came, I believe, from Davies making Nolly, which is the TV show made with Helena Bonham Carter. That is also where he first met the guy that he cast as John Logie Bear, which is John McKay. He played that same role in Nolly as well as part of research, and that's where he found Stooky Bill. We've talked a lot about Davies, how he has changed and how he hasn't changed. Davies went away from Doctor Who, and we've talked about the gap between Davies leaving and Davies coming back in terms of Doctor Who, but it also feels like in terms of the shows that he made. I remember reading an article in, I think it was The Guardian, around the time that Davies left and Moffat took over. And the gist of the article was basically Doctor Who as hostage exchange program, where in order to keep Doctor Who running, British television has to sacrifice one of its great writers for X number of years to run this show, which means that you lose all the stuff that they could be doing otherwise. And the idea in particularly British television of writing as a social good. Davies was compared to Polyakov. He wrote second coming and stuff like that. Queer as folk. Some of the most important television in British television history. During the gap between his two tenures running Doctor Who, he does Cucumber, Banana and Tofu. He does It's a Sin. He does Years and Years. He does Nolly. He does It's a Very English Scandal or a Very British Scandal. I always get those two confused. The one with you, Grant. Yeah, I think it's a pretty British scandal. But he does these programs which are much more socially conscious. And I think you can see him bringing that influence to bear on these specials, to John Logie Bear, if you will, <laughs> on these specials. Oh, it was a very English scandal. Sorry, I just Googled it. I know get it wrong. But just in case anyone wanted to Google it. I admire you doubling down, though. I wouldn't have called you on it. I admire that. Someone in the comments is screaming, but no, they don't have to. That was for Violet. <laughs> She'd get on us. <laughs> But it does feel a little bit like Davies has big read, step back, why I love The Giggle, why I think The Giggle's great, why I probably connect with it more than Craig does, I think, why I'm on Team Isaac of the podcast here, is that I think, I flagged it earlier, but Davies is very cognizant of the power and the responsibility of television, where this feels like an episode that is 
about the idea of television as a medium. For the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who, you finish with a story about how television is the most powerful force in the world. And obviously, not just television. Streaming, online media, social media, anything with a screen. The idea is that the toy maker uses television to embed a subtle subliminal giggle, a message that turns people into their worst selves. It turns them into radical lunatics. Twitter basically. I think it is Twitter, but I think it's also reductive to describe it. I think it is certainly Twitter, but I think it is not just Twitter. I think it is also Fox News. Well, Russell T. Davies probably isn't on Twitter, so it can't just be that. He is on Twitter, I believe, but a lot of his speech has also been very conscious of transphobia in the media. We talked about how a lot of the presentation of things like making the TARDIS wheelchair accessible, taking Davros out of the wheelchair, including Yasmin Finney and including Rose as a transgender character and performer, all those are choices he made because he's very aware of the power of television. And I think it's kind of incredible that the 60th anniversary ends with a story that is about the power of television, where Davies is essentially, in a way that sounds really self-important when I say it, so I'm kind of cautious about saying it, but it's about the power of Doctor Who on television. The sequence early in the episode where the Doctor meets the guy standing in the road, and he's like, my taxes pay for this road. I own this road. I have as much right to be here as this truck does. And the Doctor's like, you could just go and stand over there and be safe. And the man's like, no, but I paid for this road. My brother and sister during the pandemic are both doctors. They worked on wards. They worked in COVID wards. A lot of the public people that they dealt with, not every Everybody, not even a majority, not even arguably a statistically significant amount, but enough of them to ruin the experience and to make it deeply unpleasant for everybody had that sort of rhetoric around it, where it's like, why would I wear a mask? That's infringing on my civil liberties. The way that Jenna Redgrave, as Kate, where she talks about that, where she's like, I think it's very important the person who's asked me this is an alien. I've seen Shirley walk. I know that you're lying. Which, funnily enough, is a criticism people had after the star beast of that character. She's been seen walking in photos and stuff. Oh, really? Yeah. He predicted that reaction. Yeah. I mean, of course people are going to react that way. And then the Trinity Wells thing, where she turns into Alex Jones, where she's an anti... What's the device called? She's an anti-vaxxer, basically, but it's whatever that device is called. Oh, the armband thing. The one American newsreader. Yeah, who exists in the universe, or in the universe, if you will. Oh, it was when Shirley crossed her legs over. That was it. That's when people Ah, kicked off. Why is she in a wheelchair? I just saw her move her legs. Because she can move her legs, but can't walk all of the time. That's why. But the issue is that all that stuff is normalized through television. You're right, it's also normalized through social media, it's normalized through Facebook, it's normalized through Twitter, but it is normalized through things like Fox News. The famous story that people in America leave Fox News on so long that the ident burns itself into the television. (laughs) So during the commercials, you can see Fox kind of just emblazoned in off-color pixels in the corner of the screen. But this idea that television is something that comes into your home and you absorb it just passively, the same way the not-things absorb the noise and the signal that's being broadcast from our universe. And then this idea that maybe what if you countered it? That is my grand sweeping statement about these 60th anniversary specials, is Davies looking at the corrosive power of something like Fox News. And let's be clear, always something he's been thinking about. Going back to his first season, The Long Game is an episode about the corrosive power of Fox News. Bad Wolf is about reality television and the way that that makes us all competitors. These are not new themes, but these are obviously themes that he feels a lot more strongly about now in the culture in which we live. And I think that you could argue that these specials are about Davies going, but what if television was a force for good? What if I, as a writer of television, having the platform that I have, took the opportunity to make television that counteracted that? What if I produced television that 
included trans people, that didn't alienate them or didn't treat them as other or monstrous? What if I made a show that was about how wheelchair users are part of the world and they deserve to be allowed in the TARDIS? Sometimes when I don't feel like just flying off at the end of an episode without welcoming them in. But (laughs) this idea that the images that we send have power, the images that we broadcast affect people who consume them, so that creates an ethical obligation on me as somebody who produces these images to be conscious of the images that I am making. That is my big picture. I think that is what was on Davy's mind when he came back to Doctor Who. In the case of Shirley, showing her cross her legs in the first episode is deliberate because every shot that you put in an episode has to be deliberate. Yeah. So that's a deliberate, there is nuance in the whole wheelchair user conversation as in not everybody in a wheelchair is just paralyzed from the waist down there are ranges of it here and then it happens again in the giggle although with the whole power of television thing so there's a message embedded in every screen that is causing people to go nuts i feel like the resolution to that should be that the doctor finds some way to use those screens (laughs) to undo it instead it just kind of goes away it doesn't actually get resolved i suppose it's already done that that's how you defeat the master with the archangel network he uses it, yeah. yeah. So I suppose you don't want to retread your whole... I also wonder if Davies is even more cynical than he was when he wrote those <laughs> earlier episodes. I accept that it is a structural problem with the episode. What makes this episode less than perfect is that there is no resolution to the entire premise of the episode. <laughs> that is a very big problem. I am not downplaying or belittling it. The Toymaker's gone, so everything he did is also gone. <laughs> I actually quite like the idea that, because you have the moment where gathered in unit, the doctor goes, just to be clear, this is all on you guys. This isn't just the toy maker. This is inherent human nature. It's your problem. I kind of like that Davies doesn't give you a nice, easy answer of, well, the doctor fixed it and we all get along again. You can imagine yourself going, well, that's going to lead to some very awkward conversations afterward. The options coming out of this episode are either leave it unresolved, which is what Davies chooses in this case, Or something like The Last of the Time Lords, where you do a magic rewind reset of the universe that completely erases anything significant that happened, and we all pretend that nothing has any consequences at all. And I don't think either of them are right solutions. I don't think either of them are great solutions. But I kind of like that Davies doesn't go back to the well of magic reset, doctor push button, fix world. Well, Isaac, it was a point you made again in a conversation we had that we didn't record was about you've probably got Sylvia at home with Rose just spouting (laughs) some horrible anti-trans rhetoric at her. I like that they do that with Kate. I like that they have Kate say those things about Shirley. It's unpleasant and it's uncomfortable, but it makes it explicit what this is. And it's prophetic because people reacted exactly that way about that character. It was weird because obviously he wouldn't have been able to put that in because these were filmed before any of them aired. So... Just, no, you just correctly predicted that that's how people would react. Correctly predicted the worst thing about human beings. (laughs) (laughs) This is the thing with Davy's view of human nature being inherently grim. Even our jaunty children choir are singing war songs. (laughs) Humans were just the worst. Apparently. But that's one of the things that I didn't like about it as well, is you didn't really see the scope of it. They were just standing in... Avengers Tower unit tower talking about, well, this is gripping the whole world. But then, like you said, offline, Isaac, it could have been, let's see what chaos is happening in the noble household because of this. Yeah, but I suppose also, again, there's a lot going on. Yeah. So here's what it's like. Here's the sort of example. You can figure it out. This is happening everywhere. (laughs) We're safe in our ivory tower, just (laughs) not experiencing it. Don't go back to that family that had to talk to each other because of the Wi-Fi. Just (laughs) recast them, guys. (laughs) Just a battle royale. They just got their dead phones and just beating each other up with them. To the point of accepting that this is an issue with the episode, and I'm not downplaying that, I do think 
to Davy's credit, he has gotten better at the basic mechanics of what he does, where this functions like every other Davy's finale, which is a bunch of stuff thrown at the wall incredibly quickly and then wrapped up with no real finesse <laughs> in terms of plot. But I do think, for me, this is maybe his second best finale behind The Parting of the Ways, because at least his transitions are clear and clean. Once you are through a third of the episode, you do not have to worry about that third anymore, which is kind of <laughs> incredible. As soon as the Doctor goes back to the 1923, 22, whatever it is, you don't have to worry about the social media TV commentary anymore because now he's facing the celestial toy or the toy maker. In my opinion, the best bit is the middle when it's just pure toy maker nonsense. It's not just one corridor, lots of corridors. My favourite joke before we get to that was the not Boris Johnson Prime Minister. Yes. That I really hate all of you. No change there then. (laughs) (laughs) He never disguised his contempt. It's no different. Daddy's coming home. (laughs) That was good. Some of that commentary. My favourite bit of comedy acting is when the toy makers will be telling the story of the Doctor's Lost Companions. It's like, and Clara, who was killed by a bird? (laughs) Neil Patrick Harris giving a cold read there. Yeah, his face just sort of does a big thing. (laughs) And when they go back in time, that's where it really brings in the, you never stop, because we've just met Mel again. And for viewers like me, it's the first time I've met Mel. I used to travel with the Doctor. I used to be you, Donna. Oh, I wasn't the first redhead. And so on. It was the idea of, yeah, the Doctor just moves on. Finds new companions, keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. Slight nitpick, Mel wasn't the first redhead. (laughs) That's what she didn't know. Donna just knows that she wasn't the first redhead. Yeah. Yeah. I do love that they have that conversation where they're walking down the street and say, well, if I were to sit in the TARDIS talking about all my previous companions, I'd just never leave. And to Isaac's point, that is the entire point of Tales of the TARDIS. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, they're still there, just having a chat. Isn't that the entire point of the Martha series as well? The Doctor just talking about Rose the entire (laughs) time? (laughs) Maybe the Doctor learned the wrong lesson from that situation then. Okay, maybe it's somewhere between talking about previous companions all the time and not at all. (laughs) But one previous companion (laughs) all the time, to be clear. Yeah. And then, oh yeah, I'll bring up Jack when it's relevant. (laughs) Depends on how that goes. Well, yeah, when John Barrowman's feeling a bit insecure about leading the (laughs) spin-off. There was a big spin-off feeling with this one, like units that we have. Oh yeah. The Vlinks. The Vlinks. We've got that guy (laughs) with eight shoulder pads. You have Mel, obviously, who's being Mel, positioned as a legacy character. Kate. Kate. Shirley's been set up a couple of times. You've got your core cast. You've got the ensemble for the unit spin-off. Yeah. And it'll just be Torchwood again. Yeah, it'll be Torchwood again. Torchwood, but with probably a bit less sex. <laughs> I don't know what the Vlinks gets up to. I actually want the unit lower rank spin-off because you hear Donna negotiating a 120 grand a year job with five weeks holiday and you have the lowly office worker that turned into a balloon just thinking, yes, I don't earn that much agony, and yeah. I got turned into a balloon. <laughs> I can't remember his name though in the Star Beast when he possessed the soldiers. There's just a sort of squad leader guy. Hmm. He's just a regular unit guy. He's just like, <laughs> oh, this area's secure and stuff. Let's have a bit of chat with him. Let's bring in some of these. The Red Caps. I've not watched many of the John Pertwee ones, because that was when UNIT came about, and there was like Yates and Benton and... Well, the UNIT family, yeah. There was like the Brigadier, and he was topped, and then all the other ventures. It was always with just some some of the privates. They'd always yep. just chat with them, really. There wasn't really a big base, so they'd always have to phone up their head, because obviously they couldn't afford to be like, let's go to Geneva or whatever. So it was like, oh yeah, Geneva <laughs> said it's fine, or... Washington's cool with it and stuff. I still think the office but unit has legs because it's people complaining about the favoritism former companions get in the organization and stuff like that. <laughs> Workaday stuff. Look at Mel, she earns more than us. Yeah. What she do? <laughs> the leaks I don't know even if it's true, the war between land and sea, which is rumors of the first spin-off. 
Oh, the sea devil. With the sea devils. I love that. People are like, why are they bringing back the sea devils? They're not. It's because the sea devils are associated with the unit era. And the obvious transparent point here is we are doing a unit spin-off. Because <laughs> the sea devils are one of the ambassadors of the Pertwee era. They're like the Silurians. They're an alien that is inexorably tied to one specific era of the show. I know they appeared in, obviously, Warriors of the Deep, but that was a kind of a nostalgic throwback. Yeah. Even Warriors of the Deep, it's Earth military versus... Yeah! Still the same. I'd also kind of love it if, you know how Marvel started with it, everyone's going to watch the first TV show, so we'll do our weirdest one, we'll do the sitcom one, like WandaVision. Even though it's obviously going to be a unit spin-off, I'd love if this was just Sea Devils versus some Silurians or something, it's just like... <laughs> Everyone's going to watch the first one, so let's just do the weird one first. The, the most esoteric Doctor Who premise <laughs> imaginable. Yeah. And no one cares about it except for one of the writers got like, I've got this big idea. Hear me out. I've got a passion Devil. project for the Sea Devils. It's like, okay, we'll do that first because the ratings will be pretty good for episode one and two. Gattis for years was like, we got to bring back the Ice Warriors. And Moffat apparently spent years going, no, you need a reason to bring them back aside from the fact that you like them. And it wasn't until I think Gattis came up with, okay, we've never seen an Ice Warrior outside their uniform. And Moffat's like, that's an idea. So I do love the idea of one guy in the office being sea devils. And then Davey's like, I don't know. What if? Hear me. It must have been in the Sherlock office. It's just those two <laughs> yeah. spinning the pens around. It's like, the ice warriors. Because like, stop bringing up the ice warriors. It's like, I'll stop bringing them up when you let me do my ice warriors. It's like, fine, we'll do one. The blind banker script is due. We've been in the office for like 12 hours. And it's just every 10 minutes, Mark Gates going like, ice warriors on the moon? Ice warriors <laughs> in the past? <laughs> Oh my god, Mark, we really got to get this Hound of Baskerville story down. <laughs> Isn't that how Sherlock came to be, was them taking long train journeys to and from Cardiff together? <laughs> I do love the idea that the other 50% of those journeys was, don't say don't, it, Mark. Don't picture it. <laughs> yeah, don't. <laughs> and then we got our really boring Ice Warrior story eventually. <laughs> We don't have time for this. I will go to bat for Empress of Mars. <laughs> yeah, same. I like Empress of Mars. I don't. <laughs> So anyway, the Doctor and Donna, they're back in time. They have their chat about, you're on fumes here, Doctor. Our theme of the specials, or one of them, is the idea that the Doctor is, it's a cry for help. He's having a nervous breakdown. That's why the old face is back, maybe. And that's just the way it is. It's, I never stop. I keep going. I keep going. I have to keep going because I can't look back. And that was something Davros said in Journey's End, was he never looks back out of shame. And I guess the Doctor's at the point where it's like, I really need to think about why I keep doing this. Or why I keep falling into these traps and keep making the same mistakes. And then, like you said, Isaac, he's confronted by the deaths of his more recent companions. As in, he's asked to justify or asked to explain them. And it forces him to look back. And that's a really interesting introspective point for him, I think. Yeah, I disagree with Craig. It's just highlighting that it's not as nice. <laughs> You've got a lot of baggage and it's just sort of bringing that up as well. Yeah, and you bring out a lot of it on yourself, it has to be said. To your point, you've talked a little about the obvious televisual influences on this and how much Davies is influenced by Buffy and writing Doctor Who and all that sort of stuff. I do like that there's a sense watching these that he has been influenced by Doctor Who writing this, where he's been influenced by the work that Moffat has done, by the work that Chibnall's done. And I really do like the idea that this is him giving an 11th Doctor or 12th Doctor ending to the 10th Doctor. You always keep running, Doctor. You never slow down. Doesn't really fit, aside from the 24 years you spent with your wife on a, on a planet. Aside from the hundreds of years you spent 
staying for Christmas. Aside from those occasions, you definitely keep running. <laughs> but those exceptions don't prove my point, so I'm not going <laughs> to yeah, bring them no, up. I'm not going to mention them at all, but it, it really does feel like it's Davies going, well, yeah, actually, maybe my conception of the Doctor was somewhat limited. Maybe my idea of the Doctor as the person who has to keep running was a narrow definition of the character that does not encapsulate everything that the character could be. So I basically get a do-over. I get to call him Mulligan. The 14th Doctor feels to a certain extent like Davies with the benefit of 15 years of hindsight going, how would I do this again? Is the ending that I gave these characters back in Journey's End and back in the end of time, is this the best ending I could have given them? Is it the only ending I could have given them? And I do love that this feels like a writer looking at the years of Doctor Who since and going, actually, the writers that followed me came up with some ideas that were interesting that I would like to play with myself now that I know that they're part of the tool set. I really like that. This feels like it's a second go at the 10th Doctor, if that makes sense, where it's like a, oh, the character can have an ending that isn't depressing and tragic and brutal and sad and horrific and violent and leads to lots and lots of death. Maybe these characters can live happily ever after. Who knew? It's a bit of a commentary on franchises in general as well, the idea that they can never end. Yeah. Because then you wouldn't be watching them anymore. They have to keep going. <laughs> Moffat did the, I'm going to lift the regeneration limit so that nobody has to worry about that again. I'll resolve that. And then we've got a whole new life cycle that we can play with. We don't have to think about, oh, he's close to the end of his tenure again for a while anyway. Or maybe not ever now that the timeless child is a thing. Who knows? Who knows how many <laughs> lives the doctor is capable of having? I'm waiting for the episode where the doctor regenerates just five times in the hour, like the curse of fatal death. <laughs> Yeah, could happen. Well, we already had two regenerations from the Doctor in one episode recently. Power of the Doctor regenerates into the Master and then regenerates into Tenant. So <laughs> we're almost there, I guess. Mm. But it's something that's on people's minds when it comes to franchising, even if they're not explicitly thinking about it. The idea of what's going to happen next. One of my favourite things in Age of Ultron is the fact that Stark and Captain America have a conversation about, I want to get to a place where the Avengers aren't needed anymore. And Captain America is very much like, but we're always going to need to fight something, are we? Can these things end? A thing isn't beautiful because it lasts, yeah. Endings are necessary parts of fiction. Yeah. Davies is trying to have his cake and eat it out a bit in this episode by giving the Doctor an ending, but also sending them on, which is actually what I thought was going to happen on Trenzalore, in a way. I thought that the Doctor was somehow going to let go of their old life and then proceed onwards in the Capaldi era being their new life in some way, which is not what happened. But that's what Davies has done here. He's split the Doctor, so he's given the Doctor an ending and a new beginning all in one. And I have mixed feelings about that but it's interesting that it's addressing the notion of this is a franchise and this franchise cannot end and it never will be able to end but also endings are necessary and important yeah. and endings are good having your cake and eating it duplicating your cake and then eating it <laughs> yeah so it's interesting in the the abstract i suppose the idea that doctor who is a franchise but also these characters are people and people need closure in some way or another the by generation i didn't mind because you obviously regeneration is happening a lot you kind of need to freshen up occasionally and bringing a new sweep on it i know he made some comments out of the episode about how it's rippled down throughout everyone that's what i have a bigger problem with he explained how it worked in external stuff can I raise my hand, though, and say that what I like about that, though, is that he didn't say that is how it works. He said, I like to think that it works like this. Okay. 
Yeah, I was going to say as well, I think he put that online. He'd be like, I'm not pointing the episode because I'm not... But I like the idea of there being no canon, so you can imagine... To Craig's point, I agree. You should not need supplemental material to understand what is happening on screen. I do also think the logic of bi-generation, which I'm sure we'll talk about, is ambiguous at best, and somewhat open to interpretation, and I've seen a lot of debate about what it actually means, but I do love that Davies is like, there's no canon. I don't know what happened here. (laughs) I wrote it, and I'm not entirely sure what the rules are. Somebody else can figure that out at their convenience. I love that he's like, yeah, no no canon. Um, it doesn't matter. We'll figure it out. If you think about it rippling back, though, it starts to throw <laughs> up so many questions. So did Eccleson and Tennant have a moment with Billy Piper before Eccleson went off in his TARDIS? What happened? Again, if you apply any logic to it, it doesn't hold up. It's a Davies thing. That's fine. <laughs> My biggest issue with the bi-generation thing is, is how clunky it was, because it's sort of said that David Tennant will go through all the therapy that yes. Shigat was doctor is born with. And then we'll eventually regenerate into Shutigatwa. He's just, he's arrived early or something, but it's not really in there. Yeah, that's the question. Does Shutigatwa's regeneration, the 15th Doctor's regeneration, occur at the moment that he gets shot? Or does it occur in the future and he is pulled back instantly to the moment where he is shot? Arguably, this is nerd splitting hairs, but this is a Doctor Who podcast and I'm a nerd. I don't have much hair on my head, but I have plenty in my beard. That's the kind of stuff that I'm hazy on. As you said, it's implied that the 14th Doctor will at some stage in the future regenerate into the 15th. And therefore, the 15th will benefit from, as you said, therapy. We're doing therapy in the wrong order. But that doesn't really fit with what you see on screen, which is the regeneration appears to occur at the moment that the toy maker shoots him through the heart. As you said, the narrative logic of it is incoherent, is a word that occurs to me thinking about it. As is the way with Davies, I think it works emotionally and it works thematically. But yeah, I agree entirely. Yeah. And then having the TARDIS duplicate as well, in order for it to be, well, this is you slowing down to heal, I feel like Tenant's Doctor should be stuck without a TARDIS. Yeah. I do also think, to get back to your point about the TARDIS being his closest friend, though, that's the thing where it's like being left and abandoned by your best friend. My feelings on bi-generation are up in the air and will largely depend on how it is used, where I think in the context of this story and in terms of the themes that Davies is playing with, I think it's great. I think it works really well. I think it's a trick you do once and it fits and it lets Davies have his happy ending and Davies has earned his happy ending. Tenet has earned his happy ending. I'm glad that this means that you can use it to get a clean slate for 15 where they're calling the next season season one again. Yeah. So it's a clean jumping on point. The slate is clear. I love that. The lingering issue now is what happens when the next Russell T Davies finale happens and David Tennant doesn't show up to help. Yes. Because of course he would. It's the why aren't the Avengers here question, isn't it? It's not even that, though. That's stage four of the potential concerns I have in my head. Stage one is everybody's going to be watching every week and thinking, where's David Tennant? He's still the Doctor, right? That clip you have of the Graham Norton show where Gatwa has to explain to Graham Norton, I definitely am the Doctor, but David Tennant, he's still the Doctor? Oh, he's, he's also still the Doctor, but I'm still the Doctor, really. I'm a doctor, not the doctor. Yeah, which is not a messaging you want when you have your first black doctor and you have your first openly queer doctor. It's not like, oh, by the way, the straight white guy is in the corner in case things get too hectic. Don't worry about it. The other thing is, as Isaac pointed out, the inevitability now that we have Disney money of spinoffs and the possibility that one of those spinoffs being Disney going, well, look, David Tennant is still massively popular. Catherine Tate is still massively popular. They have a TARDIS. How long before we just back up a dump truck full of money and we make eight episodes of the two of them having adventures in time and space people want that paul mcgann series <laughs> yeah yeah paul mcgann's just he's back 
He can do anything, basically. Even with Paul McGann, if he comes back, and I don't imagine him coming back, I love McGann. I think McGann's great, but he's not a big draw for general audiences in the role. Yeah, because he's really enjoying doing... He's done a ton of Big Finish, and his oh, Big he's great, yeah. stories are sequential. Yeah. The other Doctor can kind of pin, but his are like, this is one, two, three, four, one, two, three. They're a story, yeah. He's already done that. Why would he want to do that again? I've already been doing this for like, 15 years. I'm kind of happy yeah. just doing this and I can record it at home. He's also 10 years older than when he appeared in live action and regenerated. <laughs> yeah. I know a lot of people are like, oh, but we'd love to see this. They've made like heaps of him. <laughs> but I do think that the Tenet situation is different because Tenet is the most popular doctor who ever doctored. Yeah. And so the temptation is there if ratings drop, for example. But also if ratings don't drop and your partners over at Disney are like, well, come on, we really want a spinoff. How would you like an extra $200 million to play with for the next two seasons or whatever? I trust Davies implicitly. I trust Davies to have the creative integrity not to do something like that. But I also, as Craig said, what happens after he leaves? Don't trust Disney. It's an Adam West style that Rusty Davis has a big bust of David Tennant. <laughs> he just raises the head and there's a button underneath it. And it's a real David Tennant because his spine is a slinky now. Yeah. And David Tennant's just sitting at home with his wife and kids. He just like falls through the ground and there's like a pipe and he lands in his brown suit and is like, What? 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 You're fighting the Cyberman. Go quick. No time to explain. You're fighting the Cyberman. I imagine it being more like the Batman Returns thing where Michael Keaton has a room in the house that just has a giant bat signal that just points <laughs> into the room whenever he's needed. Otherwise, he's just sitting there brooding. Yeah, it's a big light and he goes into his living room and it just says, are you free Monday, 4am for makeup? And it's like, ah. <laughs> that is the thing that dangles over this. And I love media as somebody who is a critic i loved the force awakens as a nice nostalgic treat the problem is that i now live in a culture where all of pop culture is a nice nostalgic treat like the force <laughs> awakens so retroactively i'm like oh my god i really loathe the force awakens <laughs> the force awakens is possibly one of the worst things to happen to our culture i don't actually believe that i still like the force awakens but i have that kind of pavlovian response now to it where i'm like no i'm okay thank you very much and part of me is like am i gonna have that pavlovian response to this like five or ten years down the line. Now, everything we've said is true. It's nice to give the Doctor an ending. It's nice to give Gatwa a conceptual clean slate. But my concern is five or ten years down the line, when the Tenet Tate spinoff is somehow in its 15th season, because they're <laughs> filming continuously, am I going to look back on this and say, this is the moment that my interest in Doctor Who kind of died without me realizing it? <laughs> that is the fear looking at by generation. I realize it's irrational. I realize I'm worried about something that might never happen, but it's still in my head. And so many of those issues could be fixed without the duplicating TARDIS. Yeah, you have to say goodbye to your best friend, but also that's a very powerful acknowledgement of your need to heal, right? Yeah. I'm going to purposely let myself be stuck here and I'm going to spend my time linearly with this family and take the time to process everything. The Tenth Doctor always talked about how this is the kind of life he could never have. They could have done a wild beyond thing again where it's like, that's setting off and then when you're ready, it'll come back. It's but, just in the air. But then Isaac, you just set up a situation where it's like the Husbands of River Song, where it's revealed that Tenet has been secretly taking out the TARDIS whenever Gatwa's back is turned. <laughs> yeah, at the end of the episode, he talks about taking Rose to Mars or something. You can't trust the TARDIS. You don't <laughs> yeah. know that when you get in that it's going to take you where you want it to take you. So that's a real risk, isn't it? They could have John Pertweed it. Just be like, no, you're stuck. <laughs> yeah. The door just went open. It's like, no, you're here. <laughs> yeah. The TARDIS is taking its little lock away and it's like, no. <laughs> I'm here, but no. Or what you've got is you've got a model of a blue box that you can put in the garden and that reminds you of the TARDIS. Isn't that enough? 
<laughs> Isn't Rose's shed with the cuddly Cyberman or whatever? <laughs> the TARDIS has a baby, a little baby sitting out into the yard. But again, that just gets to the stage where you're just counting down, where you're waiting for fans expecting that to pay off, like the reference to the boss, or the man with the goatee, or the woman in Abu Dhabi, where they're like, no, 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 it's being set up. I really like this, but there is that voice in the back of my head, which is like, but wait 10 years, wait 10 years, wait 10 years. <laughs> the Metacrisis Doctor never came back. That's the thing. We know it's possible for Davies to leave this stuff sitting on the shelf if he chooses to. And Rose hasn't come back. He didn't bring back Rose. I was surprised he didn't bring back Piper for these as well. I'm a little surprised Smith wasn't in any of these because the vibe Smith gives is, if you call me, I will be there on day one for this thing. All I've done since Doctor Who is crap. I want to be there. Wow. I maybe wouldn't have phrased it exactly like that, Craig. Terminator Salvation is a mass... No, Terminator Salvation is not... I couldn't even get to the end of that lie. I haven't seen House of the Dragon. Maybe that's good. No House of the Dragon is better than it should be, is how I would describe it. Significantly better than it should Morbius, be. Morbius, some indie stuff that nobody likes, other stuff. I'm trying to think, actually, yes. Terminator Genesis, which he's in for like 10 minutes in total, maybe. Oh, Genesis, you're right. Sorry, not Salvation. Yeah. Apologies, as well. What's up? Oh, I forgot the name of the movie now. Soho. Edgar Wright, that's really Last good. night in Soho. Yes. I really enjoyed that. That's his best thing since Doctor Who. <laughs> Maybe. You can trace the career trajectory of Karen Gillan and Matt Smith, and Karen Gillan has done way better in a lot of areas than Matt Smith has since they both left. Yeah. Following on from the bi-generation point, the end. This is really jumping to the end, but the final challenge. It had two Doctors, but it was really missing back and forth. They played basically in silence, but I was like, oh, good throw catch. I'm like, thanks, Doctor. And like, oh, where'd you <laughs> learn? I learned that backhand when I was bowling for this or to sort of source the toy maker out. Because the Doctor's been sort of on the back foot the whole time. He's clearly terrified of the toy maker and the effect. But then to bring him at the end with the standard I'm winning swagger between the two of them, I think it would have been much more of a solid resolution than the way they do it, which is just three people playing. They tried really hard to make it look dramatic as well, just for the inflated sound effects. <laughs> and the close-ups and the rapid cutting. Craig made the point earlier on about why you don't do a 60th anniversary with an unproven Doctor, and particularly the challenge of this being Gatwa's first episode and Tenet's last episode simultaneously. Gatwa hasn't had a chance to put a mark on a character and figure out what it is. Davies probably hasn't even had a chance to figure out who the 15th Doctor is, which is why I think he is maybe a bit generic outside of the swagger, to Isaac's point. I, I understand why that is. And I also understand why as much fun as it is, you will never get a story where the Doctor gets shot halfway through and regenerates and we're just in it with a new Doctor. As close as this comes to it, because logistically it's impossible to figure that stuff out. Speaking of though, Shri Gatwa is amazing from like, the moment. It's like, oh, it's his episode. It's immediately his episode. As amazing as David Tennant's been over the three episodes. Once Shri Gatwa's there, he plays second fiddle straight off. He's like, oh no, these 15 or so minutes are his episode and I'm the supporting one. It's very instantly like, nope, this is the Doctor now. This is your guy. Which suggests some good humility from David Tennant being yeah. willing to pass the reins over, even though he's the star, so to speak. There is a lot to be said for, and I wonder how much of this is, again, Davies reacting to his own previous exit, where I never bought this, I don't think this is a fair criticism, but one of the criticisms was Davies and Tenet's final words being, I don't want to go, and the sense in which that maybe passed something of a poison chalice to Matt Smith and Stephen Moffat. I don't think that's the case. Even Tenet's attitude to regeneration, as in the Tenth Doctor saw it as a death, so it immediately tells you, you don't want to like the new Doctor because he's replacing this one and you like this one. Whereas Moffat's regenerations were more about something new is coming along and I'm excited about it, kind of. Everybody changes and that's just what life is. Peter Capaldi was a bit like, mm. well, yeah. He just wanted to die, not regenerate. <laughs> yeah. I'm sick of living. That also feels very much like if you've watched is it the James Cameron's History of Science Fiction, that feels like a big Capaldi idea where Capaldi's like, Doctor Who is the rare show that is about 
death, where children learn an important fact of life, which is that you die. Yeah, just stick on. <laughs> yeah, that is why, as Isaac and Gregor point out, just, I'm gone, I'm not coming back. I wonder if there is a sense in which welcoming Gatwa so enthusiastically. Again, the 14th Doctor's last words before he regenerates here are Allons-y, which is, let's go. Yeah. which is a nice rejection of I don't want to go. I do wonder if this is an attempt to more broadly welcome Gatwa so that if you have younger fans who are tuning back in because Tenet's back, having Tenet go, by the way, this is the new guy. He's cooler than I am. He's hipper than I am. He's now in charge. That's a really great way to welcome Gatwa to the show and to welcome the audience to Gatwa. He also says it's not a death, which yes. is a complete contrast to the 10th Doctor's attitude <laughs> to regenerating. <laughs> It was all about, this is fine. This is what's supposed to happen. And then, oh no, I'm still here. (laughs) (laughs) The worst thing that can happen is that, yes, I will still be here. (laughs) I will say I do love that the climax of the episode is a game of catch. For all that the episode looks expensive, for all that they built the Vlinks, they have the unit tower set, they have the gigantic CGI space laser. It's the thing at the beginning, it's like, well, the ball is the... The original game. Yeah. This is the game of all games. And the callback at the end is like, oh, let's play that. Yeah. It feels clumsy in the way it's resolved as well. It just, the toy maker doesn't catch it and that's it. There's no real (laughs) cathartic defeat, is there? That's kind of in that character though. The toy maker, all the games are designed by him. The only games you can possibly win are pure luck, like cutting a deck of cards. It's sort of whether or not he does cheat, but it's like he makes the games. So he's always got the upper hand because I know the rules, I know the game. I know everything. So I like the idea that the only way you can have a chance is you just have to like wing it. Just luck. Yeah, just sheer <laughs> luck. It was just a bit clumsy. I think I was expecting more from the toy maker as much as I liked him. And I like Neil Patrick Harris as well. Loved him in How I Met Your Mother and anything else I've seen him in. And I thought he was great here. So I feel like if there was a more standard series episode of Doctor Who that had the toy maker in it, you would have more of the rooms full of horrors that he has to win in order to get out, which is, as I understand it, what the original toy maker episode was. Yeah, I think it was mostly just like different hopscotch and stuff like that. And the Doctor cheats his way out. The Doctor has to imitate the Toymaker's voice in order to cheat his way through a game. Okay. <laughs> Even in the first one, there's no option of winning. And I think that's why the Toymaker doesn't use any one voice as well. So it's like, none of that, I remembered. But with essentially godlike characters, you kind of have to use them sparingly. <laughs> like the Doctor says, are you content bullets to flowers? <laughs> there's no possible thing you can't do and i think also in terms of writing it's like yeah how do i combat something of this scale you can't use them too much because there's only so many ways the doctor has a chance of actually standing a chance against them he was like season one q from the next generation of the star yeah. trek wasn't he i think that there is something interesting in this idea that isaac mentioned of rules and the way the toy maker is obsessed with rules and the way in which when donna says he'll just cheat and the doctor says no he won't it's the one thing he can't do. Yeah. The one thing he can't do. I love the idea. And again, this is where I am kind of making excuses for Davy's tendencies as a writer to completely ignore the rules. But the way in which he weaves the doctors, as Isaac said, his refusal to play by the rules or his ability to manipulate and bend the rules, where his defeat at the hands of the toy maker becomes best of three simply by talking it through. It's not a rule of the game because they didn't agree it beforehand, but the doctor is able to manipulate the circumstances to get a second chance. But I do kind of like the idea of Davies making the argument that the Doctor kind of wins because there are no rules. There is no fixed rule covering him. Where even by generation is a cheat. It's not something that ever happened before. It's not something that makes sense within the history of the franchise. It's not something that fits within the continuity. You can't really point to anything in the show's history and go, oh yeah, well, by generation makes sense. It was clearly set up in this episode from 1973. I like that Davies seems to be making a point that for the show's 60th anniversary, the point at which most television shows would 
be fetishizing their history, canonizing their history, setting it in stone. Davies is like, the best thing about Doctor Who is that it can completely ignore the rules whenever it wants to. It can just do whatever the hell it wants because it says it can, and that's kind of the power of it. I find myself oddly charmed by that, as much as I think Craig is entirely right. It's not a very satisfying narrative conclusion to the story. Yeah, I think that if anything can happen, then it's difficult to latch on to anything as well. The rules of a given universe that a show takes place in can be useful because it helps you understand what can and can't happen, and that's how you get your stakes. But if anything can happen, then you might fall into the trap of there being no stakes. In Star Trek Voyager, for example, we're in this problem. Let's press a few buttons and reroute power to this, and suddenly we're out of it. You can't tell us that the technology doesn't work that way. And I'm like, yeah, but it wasn't interesting. I think that's one of Davy's strengths as a writer is that that stuff never interested him particularly. He's much more interested in, as you said, it's not what the story's about, it's why or how it's about it. It's why they press that button. It's how you get to the moment where Harry Kim presses that button. That was Voyager's real problem, I would argue, underneath it all. None of these characters really felt specific or had any real agency or you didn't really care that much about them, as opposed to, say, Deep Space Nine or even The Next Generation, where those characters felt much more lived in and felt much more organic and had arcs. And I think Davy's writing, you care about these people. I don't think anybody is watching this thinking the toy maker is going to win the third game. No. It would be kind of incredible, though. The 60th anniversary we celebrate the show is cancelled. Congratulations. <laughs> that is the big surprise ending. Yeah, it's like when they get around the regeneration limit. It's like, well, we could keep it, but then there wouldn't be a show anymore. So you win? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it's also when Russell Davis, the Sarah Jane Adventures, where he wrote one with Matt Smith, and one of the characters asked the Doctor, how many times can you generate? It's like, I don't know, 607 or something. He just says <laughs> a huge number. It's like, yeah, I just have to change it. That was the thing with 13. The reason why they said 13 was originally like nobody working on the show in the 70s. It's like Douglas Adams or someone. It's like, probably that long, I guess. We'll never get to 13. One, four. Yeah. We'll never get in there. Yeah. And now they got there, it's like, thanks, guys in the 70s. And if we ever get there, someone else's problem. Yeah, that's it, exactly. These things that will end the show, they're always going to get around, aren't they? Yeah. Obviously, the Doctor was going to win. And it was more about how do they win. And I didn't feel like the how they won was satisfying enough. Which is a very Davies era issue. I think this is a rare case where there's not really a victory you can do. Yeah. <laughs> There's certain characters, there's not really how would they have done it any other way sort of thing. It had to be like a simple solution because this is simply too big. They've built it up <laughs> too big of a problem that you've written yourself into a corner, really. It's kind of anything else. It's kind of anything clever. Yeah, parting of the ways, there's countless Dalek ships out there. How do we defeat them? Magic. Yeah. Doomsday. What do we do? We turn the reverse lever on this void thing. That's the Time Lords. What if we just roll time back a year? <laughs> Journey's end. What if we just put all the planets back, I guess? We'll press the self-destruct Dalek Empire button, and <laughs> yeah. then that's it. Very conveniently built into this device. Thank you, Davros. In Davros's prison, it's possible to destroy the Dalek Empire. <laughs> yeah. Damn these network computers. Tiny <laughs> detail about that episode. I also really like that that was clearly Davros had built that button. It wasn't built for Daleks to press. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> so the idea is, I'm just going to keep this. What's that? It's like, nah, it's just... Uh, Nothing important. <laughs> don't worry about it. Don't ask any questions. Don't worry about it, I'm fine. I love, by the way, the reference, again, Davies referencing Davies, the gold tooth which contains the master, but the hand with the red finger paint collecting it. So I also love how many teeth he had. He just like, ding, it's like, it's like a billion teeth. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that's one way to make your villain more threatening, isn't it? Oh, I defeated the master, but there's someone out there that I couldn't defeat. I hope you like cliffhangers for the next season of Doctor Who. 
or maybe the season after, because we're that far ahead. Oh, we are. We're planning two years ahead. But the thing is, I'm not getting hung up on these teases of future events anymore in almost anything, because I generally find, and it's usually a thing with Davies as well, that the answer will be disappointing. So I'm just not going to worry about it. I'm not going to think about it. The answer will be whatever Davies decided it was going to be two years ago, and we'll make it fit somehow. I love Davies. I'm hugely fond. I hope it's come across in the four hours of this podcast discussion we have had, but his arcs consist mostly of repeating words like, oh, that planet is missing. Oh, Bad Wolf. Oh, Torchwood. (laughs) That is not elegant arc setup. I was quite fascinated that a lot of people watching these specials were like, man, look at how clumsy it is when Davies has the Meep reference the boss. That's so inelegant. And I'm like, that's how Davies has always set up his long form (laughs) story arcs. I like it. I find it oddly charming, but it's not (laughs) as if he's suddenly forgotten how to do it. No, this was what it always was. Bad Wolf was... The epitome of, <laughs> is that it? As a conclusion. And Torchwood, it tells you what Torchwood is the first time they reference it. Well, the second time they reference it. Queen Victoria says, I want to start an institute that's devoted to fighting <laughs> aliens and we're going to call it Torchwood. And then for the rest of the season, it's random references to Torchwood when we already know what it is. Do Torchwood have this? Can we call Torchwood? Get this in there, Torchwood already. Torchwood Archive? Well, that's what they're doing now with meddling and history changing. It's all I the think same so, thing. Yeah. To jump very far ahead, there's an old Time Lord character called the Meddling Monk. The whole deal is they change history for fun. And in this we've had Mavity. Oh, history's getting changed in that Davros story. There's, oh yeah, history's in disarray. Every episode is just like, someone's been meddling. Someone's doing some meddling around. What meddling is happening here? Somebody's been someone's monkeying really, uh, around. <laughs> someone's been meddling near a church. <laughs> we know what's going on. It's not hard to figure out. <laughs> If you just go Wikipedia or BuzzFeed, it's like, it's that one. There's a top 10 list. It's the Rani is what you're saying. It's always going to be the Rani. <laughs> anyway, it's the Daleks again. <laughs> <laughs> Those tricksters, yeah. And we're going to wipe them out forever again. So we have to invent a way to bring them back. Spare one. <laughs> <laughs> again, I do love the Moffat hero. It was just like, no, the Daleks are just going to feck off at the end of the episode. So we don't have to worry about resurrecting them. He downgraded them to manageable nuisance rather than yeah. universe ending threat, which was the right move, I think. It means they can just keep coming back. Just like a pest control. What's that Elizabeth Sandifer observation for Davies? Daleks are season finale monsters. For Moffat, Daleks are season premiere monsters. It's a very <laughs> different dynamic. Or middle of season. Or, yeah. yeah. Well, typically towards the start, the pilot, it's Asylum of the Daleks. Alex, and then obviously victory is quite early in the season as well. Yeah, the pilot—they're not the threat either. No, not at all. They're just there. They're there with the disco robots. So, anything final on the giggle? I think I've said more or less everything I need to about it. It's good. My least favorite of the three, definitely. Interesting. Just the melness of it. I want to shout out the fact that they bring her on and have her sing a scale. Oh yes. Famously, the actress pitched her voice. She matched a scream to the closing sting of the credits, which is kind of incredible to a cliffhanger oh, wow. sting. Perhaps the most technical impressive thing any companion has done in the history of the show is can you hit the pitch of the closing sting so we can just go out on that which she did but I think that her inclusion here is interesting in part because A she's another orphan companion she is as I'm sure Isaac knows and will tell you is she's the rare companion that doesn't have an origin story because she just shows up at the start of Trial of a Time Lord she's just there (laughs) she's just there it's fascinating and obviously all that stuff has been filled in in terms of tie-in material and all that sort of stuff but it's she is an orphan companion, much like the Doctor is an orphan now, much like Ruby, who we'll talk about in a second, is an orphan. So it's a nice thematic connection there, and the redhead thing as well. But the idea that she was one of the first variety show companions, which is kind of interesting, which is a lineage of several of the older companions went on to do Blue Peter afterwards, and become fixtures of television and variety shows afterwards.
afterwards. But the thing with Mel is that basically she was a performer who was known for appearing on television, for juggling, for singing, for doing comedy show routines. And so she kind of sets a precedent for a lot of the modern series companions, where you go to people like Catherine Tate, who is primarily known as a comedian, people like Billy Piper, who is, at the time she was cast, primarily known as a singer, people like Bradley Walsh, who was primarily known as a footballer, football pundit, and game show host at the time he was cast as well. John Bishop, primarily known as a comedian at the time he was cast. And yet, what's his name in the Easter special? The Bill comedian. Bailey? Oh, Lee Evans. Lee Evans, yeah. Bill Bailey was in a Christmas special yes. as well. Matt Lucas and so on. Matt Lucas is a companion as well. That's a great example. I like the idea of Mel being retroactively canonized. Isaac will probably vouch for this as the 80s who expert. Mel being the forgotten or written off companion, the companion from the 80s that nobody really cared about that much, <laughs> to being Davies going, actually, she is central to the idea of what Doctor Who became, which is this idea of casting a variety show performer in the role of companion and using their gifts in a way that plays into the fact that Doctor Who is a Saturday evening television show. And again, the way that that plays into the toy maker who is Neil Patrick Harris, who is a magician, a performer, a host of the Tonys, a singer, a dancer, as we said, doing all that stuff during the Spice Girls sequence, which itself feels a little bit like Doctor Who doing, well, we're on on Saturday night before Strictly Come Dancing, so we may as well just acknowledge that as part of what we're broadcasting. And in the context of this episode, Mel, is the thematic connection of you never think about your past, you never reflect on it. And here's this companion that's right there that doesn't have a past. Just I felt like the Mel stuff kind of got passed over in discussion of the episode. I think it was worth acknowledging. And she'll be back, won't she, in the next season? Yes. Yeah, she's in the next time trailer. As is Rose. Not old Rose, new Rose. This Rose. Yeah, new Rose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not Billy Piper. Billy Piper returning would be the story, wouldn't it? If that was <laughs> Yeah. Kate said that she was going to be hiring old companions. Doesn't seem like she's done that yet because nobody else was there. Unless it was all their day off. They're all sick. They're all off. Graham's off yelling at Ryan for some reason because he's been affected. Just learn the bike. It's not hard. <laughs> just screaming at him. It's like, I don't want to learn the bike. It's like, that's just on the hill again. <laughs> Figure it out. It's a bike. I would kind of love if it was just Dan there. Dan was just in the coffee room. Doesn't actually do anything. He's just around. He's still holding his little house. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here now. I can't go yeah. home. Yeah. Our little house. <laughs> I've been sleeping in the canteen. <laughs> cool. Well, we got through the giggle then. That's it. Let's move on. I think we covered most of our 60th anniversary talking points as we've been going. So that's I think good. So, yeah. so move on to Christmas then. The most recent episode, The Church on Ruby Road, which is Shooty Gatwa's first proper episode and The New Companion's first episode. It's a lot of heavy lifting to do for a Christmas special, isn't it? A new doctor and a new companion and their first episode together. I think it does it really well. <laughs> yeah. But people keep saying that the Christmas specials are supposed to be these disposable adventures, but almost none of them are that. All the regenerations happen at Christmas and big things happen at Christmas. And this is very much like the Christmas Invasion. It's the one that this reminded me most of, because that is the one that has to introduce David Tennant as the Doctor. Rose crossed with the Christmas Invasion. Yeah. I think in terms of if you're attributing new episodes to old episodes, this episode is those two episodes. It is also very Moffat-coded. Not to put too fine a point on it, but I do think that Davies has been watching what came before. This one begins with Once Upon a Time. It's very obvious that the Star Beast begins with the weird segue that we haven't talked about from Bedtime Stories, where the 14th Doctor walks over to a CGI vision of the galaxy and says, Once Upon a Time. 
Once Upon a Time Lord. <laughs> but you have this idea of Davies leaning into fairy tales. I think he gave an interview back when he launched the show back in 2005 that he didn't want the show to feel like a fairy tale. He didn't want to feel fantastical. He wanted to feel science fiction-y. Here you have a lot of logic that I associate with the Moffat era where you have the crack in the ceiling, which reminds me a lot of the crack permanently in the wall. You have the weird logic, which is logic based on magic, but it's based on narrative magic, where it is, oh, okay, so the logic is that this happens because this, because this, because it makes a good story, which is very similar to how Moffat tended to treat time, where Davies would talk about fixed points in time. He'd be like, okay, well, you can't change history because it's a fixed point in time. Why? Because I said so. Because I said so. It just makes things a lot easier. And then the Moffat is like, no, you can't change it because it's already read. Like, the Doctor can't change Amy and Rory's story once he's read the end of the novel in which their story is told. Does that make any sense in terms of the universe as a lived object? No. Except when he hides inside an android, then you can change a fixed <laughs> then, point. Yeah. There's a fair whack of that. Even imagery, like, say, the clouds, the ship hiding in the clouds and the ladder going up to the clouds, that's very much something from the snowman. The idea of the nanny and the maid is very much something that's taken, again, from the Moffat era. And even the timey-wimey stuff. The pivot point of this episode is the goblins going back and erasing Ruby and how that affects time itself is very much the Moffat era kind of concept. I find it interesting that Davies seems like he's going, I can play with all of these ideas. And even the name Ruby Sunday, obviously it's an allusion to Ruby Tuesday, which is odd that they're having a Beatles episode and <laughs> having a companion who is named in reference to a Rolling Stones song. That feels very much like Amelia Pond. It has that kind of lyrical quality in a way that, say, Rose Tyler doesn't or Donna Noble doesn't. Ruby Sunday is a name that feels like something from a fairy tale from a storybook. And again, the idea that the villains are goblins. They're not even like Tushunta, who are known as goblins in Earth culture. No, they're just goblins. Just, just straight up goblins, yeah. I'm looking forward to this magic fairy tale story because I really like the series 5. I like that sort of vibe. I'm kind of looking forward to if this goes on as the 15th Doctor era vibe, or at least initially for a few. I like a bit of just weird magic. Was it learning the vocabulary of rope and yeah. that kind of stuff? It doesn't mean anything. It's just this is a new mindset I've got to get into. And it's like, oh, I'm up for it. He's very much a very carefree style Doctor. Not overthinking. It's just like, I'm just going to go for it. Cool. I want to sing a song, great. I'm the perfect doctor for this type of adventure. <laughs> Another Moffaty thing that stood out to me, or two Moffaty things, is Ruby seems a bit impossible girlish. Yeah, she's a puzzle to be solved. Mysterious past, we don't know where she came from, that kind of stuff. And the figure at the church seems to be wearing a set of very familiar looking boots. Yeah, and then there's Mrs. Flood, the mysterious stranger that puts the Doctor and Companion together, which is what Missy did. Yeah, in the seventh season and then retroactively in the eighth season as well. So there's those two elements. And the Doctor, certainly when Clara was the Companion, changed from the, you live with the Doctor and you never leave the TARDIS. The Doctor became this dream figure that appears at night and takes you on adventures when you're supposed to be sleeping. Yeah, he was the imaginary friend. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And with Amy, it was very much, yeah, I had an imaginary friend and then they came true and all that. So there is definite learns from Moffat and developing his ideas as well and taking them to extremes because it is now just high fantasy, isn't it? Actual goblins. <laughs> it's not a mutation gene that turns you into a werewolf. It's just a goblin. Even the shot of Ruby wandering around the outside of the TARDIS is taken directly from the snowman. That's what Clara does the first time she goes in. It's the same shot, pretty much. It feels very much like Davy's going, I didn't know that we could do that technically. So let's do that ourselves. It's quite impressive. 
Davies Christmas specials tend to feel quite blockbustery as a rule. Voyage of the Damned is the most obvious one where they're just doing the Poseidon adventure. That's my favourite one actually of his era. Interesting. I've always liked that more than I think most of people do, but I, I've always loved it's we're just doing a straight up blockbuster movie. I love how it's just, you can watch that and then... You don't have to be steeped in anything else. Never watch any other Doctor Who. And I mean, even something like, say, The Runaway Bride at least has the chase on the highway, for example, which is spectacle like the show has never done before. Whereas Moffat is more like, okay, Christmas is we do a Christmassy story. So we go to the North Pole and Santa Claus is there, or we do a version of A Christmas Carol, or we do a version of Narnia, something like that. Or a superhero story. Or a superhero story. Well, the superhero story, that's season 10, which is where he's trying to do more Davies era stuff. That feels like it's, okay, Superman is on television a lot of Christmas, so let's do that. <laughs> it feels like him doing Voyage of the Damned, where it's, what if Doctor Who but Superman? And this, it has obvious elements that are taken from holiday classics, like Gremlins, for example. The bit on the church roof where he's trying to grab the rope and can't, or is pulling it down. Remind me a lot of Batman, for some reason. Tim Burton's <laughs> Batman, the climax of that. But there is an element of this where he's doing the It's a Wonderful Life bit, where you have what if Ruby was never found and taken in? What if she was eaten as a baby? And it's this horrible alternate dark world. But that feels very moffat in terms of a fairy tale, which is what if a child was stolen away and how would that make the world just a worse place? I know it is an obvious reference to It's a Wonderful Life, a Christmas classic, but it does kind of feel more lyrical than Davies' writing and scripting usually is, which I found very interesting. The great thing about that is you got to see at a glance how... Ruby impacts everybody around her. Yeah. Her mother is a far better person because Ruby's in her life. The pictures on the fridge are gone. Which, so she which is sees incredible. fostering his work because Ruby's not there. All of that. And it tells you immediately, this is what we can expect from Ruby. She's going to enrich everybody's life just by being in it. And she's going to enrich the doctor's life just by being in it. Great. And I think that Millie Gibson's performance completely supports that. I fell in love with her the moment I saw her on screen. I thought she was great. I thought she embodied the character so well. And I don't mean that as a 36-year-old guy creeping on a 19-year-old <laughs> girl. I mean it in the sense of, this is a character that I immediately want to and immediately loved as a character and I think that she'll be great and I think it's a great marriage of character and actor in that way. I like the 15th Doctor. The fact that this doesn't feel like a regeneration story. Typically when the Doctor goes through regeneration there's an episode of them finding themselves. I like that Gatwa seems to emerge fully formed here. He's already done that. He's already done that and he's solving the case involving Ruby. He's already on top of these things. It's a bit like Rose in that regard because Eccleston shows up and he clearly has a sense of who he is. Yeah, he pauses and looks at his reflection for a moment and that's about it. But otherwise, no, we're just getting straight to being Doctor Who. This also feels like it could be like his series three. We've missed two <laughs> series where he's just done whatever. Big finish. Yeah. <laughs> It's not a standard intro one. It's been around for a bit. But I think that's very much to its strength. The thing that I do like is that this feels like it could be a jumping on point. This is getting to the serious one thing, where if you've never watched an episode of Doctor Who before, you could jump on and follow this. Isaac mentioned how much of the Timeless Child is in these episodes. I love that immediately Davies zeroes in on what the Timeless Child is about, in that it is about being an orphan, being a foundling, being abandoned, and the idea that that creates a partnership between the Companion and the Doctor, where they are equals. Ruby's story is the Doctor's story. It may not literally be the Doctor's story, although who knows? Maybe the Timeless Child and Tecteun will come back into it. Maybe Tecteun <laughs> was the woman who left her on the doorstep. I don't know. But even if it doesn't, thematically, the audience understands that the Doctor will, through Ruby, be going through a similar journey. He'll be working through his own issues, or they'll be working through their own issues, in a way that Ruby will be more literally working through the issues. And it's just really good character-based storytelling in a way that takes history and continuity and uses it without alienating 
anybody without locking people out, which is very hard to do on a show that's been running at this stage 60 years. Yeah, and it's amazing that it is the I'm adopted only found out recently and it's just the casual utterance of that it's not made a big deal of he's just i'm adopted and i only found out recently and he's clearly elated to see that this as a positive adoption story that he's witnessing here look at this family davies quotes davies in the you have the biggest family on earth (laughs) quote from journey's end and it's just that, yeah, I love this. It might not be a bad thing that this happened to me. And I think there's a lot of charm to it. And I think even the bit where he's introduced on the dance floor, it reminded me. I don't know if it was based on, I don't know if Davies has acknowledged it. It reminds me of the story that Davies tells about meeting his partner on a dance floor in Manchester. Just seeing that partner move for the first time on the dance floor and falling in love immediately. And so there's something very sweet in seeing Ruby see the doctor for the first time in the way that Davies saw this man that he loved for the first time. And that feeling really intimate and really personal and really warm. And again, the fact that Gatwa is cool. He's so cool. (laughs) Gin and Tonic Health and Safety Division. Tenet was cool. Tenet was a cool doctor, but I could never imagine Tenet being suave enough to pull that off. No. It's a new look. It's it's a new angle of the character. He's like geek sheet cool, isn't yeah. he? Whereas yeah. Shooty Gatwa is just cool. Gatwa's actually cool. Also, Gatwa gives her bad news. He's like, that's not unfortunate. There's something wrong. And she's like, cool. <laughs> <laughs> this is cool. And even I was like, yeah, sick. This is cool. I was like, oh, wait, that's bad. That's awful. No, it's way worse than that. Anyway, see you later. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Merry Christmas. He's like, that guy is cool. He's so cool. And I was like, I didn't even register me. He's like, you're in trouble, actually. You're in deadly danger. He's going to be my best friend. You want to hang out later? See you in a bit. <laughs> I really hope they don't go down the love story route between Gatwa and Ruby, because I prefer it when the Doctor and Companion are friends. The comparison that's been made in publicity materials is gossiping girlfriends. Yeah, gossiping schoolgirls is what they've said, yeah. Gossiping schoolgirls, yeah, there we go. So that kind of leads me to imagine that it won't be a read, because my big fear, my honest-to-goodness big fear, I love Rose, I love Billy Piper, I love the Tenth Doctor, I love David Tennant. The Doctor companion team of the Tenth Doctor and Rose was pretty close to unbearable for me in large part because they felt like they were so inseparable and smug. And I get that that was the thematic point of the show. I get that the season was telling me that these people could not be together and that it was good that they were going to break up. But I was like, I still have to spend 13 weeks with them before they do. (laughs) I am hopeful that the dynamic between Ruby and the Doctor will be different. Yeah. I like the gossiping schoolgirls idea and I I really want to see that. You do see shades of it in this episode where, oh yeah, I'll just grab on a ladder in the sky. That's a great idea, babes, or whatever it is he says. (laughs) The very clear mention of babes. Babes. (laughs) I don't think the Doctor in the nightclub, time-wise position, that's not the Doctor's first time. The rest of the episode, I think he probably meets her first in that ladder scene. Well, the bit where it's like, but you were just over there. Yeah, I think from the Doctor's perspective, he meets her on the ladder and the ship and then she disappears and I think somewhere in the middle from our perspective that's the first time Ruby sees him but I think within the story that's probably somewhere in the middle so it's like a town called Mercy taking place like halfway through was it Three of a Kind? I think so because there's a scene where he's wearing that cowboy hat yeah you know the promotional one where he's sort of keeping an eye on her and then it's (laughs) a nightclub bit or Smith and Jones where he goes back in time to take his tie off to prove that he can travel through time just to prove a point (laughs) yeah Yeah, all that bit in Matt Smith, Weeping Angels, where like he goes back, where you find out later that's not the same one, it's from a different episode. Because he's not wearing the coat, yeah. I think there's some sort of shenanigans going on where that's not linear for us. It's linear for us, but it's not linear. And that goes into the snowman scene, which is, again, that's the Doctor just in the area, but not 
interacting with Ruby's home, I've got a feeling that this is later on from the point. This is a bit further ahead of the mystery that it's sort of jumping back to. The fact that Ruby says, weren't you just over there? Suggests that there may be some timey wiminess involved. Yeah. Can't imagine why though, especially because he's wearing the same outfit. Maybe he's just fast. Maybe the 15th Doctor just can move. Just really fast. I think in general, even the dancing and stuff, I think that he's having a big old dance, but I think he's really there to keep an eye on things. I don't think it's a chance encounter. I do love the idea that one way to avoid giving Gatwa knee surgery is just having him materialise off screen. <laughs> having him move really fast so the camera can't see him move. He does that really fast crawl in this episode. That won't be good for his knees. Again, I'm not nitpicking really like the episode. The idea that on the goblin ship, the ventilation ducts are large enough for human beings to crawl through. <laughs> that would mean that they are large enough for the goblins to walk without having to stoop through, which is incredible design. The goblins were, I think very hastily thought about. I don't think they were as strong an antagonist as they could have been. The Goblin King doesn't say anything. They have one musical number and that's about it. I think they're just there for the musical number. <laughs> yeah. To top the Christmas charts. Song came first, then Who Eats Kids? I don't know, Goblins? Goblin. <laughs> yeah. And again, just to note where Doctor Who is in the consciousness, the fact that there was a Christmas song released from this episode... <laughs> Again, not to be too cynical about the previous year of Doctor Who, but there was a sense in which that show was very guarded in terms of the secrets that it kept and the way in which it used publicity. It was afraid of spoilers and surprises and anything like that, and that made it very hard to sell the show because the insistence was that nobody could know what the show was about before it broadcast. And I love that Davies, on the other hand, has been trying to turn Doctor Who back into event TV, and that means releasing a solid three-minute chunk of this episode as a campaign to get the Christmas number one, which didn't happen, obviously, but the fact that on the radio they had to talk about, and this is the Goblin song from Doctor Who. <laughs> it did pretty well, I think. Did it? it got like yeah. four or five or something. It, was, it got pretty high up. <laughs> and it topped the Apple charts, I believe, as well. It topped some individual charts because everything is so fragmented now and decentralized. Who cares about Christmas number one now, really? <laughs> It was last Christmas was number one this year, wasn't it? Or something like that. It was an old one. I couldn't even tell you. It wasn't the Goblin song. That's the only song I cared about. I mean, having a musical number in there, we've never had a doctor who could sing before, so it's... It's good. We're getting a full musical episode next season, apparently. Yes, and a lot of musical influence in the trailer. You have, obviously, the musical episode, which is going to star... Is it Indira Varma? And what is the name of the guy from Hamilton? Oh, Jonathan Groff. And then there's a lot of Beatles stuff as well. A lot of musical stuff coming next year. I am all here for it. Yeah, there's Jinx Monsoon as a musical character. Yes. Probably some singing Daleks. <laughs> <laughs> I do love the idea of Daleks of Sherberg. With the paradigm Daleks, you could do a good musical. <laughs> well, why not? Just doing background dancing. <laughs> yeah, just flapping the plunger, yeah. Yeah, just going up and down. Instead of a Dalek looking at a Cyberman while the master is performing a musical number, <laughs> thinking, what the hell have we stumbled into here? <laughs> what have we unleashed, yeah. <laughs> to the point about the vocabulary of rope thing, it's something that actually only occurred to me recently when watching Doctor Who, is often the Doctor is put in a situation where he doesn't know the rules. He doesn't know, or she, know how things work in order to solve a problem. So it's all about understanding the rules of the, effectively, the universe that they've stumbled into. It's like a place and it's a time, but it's, I don't understand how this works. I solve this problem by understanding how this works. And it's very much literalized with the I am learning the vocabulary of rope, but it's learn the language. That's how we solve the problem. And I'm like, okay, that's how I've recently started seeing the show. And now it's in the text. Being literalized by the show. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. And I love that he's taking delight at discovering things. I noticed a couple of tenant inflections in the way he was performing. When something occurs to him, he's like, oh, and he does the ha as well when something <laughs> occurs to him. Two tenant things. Not that he's copying tenant. I just think yeah. it's a, a homage because Shooty Gap was a fan of the show as well. That'll be yeah. something he's been doing. But 
Also, he's a doctor that followed straight on from a David Tennant doctor, so it kind of makes sense that some stuff would carry over. Every doctor except Peter Capaldi has either regenerated into or from David Tennant, to be fair. <laughs> Obviously, that's a revival series. Yeah. But yeah, every doctor, with the exception of Peter Capaldi, has regenerated into or from <laughs> David Tennant. Wow. <laughs> Is it possible he's got too much influence on the show at this point? <laughs> but yeah, the goblins are, I mean, they're only in two sequences, really. Yeah. And then you have the useful anti-mavity gloves that will never be seen again, probably, even though they'll be useful. And again, set up within the context of this episode, this is going to come back at the climax. It's like, you know what the hardest part of hanging on to anything is? And I'm like, I feel like the bit where you're dangling over an abyss. No, friction, which is solved by these gloves, <laughs> which will absolutely in no way be essential to resolving the plot. And I'm not just putting them in now because it makes it useful. Well, it's weird when he says, only got 3% left, and then that doesn't come up. <laughs> It's not that he's dragging the ship down and then they stop working and he has to... And then he just gets catapulted up. Yeah. <laughs> he could have charged them up again. Maybe. But it seems weird that they would tell you the battery percentage for it not to come up again. And it not be relevant at all. Yeah. I do love that he impales the giant goblin king on a church spire. But he doesn't give them a choice. That bothered me. Yeah, no, he just straight up murders them. Again, we're back to a Davies doctor. But his big thing was the choice, wasn't it? I have to go into the Santaran ship and give them a choice. He said that, but they never actually gave anyone a choice. <laughs> Sometimes it was, but it always felt like the Tenet Doctor was kind of goading them, where it's like, look, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to tell you that you can either surrender to me now, a guy who is standing in front of you at a point where you appear to be holding all of the cards, or you can take the other choice, and the other choice is always genocide. <laughs> I can call you an ambulance. That's your choice. <laughs> You've already been stabbed. It never feels like Tenet is like, okay, I've defeated you. I've proved my strength. You've learnt your lesson. The only case is the Christmas invasion. That's the only case where the guy gets back up afterwards and he does the no second chances. That's what kind of man I am. But in every other case, he's like, let me negotiate from what appears to be a position of weakness. And when they're like, ha, why would we negotiate from this? He's like, fine, genocide it is. <laughs> It just so happens I'm in a place that has all the ingredients I need to stop you, and I'm just going to put them together over the next 45 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's only about him as a choice as a stall while he hits a button or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just waiting for this guy to wake up and sacrifice himself. That's what I'm waiting for. I do love the idea of somebody being like, you're right, fair dues, we didn't really think it through. We're going to take a breather on this one. We'll see you later. And he's like, ah. Oh. I was actually really looking forward to that. Ah, oh, ship's already blown up. So even a run. <laughs> well, it happens a couple of times where the Doctor wins based on their reputation. Yeah. The Vashta Narada, look me up in the books. And then they do, then they stop. Or the Atraxi, where they fly away and he calls them back, which I quite like as well. I never liked that. I always thought I was a bit too, I'm so great sort of thing. Turns out the Doctor has never actually done anything. They've just put a lot of information <laughs> in books. What I like about that is that pays off as a punchline in the Pandora opens where the Doctor does that and it just backfires terribly. <laughs> where he's like, do the smart thing. Let somebody else try first. And then they all try together and lock him in a box. Yeah. The Doctor's got like an Andrew Tate style Twitter account where he's just posing <laughs> shitless photos like, what are you going to do? <laughs> Come at me, brah. It's the oncoming storm. Uh <laughs> How is coming spelled there? Anyway. <laughs> One thing I was actually wondering with the ship getting dragged down onto the church spire is the people inside just thinking, what the hell is going on out there? The following morning, presumably, when the priest wakes up and is like, I don't think that was there last night. The ship magically disappears, doesn't it? It's oh, like, good oh, point. Actually, fair so fair. I think I was like, there's going to be a big ship on the roof. But I mean, when it happened, I was just thinking, people inside must be like, God, what's going on? It's really coming down out there. <laughs> 
going back to the Davina Collins here, do you remember much about your life? I said, I don't remember much except the big ship on the roof. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I found interesting is the Doctor sees the hooded figure walking away and chooses not to approach them, which suggests one of two things. One, that they know who it is and don't want to confront them. The other, I think the better one is, I've just seen the positive impact this will have on other people's lives, so I cannot change this. It's not my place, yeah. Yeah. Later on, he'll say to Ruby, yeah, I saw the person who deposited you on the doorstep walking away and um, approached them and now because I've already been there I can't go back so yeah we can't really do that. What if we land on the other side of the street and just get the other perspective we get like a 180 degree shot on this. Wait till I leave and then we'll approach. I suppose also with the timeless child and the watch thing the doctor was giving all the answers and then she was like I have the choice here to not look at this. Well, I think if the doctor did run afterwards, like, oh, what's your name? I'm going to write this down. <laughs> Can I get your address, permanent residence? Yeah. I think going in with his new friend, having a secret on them wouldn't be, especially with the doctor who loves having a bit of info. It's going to spill out in a bit of swagger. Be like, oh yeah, this is this, this. So I think it's sort of a thing of exactly what you're saying. It's not necessary always to know the answer. Let's just leave it as it is. It's more about he's already seen the positive impact Ruby's existence will have in the lives of her mother and grandmother and the other foster kids that enter into their lives as well so therefore why would he change that yeah it's better to let things play out as they did before and not find the answer because ruby is this great influence on on other people do we want to do a boring podcast thing and mark down who we think this is i just don't care i know the answer is going to disappoint me so that's why i'm not wanting to think about it all right who do you think it is (laughs) i think it's ruby Yeah, it's probably Ruby. The shoes seem to be a dead giveaway and the height. That is my crazy bet. Why aren't the Reapers showing up to eat her while she's carrying her (laughs) infant self? Because the goblins call dibs on it. We get to eat the baby. In terms of necessary speculation, that's Ruby, probably. And then Mrs. Floyd, as I've said, is the meddling monk. Putting my money on the monk. (laughs) That's our sort of, what's it going to be section of the... Listeners can't see, but Isaac has taken out all of his poker chips and put them dramatically on a piece of tile marked monk. It's got monk on it. I know people have speculated about Mrs. Flood being Amy Pond because of the name Flood. David did that deliberately so that you would do that. Yeah. He knows how people talk about these things. How the brain works, yeah. Again, I don't really care who she is either, because I know I'll find out the answer and I probably won't like it. I'm just more interested in what these things mean for the characters in the moment rather than the answer to some nebulous season-ending question. One of my favourite bit of Twitter speculation is she knows the TARDIS has been there before because she lives in central London. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I used to live in this tower block and it arrived literally every Saturday. And, Unlike uh, everyone else, I remember all the stuff that's yeah. happened. I looked out the window and that blue thing appeared. I want to keep a note. Yeah, I lived on the power estate. And it turns out she's actually just a nosy neighbour who's just been nosy in vicinity of a previous companion. <laughs> and I moved to Sheffield and it was just there again. Like, it moves around. <laughs> Following me everywhere, yeah. And I went online and it was like, Blue Box, England, 1963 to now. As a rough guide. Guess of it, yeah. I say 60 years. Oh yeah, it shows up loads. <laughs> Sometimes it looks a little different as well. <laughs> the windows are different. <laughs> Sometimes it has a St. John's ambulance sticker on it. Sometimes it doesn't. They go into a house and she's got a photo book. It's just a still from every episode. It's like, yeah, it's a little bit of this and this. It's been everywhere. I thought everyone knew about this. So she's just Clive is what you're saying. Yeah, she's just Clive. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be the best answer, actually. She's just a boring conspiracy nut. That's all she is. She's on Reddit. <laughs> she's just on the weird blue box Reddit. <laughs> Yeah, red underscore blue box. That'd be great. But yeah, obviously she's being positioned as, oh, it's a bit like Missy. She points Ruby in the direction of the TARDIS, says, and you go. 
But they're a great pairing so far. I think the episode does really well in it. And I think Davy smartly gets around the whole, why doesn't David Tennant help by making it a very small stakes problem? It's very confined. You say that, Craig, as if Davies is going to make every problem a small self-contained problem. Well, that'd be nice, actually. It's set in the present day, sure, but it's not threatening the world or all of London or wherever. The season finale is the Doctor helping a cat out of a tree. Yeah. I would love it. Go back to the writer's tale book. His original plan for David Tennant was like, it's just like a gas leak or something. <laughs> <laughs> what if the Doctor regenerates? Just a standard Saturday. They turn up. They just make a simple mistake and that's it. It's not the Daleks or the Master or whatever. It just happens. Gets on the TARDIS and slips on a football or something. Well, he sort of references that in The Next Doctor, doesn't he? He says, oh, how did it happen? Did I trip over a brick or something? Oh, yeah. It's not bad. <laughs> Depends on the brick. It's a great start for those two characters, though, I think. In terms of how the characterization's done, the episode plot is a bit uninteresting because there isn't much of one. In terms yeah. of the villain aspect of it, goblins, whatever. Be nice if they did something with the goblins, but they didn't. So your problem was they were just goblin screen time. Exactly. And I do acknowledge the pun. I like the Doctor still has baggage, even though they said in the previous episode that he doesn't. He's still carrying around his adoption thing. And I like the, maybe I'm the bad luck line as well. Yeah, it's nice that they're not going like, this is all very interesting stuff that we're going to dump on 14 and not write about ever again. <laughs> and I do like the police officer bit where he deduces that the police officer is going to propose tomorrow on Christmas and she's going to say yes, which is to tie it back to how we began. It's a very Moffat-y thing. It feels like a Moffat Sherlock deduction. Did you know that's a Disney note as well? Really? Yeah, apparently the episode script as it was was more like Rose, as in everything's from Ruby's perspective and the Doctor's only seen in relation to how Ruby ah. perceives him. At least, I guess, until the time travel stuff when he's on his own. Okay. But Disney said we need more time with the Doctor on their own. And then Davies writes that scene. I think that's a testament to Davies as a writer as well, because a lot of these blockbusters where the studio notes come in and then the writer doesn't know what to do with the note, so they write some crappy scene that technically fulfills that note. That doesn't do anything? Yeah. But with Davies, he does a really meaningful scene that tells you more about the Doctor and his perspective on the world. Yeah. And the Paul McGann movie is a similar sort of gimmick that Doctor has where after the end of the conversation, he'd be like, oh, by the way, on your maths test, answered B, not C. <laughs> Good luck with the twins or whatever. And it's sort of like the Doctor kind of knows a lot about everybody sort of thing, which I always thought was nice. I like the little moments where the Doctor can, and in this case, it's more of a deduction, but they can sort of see not see through time, but they've got some skills when it comes to the future and stuff. Yeah, it's good. And obviously doing a policeman in a time where people are cynical about the police, it's probably deliberate as well. I think that's it. <laughs> yeah. <Thank> goodness. <laughs> it's quite a, I don't want to use the word basic, but it's not a terribly deep episode. It gives you enough to whet the appetite. Just a nice intro one. Think of all the other new companion or new Doctor intro episodes. They're not ever specifically too heavy. Especially companion ones, which is usually the season opener. It's just like, here's a fast jolt of energy to get the series going. I would have liked Ruby to be a bit more astonished by everything she was encountering. She takes it all in her stride. She just starts dancing immediately. Then it's like, okay, I guess I'm singing now. And then keeps going from there. And I like that as well. It's just like, all right, <laughs> I'm on a ship in the sky. I guess I'll join in a song. The only chance of any explanation is this person and they're singing so yeah, I'm in. Cool. <laughs> if this keeps me alive. I'm really excited about the next series. I think we've got yeah. a great lead. We've got a great companion. It feels refreshed in a way. It feels exciting again, doesn't it? Yeah. I like the Chibnall stuff. So at first I was like, mm, I really like Jodie Whittaker's Doctor. So I was a bit sort of like, I don't want another one. I like my one. Uh-huh. But with this, I'm like, no, I'm ready for another one now. Do we know how much Davies is writing, though? Because I'm keen to see other voices. Uh, probably a lot. It's only eight episodes. Didn't he write like eight of the first 13? Didn't he write eight of that first season with Eccleston? 
Did he? We only have one other confirmed writer so far, which is Kate Heron and her friend, whose name I've forgotten, but they worked on Loki and they're writing the Bridgerton episode. Oh, cool. And there's a rumour about Moffat coming one. back, which would be great. Around about the time Douglas is cancelled, will be airing maybe. <laughs> Perfect synergy there. <laughs> I like these a lot. I liked these four episodes. I don't want to dwell too much on my feelings about the previous era, but I like being excited again about the show in a way that I haven't been for a while. Hmm. That seems to be the general vibe. A lot of people are like, just good to go back to it. I think a lot of people are like, yeah, to fill off. Like you said, it's been on for ages. Even some people, they watched when David Tennant was on and when they were a kid. And- That's 15 years ago, nearly 20 years ago, yeah. Yeah, and they might have been like 10 there, and now they're like 25, and it's like, I can go back to this, this show I've not watched for like 15 years. Well, Millie Gibson wasn't even born when Billy Piper was cast. Yeah, which is insane. I figured I'd say when Billy Piper was born. Well, definitely not. She would have been a few months old when Eccleson's first episode aired. It's worth noting that the flashback to the church on Ruby Road takes place on Christmas 2004, which is the year before Doctor Who comes back. It's a week before that scene in the end of time where he goes to see Rose. Yeah, it feels very deliberate in terms of its positioning, as it were. Ruby is the life of the revival series. Ruby has been alive as long as this show has been running, basically. And her birth is a metaphor for the timeless child situation, which is now kind of vaguely filling the gap that the time war filled in my run, which is this idea of this part of the Doctor's history that we will probably be delving into emotionally, maybe narratively as well, but primarily emotionally. Probably more emotionally than narratively, because what's in the watch? Just a bunch of doctors, really. Who really cares if the Time Lords are the least interesting part of Doctor Who? That's why I have to keep killing them. I don't know what to do with them, so just kill them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't need Gallifrey. It's not important. It's where the Doctor ran from. If it were interesting, the Doctor wouldn't have left it. <laughs> and he only wanted to go home because he couldn't. Wanting the thing you can't have. Yeah. Psychological tick, isn't it? As soon as it's back, nah, I'm leaving again. We'll take one of your tardises and I'm off. That has just come to the end, I think, unless anybody has any final points. I don't no. think I do. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think we're done. I think we're talked out. I think we've done enough. 60-year conversation for a 60-year show. <laughs> that was our 60-year conversation about 60 years of Doctor Who. We went back in time and started the first day the show aired, and now we're finally here. <laughs> well, we're here. It's gone woke. It's gone woke or whatever. What's this box blue? I don't like it. I think, I think you mean woke to who, thank you very much. Woke to who? What they called woke in the 60s? It's just not cricket. This is just not cricket. <laughs> this is not cricket who. I'm going to write hashtag not cricket in my big newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea that you're dropping woke for putting hashtag in front of it. They had hashtag. They didn't pioneer. <laughs> Number sign. You had to get your hashtag ration book out because it was still Russian. It was like you get 10 a week. Hashtag not cricket. How else could you know what the topic was? Put it in an envelope, send it to the Times. <laughs> Start your own fanzine in the 60s. Thanks to TARDIS71 for the supplied music. If you want to subscribe, then you can on pretty much any platform you can find. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. And most of those places have a rating system where you can put ratings and reviews. And Darren, since you've never been here before, I'll ask how many stars people should give us. I'm going to go with six. Can you give six? Is it possible to give six stars? Lucky error. It's usually five. Oh, I thought Craig had sent you the note. I think we will settle for five. Six Six would be nice. We're not a Joe Rogan. We can't really afford six. We can't really stretch to it. That's when you get picked up by Spotify. We can afford the six star. Unless you're on one of those random rogue platforms that (laughs) have random extra stars. The maximum number of stars. But five stars, also known as the number of stars left after Flux. (laughs) And Darren, thanks for joining us for this very, very long discussion about Doctor Who. 
my absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. I am very hungry now. If I'm sounding like I'm vaguely out of whack, it's because I'm literally ordering dinner. <laughs> and Isaac, thank you for joining as well. Yeah, lovely to talk about Doctor Who. I don't know if you want to come back and talk about anything else. Oh, absolutely. Anytime. Let me know, yeah. I don't know anything about Star Trek. Just sit out episodes. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. We'll be thrilled. Thank you. Can we find you anywhere? Have we done the socials? Have we done the socials? You can find me on Twitter or X or whatever it's called, assuming it hasn't burnt to the ground. I feel so sorry for Craig having to edit this. I was going to make a joke about, by the time Craig has edited this... Yeah, it'll be God. So if it still exists, you can find me on the site formerly known as Twitter at Darren underscore Mooney. I write at Second Wind Group. You can join us there. I'm also on the YouTube channels. I write at the Irish Independent. Just search for Darren Mooney and you'll bring up my muck rack and you'll have all the stuff that I've written there. So that's where I'm at. That's where you can find me. And we'll get all your links in the show notes as well. Oh, and I also should mention I co-host a podcast called The 250, which is a podcast that looks at the top 250, bottom 100 movies of all time on IMDb. Craig, not to put you on the spot, when is this coming out? Do we have a rough idea? As soon as I can get it, Eddie. Okay, so let's be ambitious. You will be able to grade how quickly Craig edited this podcast by whether our next episode is Halloween Kills, Halloween Ends. Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, Joan of Arc. You can grade on a scale of one to five, Craig, on how quickly he gets it out, because those are our next five as we're recording. Or if it's any episodes there that he hasn't mentioned. <laughs> we're aiming to have this out by the premiere of the next season of Doctor Who. That is the plan. <laughs> Yeah, I can just about manage that. If you want to engage with us here at Neil Before Blog, you can do so on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or you can leave us a comment under neilbeforeblog.co.uk. We're also on Blue Sky, which I believe is now viewable to people that aren't on Blue Sky. Ooh, I'm also on Blue Sky. I should use Blue Sky. I don't. Yeah, so should I, but I don't. I'm not very good at social media, says the person plugging the social medias. <laughs> you can also join us on our Discord, which has a small yet engaged listener Oh, I like that. That's a Star Trek pun. Host community. For more discussions like this, in-depth discussions about your favourite nerdy things, interviews, a monthly news podcast, you can join us anytime on Neil Before Pod. Mm-hmm.